game four start, but it ends up being almost a game three start. Monsi flies one in the air to left center. Back at the wall and it's gone! It's over! Monsi, a walk-off home run to win game three in the 18th. Night, night. Really exciting and memorable moment for me there at the World Series in 2018, October 26th and 27th. It ran past midnight. 2018, when the Dodgers won the only game they would win in that World Series against the Boston Red Sox in the 18th inning when Max Muncy hit a walk-off home run. My son Benjamin was with me, and that was a very exciting but very long game. Seven and a half hours, would you believe. Baseball starting again tomorrow. Opening day for the Dodgers is at 1.10 p.m. That's why I played that clip. And we'll see if they can duplicate and perhaps eclipse their success from last year. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff Wittellis, and this is being broadcast live and recorded on March 27th, 2019, the time around 9 p.m. We have a free roll tonight. You have until 9.15 p.m. Pacific. Do get in there. It is $100 cash money being given away. This came from three different people. It came from SMI Florida, who gave $25. It came from Eric Benzamokin, who once again stepped up and gave us $50. And then $25 more came from the Ocean Magic Atlantic City crew. And that's in reference to the Ocean Magic slot machine. Remember that story I told you? But a Poker Fraud Alert radio listener who did Advantage Play in the online casino. Well, he did it again. We have a story tonight about that. And seeing that we're going to talk about him and his story again, he sent $25 to me as well. So we have $100 to give away. $50 for first place. $25 for second. $15 for third. $10 for fourth. $50, $25, $15, and $10 are the four prizes takes place in the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It started at 8.50, but you can still get in there with a full stack. Make sure to read the rules at PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. That's all lowercase. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. We'll give you the rules for qualifying for the free money. And if you create an account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, it has to be validated. Only one time it has to be validated to play in the free roll. So if you just created a new account, you're going to have to wait till next week. To get validated, message Belly Buster on the forum. That's Belly Space Buster, and he will do it. If there's any problem getting validated, you can message me as well. The phone number to the show, which be careful to use only when we're ready to take calls. Don't just hammer the show, and definitely don't call unless you're listening, because you have to know when to call. That phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can also call the Mount Charleston line, 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808, the Mount Charleston line, located in a cabin on the top of Mount Charleston, which is about 45 minutes away from Las Vegas by car. Snow's finally melting, and that old 70s rotary phone keeps on kicking. Forwards to me wherever I go. If you want to text me or the show, you can text the main number to the show, 775 372 
8355. 775-372-8355. You can text anytime before, after, or during the show, and I will respond to you. However, make sure that you tell me not to read it on the air, unless it's obvious. Otherwise, I might read your text on the air. The call to listen line is a phone number you can call to listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone, a data plan, a computer, the internet, nothing like that. And if you have a data plan, it won't use up any of your data. All you need is any phone in the world that can dial. Even the old 70s rotary telephones can do it. The phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736. You just call up, you listen, never buffers, just plays the show through. If we're not live, then it'll play a streaming rerun all the way through and then just pick another streaming rerun over and over and over again until we come back live on the air. You can listen through Amazon Alexa. Say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio on TuneIn. If you want to hear the last archived episode on TuneIn, say, or on, on, on Alexa, say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert Radio podcast on TuneIn, and it will play the last episode. You can also listen to the archives on the TuneIn app, on the Stitcher app, on iTunes, on Google Play. You can download the MP3 file or play the MP3 file directly from the Poker Fraud Alert server. Go to the radio forum. You'll see there to how you can do that. iPhones and iPads can just play them. They don't need any kind of special player. You just click on the MP3 file and it plays. It's very easy. A lot of different listening options. The TuneIn app can also be used to listen to the live show. There's two different entries for Poker Fraud Alert Radio on there. One of them is for the live show and the other one is for the archives. A lot of different listening options. If you want one added that won't be too much trouble, then text me 775-372-8355 and I will see what I can do. Now, if it's going to cost me a lot of money out of the Jew wallet, it's not going to happen. But if it's cheap or free to add and I think it's worthwhile to add, I will do it. Also, it can't be a lot of effort. It can be a one-time effort. That's fine. I just don't want an ongoing effort. Like people have asked, why don't you put this show on YouTube? And I said, because I've got to upload each one to YouTube. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> this is, I guess, the type of thing you would do if, if the show is existing for commercial purposes. But this show operates at a loss. You guys know that. We don't have really any ads on here. I play Eric Benzamokin's ad as a courtesy to him because he both once sponsored the show and currently donates a lot to the free rolls. So when I have to take a little break... In the middle of the show, I, I play his ad. But we have no real sponsors. We don't usually have sponsors. I haven't really tried to pursue it very much. But in a way, I don't mind not having sponsors because I don't have to worry about pissing off any sponsors. I can just do what I want and say what I want and criticize who I want and what I want. And that some of the pleasure of doing this show comes from being able to do this. Uh, there's a chat room that you can use if you listen live. If you don't, don't listen live, don't bother. There will be nobody there. But if you're listening live, you can go in the chat room and you can chat with other people listening to the show live. I will look at it occasionally, though not that often. I'm going to try to find Trader Ruski, who's going to be here tonight 
co-hosting. And then I'll give you the agenda, and then we will get going. It's like a submarine. What happened to the, there we go. I was going to say, what happened to the normal Skype ring? It sounded like it's calling him underwater. It's like sending sonar signals to him underwater. He's in the bathtub or something. Of course, he's not answering. Happened to drop. Oh, there we are. Trader Ruski, hello. Welcome to the show. How's it going? I also want to announce to people that uh, next week, we may not be on Wednesday. There's a decent chance I'll be doing this show on Thursday late. Like a pretty late show, maybe 10 or 11 p.m. Pacific. We may not even have a free roll. Uh, It could be Thursday, it could be Friday, in the daytime, I'm not sure. I'm trying to decide, but I think I can't make it Wednesday next week. It'll be from a secret location on Thursday, if I do it Thursday. So I just want to warn you guys there. Check the Poker Fraud Alert Twitter for more information next week. Free roll, you got six more minutes to get in there. So here's the agenda this week, and then we will get going. A broke poker player decided that uh, the way he will get back in action is to rob a successful poker player at home. But it did not exactly go as planned. I'll tell you that story. Michael Josem is going to be our special guest tonight, but it won't be until the midnight hour. That's when we're going to do it. The reason is because Michael Josem is not in the U.S. He's on the Isle of Man, and he's at a much later time of day than we are. So right now it's the middle of the night for him, and he's sleeping. So we're trying to figure out, you know, between the two of us when we talked about this interview, like when we can have this interview. I couldn't do it at the beginning of the show because he'd be sleeping, and at the end of the show I, I wanted to have enough energy to do it. So I didn't want to say, okay, we're going to do it at one thirty in the morning because I'm usually ending kind of around then. So we settle on midnight. He's going to wake up at 7 in the morning where he is, and we will do our interview. In case you're wondering who he is, he was a former Poker Stars security manager. He doesn't work there anymore, but he worked there for many years. If you're one of those people who tried to VPN into Poker Stars from the U.S. to pretend you were in another country and got caught, he may have been the one who busted you. So he he spent many years at Poker Stars. It's going to be a very interesting conversation. We're going to hear a lot of uh, insider stuff about what went on there, what he did in his job, the type of shenanigans people tried to pull, and we'll we'll hear his whole background. I I think it'll be a very interesting interview. How do I know him? You can find it on YouTube. If you watch the 60 Minutes episode about the online poker cheating where I was featured, the person sitting right next to me was Michael Josem. That's how I met him 11 years ago, and we've maintained a good relationship since then, and it was actually his idea to come on. So last week we had a lot of positive responses to the Darren Atterbury interview, who was falsely accused of – or falsely suspected. I shouldn't say falsely accused. Falsely suspected of robbing the Bellagio, and then it turned out it wasn't him. Got to hear, hear his interesting and disturbing story. A lot of people enjoyed that episode and that interview. So this week, we have another interview. Hopefully you'll enjoy that too. Also, about Poker Stars and about former employees there, Lee Jones, the longtime poker room manager of Poker Stars. He was there for many, many years. 
he has quit poker stars. And there's a debate raging on 2 plus 2 regarding what people should think of him now. What should the conclusion be about Lee Jones' time at Poker Stars? Did he do a good job? Was he a decent guy? Or was he a shill for Poker Stars who helped push their shady agenda in the later years? We'll discuss that, and I'll even ask Michael Josem for his take on this, though. I already know what side he's on, because it seems that uh, he and Lee Jones are friends, but we will hear his take, and I'll give you my take. We'll talk all about Lee Jones and talk about how Lee Jones even got that job in the first place and the connection Lee Jones has to me having a limit hold and bracelet, because there is one. We talked before on this show about Phil Galfon's Run It Once poker site. I'm talking about the poker site, not the training site. And then we kind of stopped talking about it, but it really is up and running now. And I thought it would be time to give you an update on that and basically tell you how the site's doing so far. A Poker Fraud Alert radio listener and advantage player does it again. He and his friends hit the New Jersey online casinos for another half million bucks with an advantage play they found there. No, this is not the same story we told you a few weeks ago. This is another story where they did the same thing with a different machine. Or shall I say, uh, online machine. So I'll tell you about their latest exploits. And $25 of that 500 k is going back to you, the listener. Maybe not you personally, but uh, the collective listeners of Poker Fraud Alert Radio will be taking $25 of that 500 k because it was uh, just sent to me tonight. So, even even our site gained from it a bit. Finally, this is our last scheduled topic, but as you might notice, we don't have many topics. So maybe I'll throw one or two in there, kind of on the fly, but the last scheduled topic. Does a pit games dealer at a casino have a right to expect a tip of thousands of dollars for a single hand dealt if that was a jackpot hand? And the reason I'm asking this is because there's a pit games dealer I know who dealt a an $82,000 jackpot and got a $500 tip and this person was very, very unhappy with that tip which I'm sure would probably surprise the guy who left it. So we're going to discuss whether pit games dealers have a right to expect a tip in the thousands when they deal a jackpot hand like 82 k or if they are having unrealistic expectations. Those are our scheduled topics for tonight. Uh, you should note that since we'll probably be talking to Michael Josem for a while, it probably is okay that we have a shorter agenda. But I will throw in other topics, especially if we get mostly through or all the way through the agenda before midnight when uh, we're going to call up Michael Josem. Uh, I, I think maybe we can talk about also the Showtime sports doc, docu, uh, documentary called Action. It's a sports betting documentary. They've already released a trailer, so we can talk a bit about that. And just about uh, the whole sports betting world in general. 
Because it, there, there's I a, think the whole thing came out. Did it Sunday night? Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I recorded it. I didn't watch it. Yet. I only see a trailer here. I, I definitely haven't watched it because I, I didn't even know it was fully out yet. I, I would like to see it though because I've been sports betting in the last few years, and uh, last two days haven't gone very well. In fact, today was such a frustrating day in so many ways. Even betting sports, the two NBA picks I made both lost, and there were two other picks that Simp Dog made for hockey that I actually liked, and I said, oh, I agree with these. I'm going to bet them both. And one won, and one was winning easily when I last looked. Why is that bad, at least for me? Because I forgot to bet them. It just completely slipped my mind. I placed my own bets, and then just, I'm like, I I think I have something else to do here. And then, no, I'm done. (laughs) I left, and I just realized it as the second game started that I had forgotten to bet both of them. So, of course, they're winning. I mean, good for Simp Dog and anyone else who bet them, but it's frustrating when it happens to me. So, anyway, we're going to get going here. Notice these shorter intros. I'm cutting down the intro every week. One day you're going to see the intro is going to be like one minute. You're going to be shocked. Okay, so let's talk about this uh, home invasion robbery that occurred or shall I say attempted robbery, in the uh, Philadelphia area. Now, Philadelphia is 60 miles from Atlantic City, so a lot of Atlantic City players come from the greater Philadelphia area. Some people don't know that. Some people think of Atlantic City, and they know it's in New Jersey, and they kind of picture, okay, New Jersey is close to New York, I bet it's close to New York City. It's not. It's like two and a half hours away by car from New York City to get to Atlantic City. But from Philadelphia, it's a lot closer. There's basically two parts of New Jersey. Northern Jersey is associated with New York City, and Southern Jersey is associated with Philadelphia. And they're almost like two different states. It's it's one state, but the, the, the type of people you will meet in these states, if you're in Northern Jersey, you're going to feel like you're in New York. If you're in Southern Jersey, you're going to feel like you're in Philadelphia. Anyway, we've seen over the years where poker players are targeted, especially poker players who are known to be successful. One of the most famous instances of this in recent years was Greg Raymer, back when he had money. He was playing a high-stakes cash game at the Bellagio, and when he was done, he went up to his hotel room just seemed very mundane. But two guys appeared out of nowhere and I think held a knife to him and told him, get in the room. And right then Greg had to decide, does he do what these guys with the knife say and go in the room and then risk that they're going to kill him in the room and take his money? Or try to fight back? And that's a tough one. It's not like when someone carjacks you and it's a very easy decision to just give up your car. Or when someone mugs you in any way where they're pointing a gun or a knife at you and just say, give up your property, and you give it up and they run off with it. At least there you know you're giving up property in exchange for safety. But when someone's telling you to get in your room so they can rob you, you you don't know if they're going to bring you in there and, and, and kill you because nobody's watching. So at that point, it's it's hard to know what to do. So Greg Raymer quickly decided that his best chance 
was to throw his very large body at these guys and kind of knock them down and then try to get away. And that's what he did. He, he knocked them down and they decided to run it. And he started shouting, police, police, call the police or something like that. Or call 911, something like that. He started shouting as loud as he could. And these guys got scared and ran off. They were later caught. And one of them actually died. I think it was last year. And it was interesting because a, a listener to this show actually, it turned out he knew one of the robbers personally and said the guy wasn't actually all that bad. He just did something really stupid when he was desperate. And then that kind of followed him around for the remainder of his life. And uh I forgot how this guy died, but it wasn't, he, he didn't die while committing a crime. He died of some kind of uh, natural causes. Not getting shanked in prison? I thought that's where it was going, Jeff. No, no, it wasn't. It, nothing like it wasn't in prison. He did go to prison, but he was out of prison, and it wasn't from getting shot while committing a crime. He may have been on drugs. It may have been a drug-related death. I, I'm not sure. But anyway, I actually read a surprisingly positive uh, description of this guy, one of the two robbers, that basically just said, other than that, he was actually a pretty good guy. He just did one thing really stupid. I don't know if that's true or not, but that was the perspective of one listener to this show. But there's been others targeted. Another famous one in the poker community was uh, Greg Merson. And he was actually set up by his then-girlfriend and to two or three guys burst into the home and tied him up and beat him up and stole his stuff. That was a pretty bad one. There was one where a guy in London in his 50s, a very well-liked, friendly guy, Middle Eastern guy, who was a regular in the London card rooms and known to be a winner, a 24-year-old prostitute and her boyfriend's her boyfriend and her boyfriend's thug friends set him up, basically. So she pretended to be interested in him. Of course, he was thrilled because this young, pretty girl was into him. And then one of the times when they went up to his place, she secretly unlocked the door, and three dudes burst in, tie him up, beat him up, steal the money and jewelry out of the place, and uh, they overdid it, beating him up, and killed him. And then seem to show no remorse. They even videotaped themselves afterwards, uh, celebrating with the stuff they stole, not even caring that they just killed someone. So that, there's some pretty stiff sentences handed out for that one because that was actually murder. These crimes all were committed against people who were known winners in poker. And these crimes were committed either when they were returning to their hotel rooms or in their own homes. And there's been others. I've just named three of them, but there's been a number of these. Even before I started playing poker, I remember reading in the 90s in the LA card rooms where people would follow home those who had just won at places like Hollywood Park and follow them home and kill them and take their money. There were follow home murders simply because someone had won at the casino, at the card room. Now, those, for whatever reason, in the L.A. area always seem to be occurring to either old people or women. 
even though they easily could be occurring to anybody because you know, someone's got a gun, then they've got a huge upper hand. But for some reason, these follow-home robberies always seem to be aimed at those who are less likely to be able to put up a fight. So they, they either do it to very old people or women. It doesn't have to be that way. It's just it always seems like that's the way it is. So that's the only reason I'm not as nervous when I'm walking out of casinos in the L.A. area. Is I think, well, they just they just never go after people like me. It could happen, but that just doesn't seem like I'm targeted. But bottom line, if you are a poker player who is either winning currently, just you know, someone saw you win, or if you're known to be a winner, you might be targeted for violent crime where people are going to steal from you, and not just steal from you by stealing something when you're not watching, when you're not home, but actually willing to commit acts of violence, in some cases murder, to get it from you. And that's scary. It really is. It's one thing to just be a victim of a random crime in your home, but it's another thing that you're targeted because you're a known winning poker player. So this has happened again, where a broke poker player who played in Atlantic City Now I messed up Trader Risky. Call you're on the air. Drops, it's Bobby Orr. Yeah. Hey, how you doing? All right. Um, I just, didn't you mean Jonathan Duhamel, not yeah, Greg Murphy? You're right. It was Jonathan Duhamel. I screwed up, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know well, how much you like to be factually correct. Yeah, so. I know. Well, thank, thank you for correcting me, or someone would have corrected me on the forum like mumbles badly. So, okay, thank you. All it was, right. It was. Okay, it was have a good night. Bye. Okay, yeah, it's Bobby Orr correcting. Yeah, I, I don't know why I thought it was Merson. Yeah, I was going to tell you to say about uh, Duhamel too, but then I, I said, "Oh, Merson got robbed." That thought yeah. happened to him too. <laughs> no, it was it was Duhamel. I screwed that one up. Okay, so and, uh, because I didn't really prepare that part of the segment, I was just there. Just came to mind as I was introducing this, like, "Oh yeah, there's been other robberies." Let me talk about these. So anyway, going back to this, yes, I don't know why I couldn't add that call to to use Trader Ruski for some reason. I know it's, it's gone anyway. It was a quick call, thankfully. But okay. Let's uh, let's talk about what actually happened here because it's, it's disturbing. Uh, there is a poker player, not a known poker player, but nevertheless a poker player named Sharon Soroka. Shannon Soroka is, is a, a guy named Shannon. It was not a female Shannon. A male Shannon Soroka, 24 years old, uh, not doing very well in poker. He has some small caches in his tournament history. He, Someone had revealed on 2 Plus 2 they'd played with him before, and he was a regular in Atlantic City, but they felt that he was uh, a losing player. They said he was kind of overly aggressive and just not someone they thought was a long-term winner, and he probably wasn't, because he decided to cure his bankroll ills by going after successful Atlantic City area pro Darren Elias. Darren Elias most recently won $473,000 by finishing third at the LA Poker Classic main event in 2019. So I'm sure that uh, Soroka had heard about this since uh, Elias is from the area too. 
and figured, okay, perfect guy to go after. He just won 473000 at Commerce a few weeks ago. and uh, Actually, not a few weeks ago. He had just won it because this, this occurred on March 15th. Coincidentally, the same date that the Bellagio robbery occurred. Totally unrelated, but just interesting that uh, this robbery and the Bellagio robbery of the poker room, which resulted in uh, the robber getting shot dead, that uh, these both occurred on the night of March 15th, Friday, March 15th. So the plan by Soroka was to burst into Darren Elias's home and then to demand Elias hand over all the cash he has in the home at gunpoint. That was the plan. He chose to do this on Friday night, March 15th, just 12 days ago. However, he did not think about the fact that on Friday night, some people go out. So he he went down to the house. He forced his way in. He was all ready to, you know, he noticed somebody was home. He, he was all ready to point the gun at uh, Darren Elias and tell him to hand over the money. And it turned out that it was just a two-year-old and a 19-year-old babysitter in the house. <laughs> not, not what you want to find when you're looking to rob someone and get big money. So the problem was that the babysitter was unlikely to know where Darren Elias kept the cash. How often do you say to your 19-year-old babysitter, hey, I have hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash in the house in this exact location, so just in case you need to know that. So there's no way she would have known this. I don't know what her relation was, if any, to Darren Elias, but she told Shannon Soroka, I don't know. I wish I could tell you. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm just the babysitter. I have no idea where Darren keeps his money. So Soroka kept pressuring her to tell to tell him to tell him. He just didn't believe it. He was he was kind of in denial at that point. He's like, crap. Now I just I just broke into the home and held someone at gunpoint, and now they don't know where the money is. That's not very good. So eventually he realized that the babysitter probably did not know. So he locked her in an upstairs bathroom. I assume he blocked the door with something. They talk about locking someone in. I never understood how that happens in many cases because the lock's usually on the inside. But he did something to lock her in the upstairs bathroom so she couldn't go call the police right away, and he ran off. Uh, nothing happened to the two-year-old. I don't know what the two-year-old did while she was in the bathroom, but the two nothing happened to the two-year-old, thankfully. It is not clear, at least last time I read a story about this, it's not clear how they identified Soroka, though he did not have a mask on or anything when he committed the robbery. But they did identify him, and he was arrested. So he was charged with robbery, aggravated assault, unlawful possession of a firearm, mischief, and making terroristic threats. I like the mischief part. I, I think this goes beyond just mischief. <laughs> you think of mischief, it's like he went over and toilet papered their house. That's what I think of as mischief. But this, this apparently was, was mischief in some way. Oh, that, that little tyke, he's so mischievous. Just coming over and holding babysitters at gunpoint and trying to rob the place. Just mischief. Uh, according to a member of our forum who goes by Gamblebot Chafed Penis, he said, this is right over the bridge from Philadelphia. Kind of surprised to see a tournament pro living in a neighborhood this nice. Yeah, I guess uh, you know, Elias is doing pretty well. And he must have already been doing well before that 473K because he already lived in the nice house. 
Maybe his family had existing money. You never know with these guys. Sometimes these tournament pros who are living so well, it turns out they had money from outside of poker. But I, I don't know. Elias's case, though, I, I do know that he does well on the tournament scene. And that's probably how he could afford. Maybe he's responsible with his money, too. He does have $7.1 million in cashes. But, of course, he plays a lot of high-stakes tournaments, so he did not make $7.1 million. To show you the level that Darren Elias plays at, the event he finished third recently was a 10K buy-in. He played a 5000 Canadian dollar buy-in event a few weeks before that. About a month before that, he played a 25K event at the WPT Gardens. About 10 days before that, he played the 25K Poker Stars, uh, the, the, that Platinum Pass event that they had over there at the PCA. He played the Bellagio Five Diamond for $10,000 uh, about a few weeks before that. And these are the ones he cashed. I'm only reading the ones on his Hendon Mob that show that he cashed. He probably played plenty of them that he did not cash for similar stakes. So I don't even know with $7.1 million in cashes he could even be down. I, I don't think he is, but uh, this adds up very fast. But they, he definitely plays a lot of high-stakes events. From what I'm seeing, he seems to be doing pretty well, even before that 473000 Like For example, in January, he cashed uh, 192000 in that high roller at uh, WPT Gardens. Didn't have much of a field there if 25K wins 192K for first, but nevertheless, he won it. And he seems to be doing well enough to live in a nice house in a nice neighborhood across the bridge. And word must have gotten around uh, that he's doing well because he's from that area. Soroka must have noticed. And Soroka must have uh, decided he's going to rob him. Maybe he picked... March 15th, because it wasn't that long after the Commerce win. And he figured that Elias would have a lot of the money still in the house. Though, I don't know if Elias necessarily took it in cash. He may have taken it as a check, especially having to fly all the way back to the East Coast from Los Angeles. I think it would have been better to grab money someone had just won locally. It's more likely they would have taken it in cash. Here's a little report from a local TV station there from uh, NBC10 in Philadelphia. This family told me yesterday was perhaps one of the most terrifying days of their lives. The mother and father ran out to run errands, leaving their two-year-old daughter with that babysitter. That's when this armed suspect stormed through the front door, and they say it was not the first time he's been to their home. After terrorizing a young babysitter and child at gunpoint Thursday. He was willing to walk into somebody's house armed with a gun at 3.30 in the afternoon. 24-year-old Shannon Soroka is in jail. He is the man police say targeted the home of professional poker player Darren Elias and family. Held up our babysitter at gunpoint asking for money while um, she was with my daughter. He may have suspected that um, I had some recent wins in the house or something like that. Elias says Soroka had the sitter place the baby in a crib before following her around the home, police say, with a gun to her back. That's interesting. See, I didn't. I, I haven't watched this report yet. I didn't know that. First, so they're going to get into that Soroka had been there once before, which I didn't know either. But interesting that he had to put the baby down. At least he had a little compassion for the baby. He's like he didn't want the baby to be involved, so he just had to put the baby down in the crib and then uh, 
followed her around. He was just in denial there. He, was like, he should have just given up when he started as the babysitter. At one point, she was uh, placed in the bathroom by the suspect, and that's where she was able to escape from. With the baby upstairs, police say the sitter was incredibly brave. After being threatened, she escaped, climbing out a basement window and ran to a neighbor's to dial 911. So grateful no one was hurt, nothing was stolen, but it's still such a scary experience. We were already on guard because of the break-in last week. Police believe Soroka is responsible for cutting a back window screen and stealing a garage door opener from the family last weekend. I was in Las Vegas and I flew home to be with my wife, and I'm very glad I did um, because he ended up coming back. Now they're upgrading their security system. It's a big relief that he's caught. I... <laughs> so you can't see this on here. This is an interesting report, by the way, with with, with uh, Elias commenting and all. I'm glad I'm playing this, but... It's so funny. They say there's, she, he's upgrading his security system, and then they show a ring camera that's uh, that they're putting in there. So like, like what? They're going to give away exactly what the security system they're putting in here. They're they're giving this away for when when someone wants to come back and try this again. But I, I see it. Yeah, it looks like that he broke in once and actually stole a garage door opener, presumably to uh, come in and commit this robbery. Uh, you might ask why he didn't just search for the money then. I, I think he probably did and didn't find any and then took the garage door opener to come back and force someone to tell him where it is. I, I hope they were able to change the frequency of the garage door to where it could not be opened anymore by that opener. Because if, if someone broke in my house and took my garage door opener, then I would make sure that that was not going to work anymore. I have to assume he was smart enough to do that. That's probably uh, why he came in through a different way. So I, don't, I still don't understand how he got in the house, but maybe it'll tell us here. I still have so many questions who he is, why he did it. Soroka also has a card playing history. Elias says he doesn't know him, but if he could be face to face with him now. Probably wouldn't be verbal, yeah. What? <laughs> And Elias is... He probably wouldn't be very... Oh, I see. He's trying to say he's going to beat him up. Well, that's easy to say. I don't know if... Uh, I, I don't know if he'd really do that. He just, he's kind of looking at the two guys. Kind of... I, I, I would... I, I Actually, I can't really see how big this Soroka guy is. But just... You know, one of them kind of looks like a... Uh, kind of like a, a thug. And the other one looks more... Uh, just like... Yeah, it's like a normal dude who's a uh, a poker player. Like, if you saw the two of them, you guess, like, which one's the thug, which one's the successful poker player, there's no question. You'd figure it out. And by the way, it's not w- racial or anything. They're, they're both white, in case you're wondering. His Wikipedia page, meantime, tells us that he has won millions of dollars playing cards and also has a recent win, but police could not say for certain if that was the motive in this case. Now, hang on. Why, why do you have to go look at his Wikipedia page? Why why don't you ask him? You guys are interviewing him. His Wikipedia page says he won millions of dollars. How about you ask him, have you won a lot of money recently? <laughs> why, why is this something you have to consult Wikipedia afterwards when he's part of the interview? That doesn't make any sense. All right, well, that's, that's basically the story here. And let me tell you how you can prevent this from happening to you. And you may say, oh, well, I'm just a recreational player. It's not going to happen to me. Incorrect. It might happen to you if you are seen winning money at the casino. Sometimes it's targeted like this, and sometimes it's just an opportunity crime. When someone observes you 
winning money and cashing out. So here's here's some ways you can avoid being a victim of such a robbery. First of all, uh, I'm going to look right now. I should have done this before the show, but you know me. I produced the show during the show. I'm going to look right now how easy it is to find Darren Elias's address. Um, let's see if it comes up. Yeah, I, I, it's... Uh, I'm not sure if how I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time searching for it here. I should have looked beforehand. But a lot of times, your address is very easily located by simply googling your name and the word address, and you don't want that because you shouldn't want people having your address that easily. So that's the first thing. Uh, second, you should probably go onto the various database sites. And opt out. It's a little bit of a pain in the ass, but once you do it, then you're out of a lot of these sites where people can pay 99 cents to look you up. Or in some cases, look you up for free. So you want to make your address harder to find. It's very difficult in this day and age to make it impossible to find. There's just so many different tools that can be used, so many different resources one can use to find someone's address. So it's, it's very hard to keep all of that out of accessibility. But you should make it easy where people can just Google you and get your address if your name is going to be associated with poker success. Now, if you're just a cash player that they don't really know your first and last name, then you don't have to worry about that. Though I still think it's a good idea to get out of uh, all these directories because you never know when you might not want someone to have it, that you have a dispute with or whatever. So first of all, make yourself a little more difficult to find. Number two, when you leave the card room, make sure you are not being followed. And if you think you are being followed, then don't drive home. Just drive somewhere else. Uh, drive a weird route to see if they're following you on the weird route. You know, just start making weird turns and uh, see if they're following you there that way too. Uh, go to the police station. That's what's always advised when you're being followed is if there's a police station nearby, just drive into the police station. Usually whoever's following you is going to leave because they're going to figure you called the police and the police are going to be waiting for them. So go go pull into a police station and usually whoever's following you will leave. You can also call 911 and inform them that you're being followed and then just drive normally for a while and you know keep the 911 operator on the phone, have them give the police your position and a lot of times the police can locate you and uh pull over the people who are following you and find out what their story is. Uh, but but don't ever go to your house if it appears someone's following you and just be aware of it when you're driving home that no one's following you. And if you're careful, you can tell. Unless someone's really, really good at following you, which they probably won't be if they're just a criminal outside a poker room, unless they're like professionals at doing this, like certain private investigators, you can probably tell pretty easily when someone's following you. But don't just think you're paranoid. If it seems like someone's following you, then try, don't go home, try making uh, various turns that are kind of abrupt and see if this car following you makes the same turn. You'll, you'll be able to tell pretty quickly if someone's going the exact same way you are no matter what. You can also try to lose them. I've done that before myself. Uh, another tip is... Do not 
brag about or make reference to having a lot of cash around. Don't talk about how you, know, you, you like spending cash, you don't like using credit cards that much, or, or you don't trust banks, you keep a lot of cash in your house. I mean, this may sound obvious, but some people just shoot their mouths off trying to show off. Don't post pictures of yourself on social media with cash all around you, unless it's clear that uh, you're not going to keep it. But even, if it, like, even like in a hotel where it could be presumed you're going to deposit it somewhere, just don't post pictures with cash, except for like a tournament win where, you, where they'll put you with it ceremonially. But don't post a picture with yourself with a lot of cash bragging how much you won, because that can be inviting people to come take it from you. When you're leaving a card room, be very careful that no one is following you out. And this can be tough because in a busy card room, like think of commerce, people are always walking in and out. If you try to walk, if you try to walk out of commerce when nobody else is walking out, uh, you might be standing there for hours until you can find a time to do that because there's so many people coming in and out of there. But you do the best you can to not be followed, to know you're not being followed, to watch what's behind you. Uh, don't be on your phone as you're walking out. Don't be browsing the web or social media. Just look around constantly. If you are a more likely ta- target because you're elderly or female, then see if you can get somebody to walk with you. So you're not uh, followed and mugged in the parking lots there. Of course, you can still be followed home, but that's when you should also worry more. Though in this case, Darren Elias obviously wasn't uh, elderly or female. But they're they're in more danger of having that happen. But just be aware. Be aware of who's walking behind you, why, who might you know, where people might be able to jump out from. Try to stay in well-lit areas of the parking lot. Uh, you can also valet park. Some people like that, some don't. But if you if valet parking will at least stop the parking lot walk situation. You can still be followed home, but you can valet park. But if you don't, just make sure to be very aware of your surroundings and who might be following you. Uh, you might even want to take a weird route out, out of the casino. Kind of walk around in a funny way to where it's harder to follow you out and easier to see if someone is following you that same route within the casino. If you have a safety deposit box in a poker room, use it. And often you won't be targeted as much because you'll be seen putting your money back in there. And people will figure you don't have it on you anymore. Or if you have an account at the casino where you can, they hold money for you, which you can deposit and withdraw. I'm not saying you have to have this, but these are ways that you can not have to carry as much cash around. Do not ever open the door when somebody knocks unless you know for sure this is a safe person to answer the door for. Don't let them give you a story why it's okay to open the door, even if it sounds legitimate, like, oh, it's the police or uh, someone claiming a, d- a delivery or the, you know, from UPS. You, you've got it. If you're not expecting it, you need to be sure the person on the other end of the door is supposed to be there and that they're who they say they are. A lot of times these crimes occur because someone opens the door whereas the criminal is not willing to take the risk of kicking in the door or other forms of forced entry. A lot of times they are afraid that will attract too much attention, and what they're really looking to do is to be let in and then pull the gun. Uh, Don't keep a whole lot of cash in the house. 
because if a lot of cash is found, then a lot of times these criminals will feel that there might be more. If they come in, if they do get in and hold you at gunpoint, and you tell them where the cash is, and they recover 500 bucks, and that's it, then they're actually more likely to believe you that you don't have more than if they find 30000 and they think, hey, you know, this guy keeps a lot of cash at home. Maybe he's got everything he has in this house somewhere. Whereas if you don't have much, they may just assume you keep it all in the bank. Uh, don't ever try to fight those who are attempting to rob you in such a way it can end very badly. You saw that Bellagio robber, for example, he had four police officers approaching him and he shot at one of them. So if this guy was willing to shoot at police, of course, a lot of these robbers will be willing to shoot you, especially if you're unarmed. That brings me to my next point. You might want to consider having a gun in the house. You can take steps to keep it protected from kids if you have kids. And you can Google how to do that. But you may want to keep a firearm in the house where if it seems like someone's trying to break in, that you can defend yourself in the worst-case scenario. It can be a very helpless feeling if someone's trying to break in your house and you don't have any weapons to fight back. That's actually what drove me to get a gun about 11 years ago. And it was actually because of a prank. Because of a prank where something was thrown at my window that made a big banging sound in Las Vegas. It was like, I heard boom against my window late at night. I'm like, what the hell could this be? This is very late at night, too. And right then I said, shit. If someone just forces their way in here, I'm a sitting duck. I don't have any weapons here. So, very shortly after that, I went to go get a gun. Turned out the boom against the window was someone just screwing with me. There wasn't anyone looking to do harm to me. But still, I, mean, I, I found out who it was, that's how. And they were apologetic that it made me think what it did. But uh, they, they, were, they, they didn't think that... Uh, they thought it was going to be funny, like I'd be wondering where it came from, not that I was thinking someone was breaking in. So they felt bad about it. But anyway, that taught me that I have to be ready for this sort of thing. So you just, you can't prevent it completely, but you can prevent it somewhat. Another thing is if you're in the casino uh, or a poker room, try not to flash, like if you've brought money with you and you're already in there, try to make it as not obvious as possible that you have a lot of money on you. So don't just whip out uh, $30,000 in cash sitting in your jacket or in your backpack or whatever. Uh, Try to reach in there and pull out what you think you need and nothing more. And try not to make it look like there's just a large amount of cash on you. Otherwise, you may be targeted on the way out or, or next time you come in. What could Darren Elias have done differently? 
because he he was actually targeted for who he is, probably not because of uh, being in a card room. Well, what Darren Elias could have done differently was take this situation with the garage door opener being stolen more seriously. I don't know if he changed the code of his garage door opener to where it couldn't be used. But even if he did, that's not enough. You know that someone broke in and took something so they could come back. And that's very scary. That's, that's something you really, really need to be very concerned about. Uh, what do you do at that point? You, I'm not sure, but you really have to fortify the house at that point. That's when you run out and get the better security system. That's when you put those signs up you know, saying that the place is monitored or whatever. You really, really have to make the whoever this is aware that you are ready for them. And it kind of sounds like he didn't do enough. He did come home when this happened. I think this happened while his wife was out. Or maybe, I don't know if she was sleeping or out, but she, she didn't have any confrontation with whoever did that, probably Shannon Soroka. So after this happened, he came home, but uh, it it sounds like he didn't take any further steps than that, except maybe disabling that code of the garage door opener. So I don't want to blame the victim here, but if you see you're being targeted, you, you really need to do something, you may even want to leave for a while. If you think it's imminent, the person's coming back. Get a good security system, monitor the place from wherever you are and leave for a while if you can afford to do so. Uh, Darren Elias, by the way, is 32 years old. Soroka is 24. He has not won a World Series of Poker bracelet yet. He's finished in the money 23 times. He's made two final tables. He's done better at the World Poker Tour. He's won four World Poker Tour titles with 13 final tables. And this is all fairly recently. The World Poker Tour, he won his first in 2014, won his second in 2014, then won in 2017 and 18. By the way, I'm noticing here the sound of that, where it sounds like something's moving on my headset, and that's because something is. I don't know why. I'm trying to figure... I, I was, like, re-listening to last week's show a little bit. Not the whole thing, but some parts of it. And I noticed I kept hearing that sound. I'm like, crap, I don't want that here. I think I may have to adjust something on this headset. I've had this headset for a few years. You may wonder what type of equipment I use. You might be curious about that. You might. I, I once posted a picture of the room I do the radio from. Some people were actually surprised that the room looked a lot nicer than they expected. But this is a temporary setup. Temporary meaning not that I'm replacing it, but temporary meaning that I, I take it down. I put it up and down whenever I do the radio. So it's not something that's permanently here. But what I have is a headset that you see like broadcasters at NBA games using. It's, it's, it's pretty much exactly that headset. And it's supposed to be pretty high quality, too. And that's, that's why I got it. I know most people who do these podcasts, they have this giant microphone 
that they lean into and talk at. And yeah, it's, it makes you feel like you're doing more of a traditional radio show with that thing in your face. But I just, I elected to go with a headset. Especially because I can relax more when I'm doing it. I don't have to lean forward to a microphone. I could just have this headset on and talk naturally. Uh, by the way, with Michael Josem, he had asked if I, he has to worry about video on this show. Does, should he be on video too? And I said, no, 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 it's just an audio show. He said, okay, good, then I don't have to wear pants. <laughs> and he may not be joking because it's 7 in the morning. He might be like just waking up. So he probably is happy that he doesn't have to... He can just roll out of bed and do the show and not look presentable. It's, it's okay if his hair's sticking up everywhere and if his uh, he hasn't shaven and, and it's, uh, he's not wearing pants, all that's fine. He could not be wearing anything. I don't want to think of that, but it could be. <laughs> Whoa, sneeze. Try to hit the mute. wasn't fast enough. I have fortunately never been a victim of that kind of crime. I hope I never am. And I I do take some precautions to prevent it. And, you know, if somebody, I've said before, if somebody ever broke in here, I would have no guilt about shooting them dead. Some people would feel guilty or said they'd feel guilty if they had, if they killed someone who broke in their home, even if, you know, they have the right to do it. They just, or they couldn't do it. It'd be hard. It wouldn't be hard for me. So I'm broken here and I shot them dead. I would, I'd be completely at peace with myself. That is the risk one takes when they try to do something like that. And I wouldn't ask the person, you know, are you, are you here to just take money or do harm? Like I, I, I don't, I'm not going to take the time to figure out what their motives are. Or what they're capable of. If someone were to break in here, I would want to shoot them dead. And I'd feel completely at peace. Even if they they were unarmed, it turned out. I would not care. Because that's uh, it's what one, one must do to protect their home and their family. But fortunately, I've never had to deal with that. And walking out of places like Commerce... I think to myself, well, I've got to be careful. I've got to look around, especially because I play in the higher stakes area. But first of all, I do have a box there so people see that I return the money I play with back to the box, whether I win or lose. Unless I get felted, (laughs) there's nothing to return, which has happened before too. But if I cash out anything more than a few hundred bucks, then I go to the box so there's that, and the fact that I just know in the history of the LA card rooms is that it's very unlikely someone like me is attacked. They just don't want to go after men unless they're really old, and especially, you know, people see me walking through the parking lot, they see like, eh, like a tall middle aged man, they're like, nah, I'd, screw it, I'd want to go after this guy. I'd rather go after the little Asian woman. So you talk about privilege. I, that, that's the one time I do, actually do feel not white privilege. But the one time I feel male privilege is that I know I'm less likely to be attacked walking out of commerce.
All right. Uh, I am Greek says in the chat, beware of dog signs in your, in your yard are good. Do those work? I don't know. I don't think it would work for me. My dog is old. I'm going to beware of ancient dog. Um, I like how uh, I'm looking in the chat right now. Bobby Orr and Adam Schwartz were having a conversation. Two Canadians going back and forth. And Adam Schwartz said, Bobby, you should call in for every mistake we catch tonight. And Bobby Orr says, ha ha, that's a few calls. And Adam Schwartz says, every time Druff heard the ringer, he'd know he fucked up. That's good. See, the Canadians want to humiliate me here. These Canadians here, they want to, they, they want to rub it in my face. I got the facts wrong. All right, let's move on here to, to the next topic, which is, we're talking about uh, Phil Galfon. I'm going to skip the Lee Jones topic for right now. I want to do that shortly before we have Michael Josem on, because we're going to talk about Lee Jones with Michael Josem. Talk about Phil Galfon and his Run It Once poker site. Just to review, a number of years ago, God, what, like four years ago now, something, something pretty long ago now. Not really long, but not that recent anymore. Maybe less than four years, maybe three years, something like that. But but Phil Galfond put out the intention to start a poker site that was going to do things right. His introduction to the poker site was called a poker site should. Yeah, I guess it was actually th- about three years ago, less than three years ago. Well, I thought it was more than that, but whatever. So he wrote things like a poker site should value players. It should value the casual player for the money he's willing to put on the line for the game he loves, for choosing poker over other hobbies, and for choosing the site o- this site over other sites. It should value the enthusiast and semi-professional for the liquidity they provide and for growing the game for spreading the word across different mediums about their favorite site. It should value the professional for embodying the dream that brings many people to poker, for proving that poker is a game of skill, for promoting the game of poker to their fans, students, followers, or subscribers. And he wrote like 15 more of these, a poker site should. And it looked very nice. I agreed with everything he wrote pretty much. And this was a player, an intelligent player, who knew what players really wanted to see from an online poker site and said he's going to bring it to you. Now, because of the legal landscape in 2016 and presently, he could not bring this to U.S. players. But the site was going to be open to any country where it was legal. So he was going to be directing the entire project. He doesn't really have a software background, so he wasn't going to be creating it from that standpoint, but he was going to be managing it and having the a lot of the creative visions for it and I'm sure financially backing it to a large degree, though he probably got others to invest. And he set off with getting this done. There was some skepticism from people, including me. Not that his ideas were bad, but this is what I said on September 1st, 2016. 
two and a half years ago. These are some nice ideas, but it's going to be an uphill battle. Very tough to unseat a leader, referring to poker stars, and Phil's not going to be serving the U.S. market. I admire their commitment to transparency and fairness, even as poker stars does not have that. Uh, we will see what happens. I wonder who's backing this venture. So then some time passed. And then a lot of time passed. A year and a half passed. And finally, he gave an update. And the update was saying that they had a lot of delays. And that they they had some software that they didn't like and they had to redo things and they, they had to get a different team to develop than originally and uh, that they're going to open without tournaments, which I thought was a big mistake because they wanted to get it out as soon as possible. And things started to look questionable. And at that point, we had a few shows where Cal Watt and I, and this is probably about a year ago, were criticizing what was going on there from the standpoint of people who had worked in the software industry in the past. In fact, Cal Watt still works in that industry. So we were both discussing the things they had done wrong and why this was probably destined for failure, even though we we weren't rooting for it to fail. We both like Phil Galfond as a person. We, we don't know him very well, but he seems like a nice guy for the most part. and uh, It seems like he really does have excitement about this project and really does want the site to be what he's claiming. It's not just marketing fluff. So we weren't hoping for failure. But uh, we thought they were going about some things wrong. If you want to go back a year or so, you can hear these episodes. I'm not going to rehash all that now. I tried to... I shouldn't say tried. I offered to work for this site near the beginning when this was announced in 2016. I sent an email to Phil Galfond himself and explained to him why I would be valuable to a site like this. And I was clear that I, I wanted some kind of managerial role. I didn't want to just be a code monkey doing, uh, you know, working on their software. That wasn't what I was looking to do. And he wrote a very nice letter back to me, in fact, fairly lengthy, but basically, he said, we already have everybody in place at this type of level. We'll keep you in mind for the future, but we, those jobs are filled. So that was that. And no hard feelings. That's probably true. One thing I did criticize at the time, criticize meaning that, uh, you know, not directly to him, but actually, I think I did mention this to him in kind of a more polite way. I felt everybody involved was too young. They all seemed to be around Galfound's age at the time of early 30s. And I thought that having at least a few older people there would be valuable. Just from a life experience standpoint. From, in some cases, a maturity standpoint. From a trust standpoint for the customers. Especially customers who might be older. That would trust it more if some people their age were involved. And I, I, I did actually pitch that as one of the assets I would bring there, is that uh, it would be my involvement in it would actually be something that people would see as an asset if they were middle-aged or, or older, that it's not just a bunch of kids. 
But as I said, I have, I have no bitterness or frustration that I did not become uh, one of the managers there or anything. There was just something I offered. I didn't need it. It was something I just would like to do. So let's get back to last year where they're having all their problems. Then they made another update about a month later. This is now May 2018. And they came up with some various concepts and rules that were going to be on the site that some were good or some were bad. So they weren't going to allow HUDs, which are those, those tools that allow you to see stats on the players you're playing with and then make better decisions. You can't use those. They wouldn't be allowed. And then he was going to have semi-anonymous tables. And when I say semi-anonymous, what it would do is it would give you a custom name for one day. Custom meaning it would customize it for you. You couldn't pick it. It would give you a name for one day, and you'd keep that name for 24 hours, and it would change again. So this way you can see the same player that same day, but then after that they're, they have a different name. And it forces you to do this. You, you can't choose to do this or not to do this. And this is being done so people don't target fish. And then hand histories will be available 24 hours after you play with everyone's whole cards revealed. Reason for 24 hours is that you can't use those hand histories against those specific players because they'll have a different name by that point. And this way you can fully analyze it to see if anyone's cheating. And they know who they are, even though it'll be different names. They have record of who these people are. So these were decent ideas. But then they had the idea that they're going to have avatars that will show emotions on their face related to the player's play style. And that already started getting some criticism, including from me. Because the problem was that it would be, your, your avatar would basically be labeling you as over-aggressive, as too tight, as a fish. Who wants that? Who wants a poker site basically insulting your style of play and making other players aware of it? Now, Galfon said, well, you can't see your own. Well, that doesn't help very much. You'll see, you'll see other people's and realize that others are seeing you. So even if you can't see the way it's describing you, uh, you'll start to worry. I wonder if the site's labeling me as a fish or it's too tight. And it's, For example, some tight players are tight because they think that, well, among other reasons, that their opponents won't notice and that their opponents will still give them action. So if they only play top hands, and if they only put a lot of money in when they have a, a really strong hand post-flop, they think that they'll still get action from the players who just like putting in action. And the, the players won't notice all that much that they're super tight. They may notice they're kind of tight, but they may not see them for as tight as they really are. That, that's what the tight player often thinks of why his strategy is good. But that goes away if you have an avatar that's giving away that you're tight. But what's even worse is the software would be basically committing the cardinal sin in poker, and that is the venue of the poker site, uh, of the poker game, which in this case is a site, will be telling a player that he's bad, or at least telling his opponents that he's bad. And that should never be happening. The venue should never be telling other players in any way that you're bad, or that your game is flawed. There should be something the players all figure out on their own. 
One big problem here, the reason you don't do that, the reason your venue should never do that, is that most poker players, even pros, even fish, have a delusion that they're far better than they actually are. The weak tight player doesn't think he's weak tight. He thinks he's just smart enough to wait for the best hands to get his money in the best spots. The tilt monkey doesn't think he's a tilt monkey. He just thinks he's aggressive and his aggressive his aggression is a skill that's needed to win in poker. The player who has kind of an inconsistent and weird play style doesn't think he's making a lot of inexplicably dumb moves. What he thinks he's doing is being unpredictable and hard to read. So these people are all proud of these attributes of their game and don't realize in many cases that it's very suboptimal and in many cases makes them very easy to beat. But now the software is going to label them for exactly what they are. So, And we've talked about this before. We, did, we talked about this last year. That was one innovation I definitely didn't agree with. And then uh, they put out other updates over time. And then they had something called Splash Pots. That's, that was more recently described. Because Phil talked about how there's a guaranteed 50% rake back. And first of all, you ask, why why a universal 50% rake back? Why not just charge 50% less rake? And what, what's the point of everyone gets 50% rake back? Well... It turns out the reason they have 50% rake back is it's not real rake back. What happens is 50% of the rake is returned to the entire player pool in general through a promotion called Splash Pots, where every so often it's announced automatically that a lot of extra money is going to be thrown into the pot, and whoever wins the pot also gets a lot of extra money, which a lot of people liked, but I thought wasn't the best idea. A lot of people liked it because it was fun. It would excite the recreational players that suddenly there'd be all this extra money just dropped in the middle of the pot and whoever wins has to, uh, uh, you know, gets it and it's, uh, people play a lot more loose and that's good. But the problem is the splash pots are just a way to make the fish go broke faster. They're, they're very pro-friendly and fish-hostile. The problem is that the fish don't always know how much money they should throw. They don't know that they shouldn't throw good money after bad. So sometimes fish will get stacked. Think of like No Limit. At Limit Hold'em, which probably doesn't go much on there, is a different story. But at No Limit... Like, how much of your existing stack do you want to waste chasing a splash pot in a spot? Like, let's say you have bottom pair where you'd normally fold for a fairly big bet. You go, well, no, I don't want to fold. I got, I got to call this big bet in case I make two pair or trips and then win the splash pot. So while this does add a new interesting strategy element to it, the problem is the pros on the fly are going to figure out pretty quickly when it's worth putting in money to chase the splash pot, splash pot and when it isn't, where the fish is, are just going to chase it and lose. So not only will the fish not end up with the splash pots as often, but they, they will uh, often get stacked in attempt to get them. So that's, that's bad. 
I and also I thought that saying that's fifty percent rake back is not really being honest. Fifty percent rake back means you're getting fifty percent of your rake back, not we're taking fifty percent of your rake and diverting it to a promotion that will go to all the players in general. They should be clear about that. They they actually advertise fifty percent rake back, which isn't true. People know what fifty percent rake back is. People have known what rate back is for a decade and a half now. Uh, there's other things where they give extra rake back, and I think this is real rake back for streamers. Who that's that's kind of their marketing budget is that they want these streamers, people who stream their own play, to basically influence people to come over and play Run It Once. The thought is if people see the streamers playing Run It Once, then they'll want to play Run It Once. It's kind of a cheaper way to advertise. Pretty smart. But I I think that by itself is not going to be enough. Now, I will say that those who have played the site so far are enjoying it. On 2 Plus 2, other than some bugs and some features of the game that are not very well developed yet, that are growing pains. I'm not going to criticize those so much. Other than stuff like that, most people are enjoying it. Most people like the splash pots. Mr. Tickle, who is a young guy who listens to this show, he lives in Russia, but he's from the UK originally, he posted back in February, been playing a bit, it's great, splash pot is such a good idea. So maybe maybe the splash pot was a good idea. I, I, I still don't think it was. I think it's going to just kill the fish quickly, but... Uh, people seem to like it. But still, there is the question. How is it doing? With all these innovations, they have other things. They they have it where there's a universal buy-in for every level. You can't short buy, you can't buy big, you, you have to buy in the same as everybody else in the No Limit games. Stuff like that. All these little tweaks to what has been known for online poker for a very long time. All these little tweaks. Some of them good, some of them bad, some of them it's hard to tell whether they're good or bad, but there was a lot of creativity going into this. I'll, I'll give Galf on that. They came up with a lot of interesting ideas. But how is it doing? Well, taking a look at PokerScout.com, which tries to list the activity of all the online poker sites in the world. It's not always totally accurate, especially in sites where it can't get very good visibility, like Bovada, for example, because of its anonymous tables. But it tries to figure out how many players are on, how many are at the cash tables. It doesn't track tournaments for whatever reason. But taking a look at Poker Scout, how is Run It Once doing so far? Well, if Poker Scout is accurate, the answer is not very well. Run it once, uh, this is according to Poker Scout, maybe it's wrong, but run it once, their 24 hour peak, the last 24 hours, number of cash players on the site, 238 players. The 24 hour average, or sorry, the 7 day average for the Number of people playing cash on Run It Once Poker, 60. 60. That's not very good. This is worse than the legalized online poker sites in the U.S. for the most part. 
PokerStars New Jersey averages 95 players. Uh, WSOP in the U.S. averages 220 players. Sites that are catering to outside the U.S., PokerStars averaging 7,800 players. Party Poker, 1,300 players. IDN Poker, 4,800 players. Winamax, 1,250 players. GG Poker, 1,250 players. Bodog, which is actually uh, is U.S.-facing and facing some other countries as well, uh, estimated 1,100 players. So we got 60 on run at once. Now, yes, it's a new site. It's only been here for a few months. First it was in beta. Now it's uh, it's available, but it's it's been out some time now. And 60 is not a good start. It's not. And I'll be honest. I will be honest. It is. This is not the type of start that is likely to become big. Usually when a site's going to become big, if they were going to p- compete with PokerStars, for example, they would have a much better start than this. They wouldn't start out immediately blowing away PokerStars, no matter what. But if they were on the path to competing with PokerStars, they wouldn't have 60 players average after being up a few months. And I, I think the problem is... It's kind of too little too late. This is the wrong time for it to show up. If, they, if this site appeared 10 years ago, especially if it was U.S.-facing, I could see this doing very well. They, they, they have a lot of interesting things going, well, going on. The software looks pretty good from what I can see of the demonstrations of it. I haven't used it myself. I think the splash pots, maybe that would attract people. There's a lot of good things about it. They're still calling it beta at this point, so maybe that's their one saving grace is they're technically still in beta, though you you can play. If you go to runitonce.eu, you can click download and play and play it. I want to see what happens. I'm going to try to download this. Produce the show during the show again. I'm going to download this. It's 160 megabytes. Hopefully it doesn't crash the crash the radio. It's eating up my connection, but this is—I'm uploading this show as I'm broadcasting, and I'm downloading this the software, so it shouldn't be interfering with one another. See if I can even run it from in the U.S. I know I can't play, obviously, but let's see if it'll even start. Where I can maybe take a look at the who's on, what games are running. Now, admittedly, this is not a prime time in Europe right now because it's 10:22 p.m. Los Angeles time, which means middle of the night or early morning in uh, in Europe. But still, they're averaging 60 people, according to Boker Scout. And th- this was my biggest concern for them, that they just, they're coming on at the wrong point as far as online poker is concerned. And I think the only way you're going to have a successful online poker site at this point that's new is if you have a big marketing budget to where 
you can attract a lot of recreational players who just see it advertised. And unfortunately, Galfond and the other investors just don't have that type of big money to put into it. I'm trying to see if I can actually look at anything here. No, you have to log in. Uh, you can sign up. I don't. I don't know. I guess I could try to sign up, but that won't make the best radio if I'm entering all this stuff to sign up here. But I think they just came on too late and they don't have the budget to elbow themselves into the market. And I think they believe that word of mouth would get it going, but that's not how it works these days. These days, to really succeed, you've got to have a marketing budget where you reach the average recreational player. Uh, Phil... Phil's site is going to reach the people who read poker forums or who follow him on Twitter or who read poker social media groups. But that's pretty much it. Or watch the streamers, some of the streamers, I guess. But that can't be your whole business plan. I just, I think it's thinking too small. Oh, this is interesting. I I didn't make an account... And now, now it came up of, of what r- games are running here. And there's not many. There's microstates. I'm seeing a No Limit Hold'em. All I'm seeing is they only have No Limit Hold'em and, and PLO. There's No Limit Anything. So No Limit Hold'em has one table of 25 cent, 50 cent euro. And then a 2 cent, 4 cent euro is running, and then, and then there's a... No, and that's it. It's the only two running in No Limit Hold'em. It's kind of sad. Let's look at PLO. PLO, they, they have something similar. Two cent, four cent. And a 25 cent, 50 cent. So that's what they've got. That's what they've got. So basically four tables running. Nothing above 25 cent, 50 cent euro. Hmm. I realize this is middle of the night, but still, this is not good. This isn't what they're shooting for. I can tell there's been some money put into this thing. I, I can tell. It's, it's, it looks pretty professionally done. It looks nice from what I can see so far. I think a lot of money got put into this, and I think a lot of money is going to be lost on this. And you know, I, I hope it works. Sure as I'd like to see someone like Phil Galfond, who is one of us and understands how to run a site and has a good history in the community. I'd love, I'd love to see him in charge of, of the large site rather than a company like Amaya that just wants to squeeze whatever they can out of the community. But I just don't think it's going to work. I think the business plan... And you said they built their own client, Trev? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, so maybe they just need to test it and then license it to someone. Because really, if you're outside the U.S. and you're competing with stars, you're just fighting an uphill battle. He'd probably have more success trying to partner with some casino that has a license. 
in Vegas, New Jersey, or wherever else it's legal. But those aren't doing well either, but I, I think you're on the right track. No, I know, though. but I'm just saying at least he's coming in with kind of more of a level playing field. I, I Well, I think you're on the right track. I think even licensing to one of the Euro sites that maybe wants to improve their software or whatever, that uh, that might be, or, or, or some other casino over there that wants to run something that does have the big marketing budget, but just wants a good client with maybe even bring people along like like you know he could even work for it at that point but he'll have all their money backing it i just don't think i think as i think he was inspired by what full tilt did minus the stealing the money because full tilt if you think about it and i watched this happening as i was in vegas in 2004 i, I was i was watching these certain pros putting money up for it and watching it blow up huge and become the second biggest poker site besides behind stars and making all kinds of money. Now it was mismanaged and they they uh, screwed up a lot of things and stole money. But uh, but the thing was that had they not done that, the the thing was was basically printing money. And these were all from investments from ordinary poker players. I say ordinary, I don't mean recreational players. These were known pros at the time, but I don't... Like, they, there was no big backer behind it from outside of poker. These were really a bunch of winning poker players getting together and pooling their resources to create this. And it was very smart. And I think Galfon's saying, okay, well, well, let's do the same thing, except we'll be ethical unlike Howard and company. And, and we'll run this in a way that is more fair to both recreational players and pros and do things differently than like stars is doing now. And I, I understand everything you want to do, but I just don't think the market's there right now. I don't think without, I don't think they got the budget to bring people there. And that's, that's a lot of the battle is getting people, getting eyeballs on your product on anything online. That's the case. It's the case with this show. What I noticed with this show is when we get new listeners, I ask them, where'd you find it? And it's it's from one of many sources that people come in. And some of the big fans of this show are ones that found it in you know, the last two or three years that happened to stumble upon it in some way and said, oh, wow, this is great. I love this show. Then we have those that stumble upon the show that hate it. They think it's too long. They think I, I drag topics on for uh, too long of a time or – they, they don't like that it's not slickly produced. or it, it, Some people just don't like my personality. You know, there's there's reasons people don't like this show, too. You'll have those that listen once to say this doesn't interest me and not come back. But I, I have thought before, like, if, if every single poker player knew Poker Fraud Alert Radio existed, we'd have a hell of a lot more listeners because we'd have a certain percentage of those who'd try it who would stay. There's a lot of people out there who, if they heard this show, would download it every week or listen live every week and love it. But they just don't know it exists, or if they know it exists, they don't really know much about it and don't have an interest to go really find it. But if, if like everyone tried this or really, really was aware of this very well, we'd have a lot more listeners. But we don't, and the only way for me to get way more listeners would be to spend a lot of money marketing it, and I'm not going to do that. So same thing with, with Phil Galfon's side, except the difference is that I'm not putting a lot of money into the show. I put very little money into the show. I put time, but not money. Where Galfon and, and his investors have put a lot into this. 
So it's just not doing well. I can, I'd be shocked if this goes from 60 average players. And the reason I downloaded the client right now is just to verify that maybe, yeah, I was thinking, well, maybe Poker Scout's full of shit, but it's not. So 60 average players, I don't see, even in beta, I don't see going from that to competing with stars with 7,800 people. 60 to 7,800 is a huge leap, especially as poker is not rapidly expanding as it was back a decade and a half ago. And this is exactly what I thought might happen, that this would interest kind of regular form reader types. And But, that, but that's it. Let's okay, see if I can take this thing without... Oh, here we go. There we go. We just added it on with Trader Risky. Here we go. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hey, what up? Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Who is this? Oh, what's up? Uh, 505 guy. The 505 guy. Lucky you on the four. Okay, I I see you. So, so, um, I was just calling in to defend um, Galfon's site. I think, like, I mean, yeah, it's probably smaller than you expected, but, I mean, as far as, like, attention and investments, I feel like some of those same businessmen, like, in the games they play in, I'm sure he'd have a pretty easy time finding investment as far as marketing goes. And then also I think um, he could easily just throw on, like, a a high-stakes game on his site featuring him and whoever. I mean, even get Tom Dwan there to get eyes on it. I'm sure they'll probably do something with Poker Go or something like that at some point. I, I think it has like a lot of um, like grassroots within poker back in it, if that makes sense, where to kind of just be the site where people who are upset with either stars or party poker for one reason or another, like they'll push Galfon's site or say, oh, I'd rather just play here. Because, I mean, like, like you said, the software looks good and the site looks good. I I think within time it could blow up pretty big. Well, it could. I just I, – I don't know if they're going to do these things you're describing or if it's going to really bring in the, the mass number of people they need these days. It's just, it's just a lot harder. It's just a, there's a certain thing where, where people who want to play poker now outside the U.S. They, they online, they, they know PokerStar. It's been around so long. They go, I want to play online poker. Where do I go? Oh, PokerStar. That's where everybody knows you go. So PokerStars could like do like no marketing and people would go there because they, they've known for, for, for so long. Yeah, so – so yeah, actually, you you are right. Like I, I forgot to mention, everything I'm saying is like contingent on um, poker being back in the U.S. at some point. But but yeah, I mean, as far as if it just stays rest of world, yeah, it's probably just no chance. Like there's just like you said, there's just too many options and too many Euro sports books. So, but yeah, but if poker gets legalized here or something with DraftKings, like I. I could see some type of collaboration. Yeah, that would be, that's a good um, that's a good point. If if they if it gets legalized here in enough states and uh, something like DraftKings made something like that the their poker software, then it could blow up. It. Yeah, I agree with that. It, uh, it would have to be something like that where an existing company with a with a big reach or or a big marketing budget uh, would take their software or partner with them and bring a lot of people in. I just don't see the way they're doing it now. I just can't see them bringing in a, 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 the massive number of people that are needed to have a successful site. That's that's my take on this. Right yeah, now. 
No, yeah, you're right. It's a now. Uh, but yeah, th- thanks for uh, taking my call. And no problem. Trader Ruski. Thanks for calling in. See you, bro. No, we, we we took a call there, Trader Ruski, with with uh, without kicking you off the line. It's a, I like it. Skype. It's, the technology is working. Skype. Skype. Hard at work. Skype. Seeing what they fucked up. Yep. Skype's progress. Uh, we're we're back to what 2004 now. That's good. That is good. I. I feel like I'm living in the early 2000s now instead of, instead of the 90s. Thank you, Microsoft. Exactly. Thank you, Microsoft. But I do think, um, you know, I do think, and I agree, you know, I think what they call it, you know, I think testing it in Europe, getting some players, and then coming into the U.S. and attaching, you know, as some of these casinos start getting licenses and some parts of the U.S., maybe California, yeah, I mean, you know, wasn't wasn't there that small? Wasn't there a casino that DraftKings bought or something that was in New Jersey? Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. They they they've recently done these uh, partnerships as far as the sports is concerned, but with Caesars. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to think here as far as with, with poker, they don't have any reach right now. But they, they could. They, I could see where they could in the future, especially if look, they even have a Caesars partnership. Of course, Caesars is already running WCB.com, but but the truth is the 888.com software sucks, and Caesars could uh, could drop them at some point. Right, or a competitor could come in, and then now that sports, you know, sports gambling is legal in some of these places, you know, they may want to jump into that market just so that they can kind of get top people in the poker market, you yeah. know, can be kind of a marketing play for whoever buys them as well. So it'll be interesting to see how it all uh Yeah. Works it, out. It's not dead in the water. I just it's just I think it's a pretty bad start though and, and I think if if I had to bet on this, I would bet it's gonna end up being a fail rather than wildly successful. But I'm I'm also not ruling out it could end up being successful at some point if something major happens to give them better exposure. So uh, here's some texts we got from that same guy in 505 that just called up. Uh, leave decoy cash. Awesome Jew tip. A guy sees 700 bucks and figures that's a great snatch and grab. Little does he know you you finished off a 600-1200 session. Uh, by the way, your BFF Lyman had a great tip as well regarding this. He mentioned always using the cash box at the casino so you never have money on you. Yeah, that was, that was actually one of my tips too. Use the If you have a box there. It's, it's not yet to set that up beforehand. Uh, anybody else who wants to text me, 775-372-8355. It's from 507. The Jesse Smollett outcome, what a joke. Depressing he got away with this. Social justice, my ass. It's the opposite, actually. I was considering making that a topic of this show tonight, and I said, you know what, screw it. There's been there's so much talk about this everywhere, and I think if I do want to talk about this topic i want to wait until a little more comes out as to why this happened what or what facilitated this happening because a lot of people are very surprised by this and I, a lot of people don't understand that much yet but there's some preliminary findings that there was some uh corruption going on behind the scenes and some influence being used and that which is pretty amazing for such a public thing i mean because you know, Emmanuel, you know, the mayor and the 
chief of police there steaming. Yeah, that's that's what the surprising you know? thing. That's what surprises me the most is that this wasn't. There's so much corruption in Chicago, and yet they they did not go through the mayor or the police. They just, uh, which are known to be corrupt, there they they cut them out of the whole thing, and now they're pissed. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa! You didn't run this by us. What what the hell? You can't just do this. So they they're they're mad, and so that's the only hope that this is going to get. Uh, some exposure for what really happened is that you actually have the Chicago police and the Chicago mayor very angry about that situation. So I, at some point I'll probably talk about it. And, uh, yeah. Cause I have, I have I mean, I've watched the seven, but it seems like they weren't even given heads up before they just made the announcement and everybody else knew. Yeah. That's what seemed to happen. Right. Yeah. And I mean, oh, yeah. did you off. ever see that show uh, boss? That was on, uh, I think it was on Encore. No. And Kelsey Grammer played like this, played like the mayor of Chicago and just all the corruption. It is a really good show if anybody's seen it. Never heard of that, but that's. Yeah. What was it called? Really good. Worth watching. What is it called? Boss, I think. Uh, boss. Okay, I'll look for it. Yeah. The, here's a text. A quick question. I want to buy into the main event and 1200 for travel expenses via my local poker league. Should I break the deposit up so I don't get flagged for exceeding 10K? If so, how long should I wait to deposit the other half? I have access to another bank account. If I split between the two, should I deposit separate days? Well, first of all, I understand that uh, I, I can't go on the show and give you advice on how to commit crimes, and this is this is what we call structuring, what, what uh, you're asking. So I can't, I, I can't give you that answer here, but uh, I, I can tell you this. If you deposit exceeding 10K... It's not a huge deal. Um, you're basically just informing the IRS that you're depositing 10K in there. It's not you're not going to be in any trouble. If you do it once, it's not likely it's going to affect anything other than you may have to account for that 10K because you want it, and then it will go on your taxes. You'll be expected when it comes to be tax time what not necessarily to pay on it. If you lost, like if you put the 10K in there, then play the main event and don't cash, then you've got a very easy paper trail that the 10K is gone. As as is the twelve hundred for travel expenses, you you won it and then lost it back, so you wouldn't owe taxes on it that same year. But uh, so, so filling out the CTRs form is not the end of the world. A lot of people are afraid of it, like oh, I can't fill that out. It's it's more of a pain in the ass than anything else, and some people just don't like it. Like you know, some people. Let me give you an example. Uh, John Smith, the poker player, wins ten thousand dollars playing cash poker at Commerce. He runs really well. Does the IRS know about this? No, they have no way to see. The IRS has no visibility to John Smith winning this, and John knows this. So John Smith may just take the cash home. He may actually, you know, find, you know, may not cash it all out at once, whatever it is, to where the IRS doesn't get a form that John Smith suddenly has 10K from the poker room because the IRS otherwise would not know. So John Smith figures he can do that and get away with it and that is uh the reason some poker players avoid things like ctr not not just poker players but the reason some gamblers in general will avoid the ctrs because if if money just appears out of nowhere that the irs isn't aware of then they'll be expected to account for where it went so but but uh if you're depositing a 10k that you're going to use for the main event anyway, then it's very easy to account for where that 10k came from, and you, you would not be you would not be expected to pay taxes on it because it would be the same calendar year, and that would be going right back into the buy-in. 
win or lose. Even if you want, you want something in the main event, the buy-in itself would be coming off that original 10K. So uh, the second you buy into the main event, you've basically lost back that 10K for tax purposes. And this is totally legal, this part. Uh, and then whatever you win from there at the main event, then you'd have to pay taxes on that. Uh, unless you lost overall in gambling that year, and then you don't. But uh, but as far as structuring, um, anytime you intentionally break up 10K or more so you don't have to fill out that form, it's technically a crime called structuring. How often do they go after this? Not very often. It's uh, It could happen at any time. But no, it's not if you if you made a deposit of six k somewhere and seven k somewhere else or something. It's that's you know it's not guaranteed that the uh, they're going to come down and arrest you for structuring. It's it's pretty unlikely, but you you have committed the crime at that point if you knowingly do it that way. And they could, uh, in a case like this, it, it would kind of you know, it it could look like that. Um, you're you're not required to deposit it all in the bank. That's something I can tell you. Um, the, the requirement is that when you put 10K in the bank or you make any kind of cash transaction, if you if you go buy a car and give them more than 10K to buy the car, they also have to fill out that same form. But if you, let's say you win, uh, let, let's say you have 25K in your house that's uh, um, that you've won over time, uh, you're not responsible to go... Uh, Submit any forms anywhere except for declaring that to whatever you've won when it comes to be tax time. But at the immediate time you win it, you're not responsible for anything. And uh, if, now the casino where you win it is responsible to make you fill out a cash transaction report. But let's say they just don't. Let's say you, you weren't trying to structure anything. You just it's just in the, the manner you won it. They just forgot to make you fill out the form or whatever it is, and you happen to have 25k. Then, then yeah, that's you happen to have it. And that's it. So you're not required to put that in the bank either. But uh, uh, I wouldn't worry about this, is the answer, about even filling out a CTR form, since you're going to use it for the main event. But no, I can't give advice on how to get away with structuring here on this show, so I don't have the uh, FBI knocking on my door for using this show to give people advice on how to to, uh, commit structuring crimes, (laughs) so I'm not going to do that. Uh, the, the, the structuring is really aimed at uh, the structuring laws, or shall I say, are aimed at those who are acquiring the money illegally. That's the reason they have it on the books. It's not really aimed at poker players, though it can be used to two bust poker players. But it's aimed at people like drug dealers and others who receive a lot of cash for illegal sales of some kind, and then attempt to deposit or use the cash for other things. This makes it more difficult on those who have large amounts of cash to be able to spend it. So this way, let's say you have a million dollars cash from selling drugs. Uh, you, you can't just go go to someone and say, hey, I want to buy this house you're selling for a million dollars. Here's a million dollars in a suitcase. It prevents you from being able to do that. It prevents you from being able to go buy luxury cars for all that cash. That if you spend more than ten thousand, basically anywhere or deposit any, anywhere, then it has to be reported. And if you try to dodge that by doing nine thousand, eight thousand over and over, then that's structuring, and that's why that's a crime. So that's that's what it's aimed at. 
Uh, and that's why someone who breaks up 10K once and makes two deposits, uh, they're probably unlikely to get in trouble, but they're, they're technically committing the crime of structuring. So there's your answer. Anybody wants to call in? 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. In about an hour, 15 minutes, we're going to have Michael Josem on. Hopefully we can reach him. He's sleeping right now. In the meantime, I want to talk about a listener to the show who, along with 13 other people, won... $500,000 with a Casino Advantage play with uh, the same method he did a few weeks ago. Someone who's hit the New Jersey online casinos twice in the same fashion. And what he's doing is legal. That's the best part of it. It's not even any risk in that sense. Though there is a risk in some bankroll sense. This isn't just easy, free money that's guaranteed to come. There's, uh, so let me, let me tell you what happened here. And uh, I will explain the latest with this. Now, if you remember, a few weeks ago, we did a story about an advantage player who is known as Play with an Edge One on Twitter. He called himself Jay in this article, though that's not his real name. And he beat a, an online slot machine called Ocean Magic, which is also a brick-and-mortar slot machine you've probably seen around casinos. And those machines have long been known to be ones that you can beat if they're in a certain state. If there's uh, an Ocean Magic, if these bubbles, which are wilds, are in certain places on the screen and you come up to a machine where those bubbles are in an advantageous place, then temporarily the machine is positive expectation. And you, the smart thing to do is put some money in and play the machine until the bubbles are no longer there. Because the bubbles stay. They don't just vanish when one spin is done. They stay and eventually bubble up to the top and disappear. So you're supposed to keep playing them until the bubbles disappear when you see them in the advantageous place, which is kind of like the the bottom... The more bottom left they are, the better, but kind of just anything but the outside top and right will make it advantageous on an Ocean Magic machine. I'm talking about in a brick-and-mortar setting, or online for that matter. So what happened was that this guy, Jay, noticed that when he went on the New Jersey online slots, which are offered legally by the New Jersey casinos there, that they actually started the machines in an advantageous state with those wild bubbles already on the screen. And that each denomination would start it that way. So you'd play at the cheapest denomination, the bubble would go off after several spins, and then you switch to the next denomination, and it's right back. So, And it turned out those denominations online went really high, whereas at brick-and-mortar casinos, Ocean Magic is a fairly low-limit game, so it's not really worth that much to search them out in this state. Online, they had some very high stakes Ocean Magic games, and you and they all started out in that state. So all you needed was the bankroll to be able to run this, and also a bankroll to withstand the variance. The other problem, though, was that 
you can only do this once on each account to where it's no longer – once you do that, it's no longer in an advantageous state. and You have to just quit no matter if you're up or down. So the only way to really get this done and give yourself the highest chance of success is to have a lot of people doing it and sharing bankroll. And that's what they did. So collectively – we talked about this on the previous show – Collectively, they won about $900,000, split up a number of ways. I, I don't know, probably more than 10 were involved. I think about 15 were involved or so, 15, 20 people were involved. But collectively, they, they won. Some people lost. Some people lost pretty badly. But as long as you're pooling your bankroll and you can trust everybody involved not to run off with it, then, uh, then there's a good chance you're going to finish ahead. Even though there's a lot of variance to it, the more people you add to it, because it's, it's very advantageous, like a uh, way over 100 percent. I forgot what the percentages were for the first time they did it, but way over 100, but, but with high variance to where if, the, if you run a lot of people with it, then you're guaranteed to be ahead pretty much. But you have to have a lot of people who have the bankroll to do it, are willing to trust you and trust everybody else in the group are able to travel to New Jersey or in New Jersey. So there's a lot of factors that make it tough to just gather a bunch of people to do this. But anyway, this guy, Jay, who listens to this show, he listens to every episode of Poker Fraud Alert Radio. He donated tonight $25 to the free roll. This guy, Jay, has written up on njonlinegambling.com, beat them for 900 k collectively, all the casinos, Jay didn't just do this himself. The whole group did. And some of the casinos paid up and some of them didn't want to pay and stalled them and they had to get New Jersey Gaming involved. But when it was all said and done, they got the money out of them. They, they got paid. And it didn't take that long. It's a little delay, but they, they got it done. So after that happened, you think that the New Jersey online casinos would be wise to this and say, okay, we screwed up. We put these games in a state where advantage players can take advantage of us, we're not going to let this happen again. What I remarked at the time about this Ocean Magic game is that Ocean Magic wasn't a secret. Ocean Magic is pretty well known by both advantage players and casino personnel to be one that is temporarily positive expectation when the wild bubbles are in those spots. There are some casinos even known to kick people out for stalking ocean magic basically and look for looking for only for games that are in that state not many casinos will kick you for that but i've heard stories of that happening so these are known these are this is a known advantage play machine when it's in that state so how they could put it in the new jersey online casino starting in that state at every denomination is crazy huge blunder on their part but you think after getting burned once Collectively for 900K, and by the way, Ocean Magic got removed from every one of these online casinos after it got taken like this. The funny thing is they could stop it by simply just not starting it in that state, but they decided they just took the whole thing out. So Jay actually found another one. He actually found another one. You'd think they'd go through them all at this point and go, okay, we got burned once. We're going to make sure none of these games that have these wilds that just stay there for the next spin... We're going to make sure none of them start in a state that someone can take advantage of. Well, they didn't. 
The reason I think they didn't, this, the, the, this was one called uh, Golden Egypt. And Golden Egypt is another one that's been long known to be a game that's in a certain state that's positive expectation. Just like Ocean Magic. A little bit different, but, but pretty close. Same thing with the Wilds and all in the right positions, all that. So Jay was going through the games and actually found that, that Golden Egypt was also in a, such a state where it was positive expectation. So the way Golden Egypt works, there, there's five columns and four rows, and then there's spots for coins above each column. And what you want is you want those coins on the top to be filled. The more coins are filled, the better state the machine's in. So if you were to walk by a Golden Egypt and all the coins are filled and uh, and, and there's nobody playing, you, you want to sit down and play it. So the more coins that are filled, the better. Well, what Jay found on this Golden Egypt machine was that uh, there were coins on uh, the second, fourth, and fifth columns. There's only one, though. One coin. There's, there's two spots for coins there. In the second, fourth, and fifth columns, there is one coin each. And the first and third column, there are no coins. So three coins total out of ten. So this actually is not enough. This is actually not enough for Golden Egypt. And the game would not be positive expectation in this state if you were to find this in a brick and mortar. And I think that's what they realized, or that's what they thought they realized when they placed it this way. Is that it, See, what this is known, you may wonder why are they putting these at all? Why, why are they even starting these machines in this state at all? This is what's known as seeding. Seeding means they're actually starting the machine in a good state, so the player initially does well, and then starts to lose. So you know, they can't fix the machines to purposely beat the player, but they can fix the odds to where you know, they, can, they can make it so they started in a more advantageous way at the beginning, giving the player a good experience at the beginning, and then make the player start losing, because, not make them start losing, but make it, likely they're going to start losing because it, go, it goes out of that advantageous state. So they tried this with Ocean Magic, and they overdid it to where these were actually all in a positive state to where people like Jay could take advantage of it and then just quit. With Golden Egypt, I think they believed they were being smarter by putting some coins there, but still not enough to make a positive expectation. The mistake they made was that some of these online slots actually have better paybacks than they do in brick-and-mortar casinos. Why? Because they're much cheaper to run. There's not any space taken up. There, There's nobody to pay to maintain them. To uh, uh, They don't have to pay for security. They don't have to pay for uh, the cashiers. They, you know, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of overhead they don't have when these slot machines are running online. There's a little overhead online, but nothing compared to brick and mortar. So they can actually afford for these machines to return better online than they do in brick and mortar. So apparently the Golden Egypt slot machines overall return only about 85 to 87% of the player, which is pretty bad. 
However, the return tends to be higher in the online version. And with these casinos in New Jersey, there's a law that they have to publish each game's return percentage. So Jay looked up, hmm, I wonder what Golden Egypt is returning online, and found that Golden Egypt online in New Jersey returns 94.2%. Well, that changed everything. Because now the machine is substantially better already than the brick-and-mortar version, and therefore the number of coins needed and the coins being where they are you, the standard doesn't have to be as high for how many coins you have to wait for before playing. Now, now fewer coins can push it to be positive expectation. So, Jay contacted his friend who was uh, good at calculating these sorts of things, someone with an, actuari- an actuarial background, and asked him to run the numbers. That if the machine is 94.2% and the coins are in these spots and and uh, et cetera, et cetera, what these coins mean, what it means. They calculated out that starting off the game in that state and running every single denomination there, that the Golden Egypt machine had an expected return of 106.9%, meaning a 6.9% player edge. Overall. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to win every time. That just means you have a 6.9% edge to win. 6.9% with a lot of variance. So Jay said, once we found that out, I called a bunch of my friends, all different people from uh, from the ones who played Ocean Magic, and we flew to New Jersey. Let's focus on that again. All different people from the ones who played Ocean Magic, and they flew to New Jersey. See, he didn't want to bring in the same people because he was afraid if the same people deposited a lot and started playing that the casinos might have flags on their accounts that they're only advantage players and to watch what they're doing and shut down the machines real fast. So what Jay did is get a bunch of other people to play it who were uh, not under suspicion because they hadn't done it yet. Jay actually mentioned this one to me. He didn't give me the details yet, but he told me he had another one of them. But I never followed up on it because I had not taken a flight yet. I told you guys that in early April I'm going to take a flight and see how it goes. But I I couldn't fly all the way to New Jersey at this point. I couldn't commit to that. And I was afraid that if I went forth to do this, that uh, Jay had actually suggested, why don't you take a flight through Phoenix and then see how the Phoenix leg goes, which is only an hour. And then if that goes well, then do the other four hours, you know, purposely schedule a flight that has a layover in Phoenix or in Las Vegas, and then if the first leg goes well, then fly the second leg. But what I was worried about is that the first hour would go well and then the, the second portion, which would be four hours, would be much tougher, and I wouldn't know this till I was already in the air and had no way out of it. So this is something I, I kind of feel like I've still got to build up to being able to fly across the country. So first I'm going to do this flight to Vegas, and then I might do a kind of a mid-range flight to Denver or something like that, and then try a big flight to the other side of the country. And if I can do that, I think then I can do anything. I think I could fly anywhere in the world at that point. If I can 
If I can be five hours in the plane, I have a problem. But going from one hour to five hours might be tough, even if the one hour goes well. So I just, as tempting as it was, I didn't want to chance it. I didn't want to put myself through four hours of hell. I figure with a one-hour flight, you know, how bad can it be? Even if it's very uncomfortable for me and if it's very difficult, I, I'm only stuck there for an hour. And then it's over. And I'll know that. I'll know I'm only stuck there for an hour. I'll know even if I'm having like a panic attack, I'll know that it's going to be over in an hour. If you got four hours, that's a long time to look at. So I, so I didn't do it. Otherwise, I would have been one of these people. Because he mentioned it to me. Anyway, they couldn't play this one as high as they could Ocean Magic. This one only had a $500 per spin maximum. Ocean Magic had a $3,000 per spin maximum, which is pretty damn high, as you might imagine. They also got sign-up bonuses, since these were new players, so that also worked into the equation. Gave them another edge. And they believed that for every player depositing 15000 on each of the six sites, that's still uh, 90000 deposited. you got to have a pretty deep bankroll to be able to do that. But uh, you can bring 90000 and deposit it to each of these six sites. Then Jay believed that the expected value for each person was about $25,000. So provided you could come up with 90K to split across six sites, then your expected profit was about 25000 So how did they actually do? I already told you, but let's think about it. They had 14 players, and they won $500,000. So they did better than expected. However, the reason for that was that they did get lucky on one of them, that on the first day of play... Someone playing the $500 per spin level, they hit a bonus that hits about once out of, out of every 600 spins. And they happened to get that at their $500 spin, so that earned them $130,000 right there. At that point, I bet the person wasn't very happy they were sharing their bankroll. But overall, about $500,000 is one. million was deposited total from these 14 players. About $1.76 million was withdrawn. He actually said the the net was a little more than half a million. So he did it again. Now, what happened after that? Did they get paid? Well, the hard rock was difficult, and they actually had to go to gaming. The accounts were held up, and they were told that they were being investigated, and they couldn't withdraw. So the players lodged formal complaints with the New New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement on March 19th and March 20th, and Hard Rock released the money. Interestingly, Hard Rock actually gave a comment to this website, New Jersey Online, NJOnlineGambling.com, they said, those players in question have been paid and we have no further comment. (laughs) 
They've been paid and we have nothing further to say. That sounds like an executive who's pissed. This was uh, Public Relations and Community Affairs Director Nikki Balls. Balls. I don't know. Balls? That'd be a good name for a girl. Balls. <laughs> B-A-L-L-E-S. Nikki Balls. Sounds dirty. The players in question have been paid and we have no further comment. The Department of Gaming Enforcement would not give a comment, so they did not say whether they had to force the Hard Rock to pay or if Hard Rock just voluntarily did so eventually. All the money has been withdrawn. There is no money held up at this time. The question is, will Jay find another machine like this? He's found Ocean Magic. He found Gold in Egypt. Now, I don't know if this is still there, but... According to this article, which is dated March 26th, just yesterday, according to this article, believe it or not, Golden Egypt is still in one place. It is still at the Sugar House Casino. So if you're there in New Jersey and you have an account on Play Sugar House or you just want to create one on Play Sugar House, you can do this too. Do it quick before they take it down. It might be down already. But as of yesterday, it was still there. I would do it myself, but I'm not there. But if you're in New Jersey or you're very close to New Jersey, you might want to create an account on Play Sugar House and deposit enough to where you can look at all the denominations. I think you have to have a minimum of uh, 500 to look at everything. Because it's uh, 500 to spin is the most you can do on that game. And I think to look at the game, you have to be able to deposit that amount. But uh, if you can deposit 500, you, which isn't that much money, you could go through and look at all the Golden Egypts and see if the, those coins are still there. And if they are, then yes, the game is in positive expectation mode. There is a chance you'll lose, but you'll be playing with almost a 7% advantage. And even more than that with a bonus. And you will get paid. Because it's legal to do this. And the Division of Gaming Enforcement can force them to if they won't pay you. So I would recommend doing this if you are in New Jersey or near New Jersey where you can go to Jersey easily and play on these sites. Of course, you have to make sure the coins are there in the second, fourth, and fifth spots over Golden Egypt. And if you want to figure out how to play Golden Egypt, it's just a slot machine, but how to recognize when to stop playing, you can just Google it. You can just Google Golden Egypt Advantage Play, and it'll probably come up. There's sites talking about stuff like this. So we'll see if Jay can find a third one. And at that point, I might be able to travel to New Jersey to take advantage of it. I have the bankroll to do it. I have the willingness to do it. I just don't have the ability to take the flight there yet. So once, ad- once again, that damn condition I have cost me money. It cost me money back in August when I, I couldn't, uh, or September, when I couldn't go there to redeem my free play. Go to Vegas. Now I can go to Vegas easily. All right, so I want to go to another topic here. 
and then we'll do the Lee Jones topic, and then we'll call Michael Joseph as our final topic of the night. Or maybe not the final, maybe the second to last. Maybe we'll talk about the sports betting thing, the sports betting uh, trailer action. Talk about that maybe as the final topic. Trade Risky still with us. I wonder if tea's getting, getting made here. Ah, I hear something. Trader Risky. Sounds like you're chewing crackers. No, no, I'm here. Sorry. Okay. Couldn't find the phone. But we did find there was a new improvement with Skype because uh, my dad called. I had to grab it real quick. And I was able to come back on. I wasn't able to do that with the old Skype. It well, was, it calls a disconnect, so I tested it. And oh, that good. worked. They're, they're slowly returning us to the old days. Okay, so I want to talk and about... I got third in the free roll, by the way. You, you got so third in the free roll? Coming. Oh, good. Okay, so the next topic is about tipping. About tipping at pit games. This came up because... I know somebody, not a close friend, it's just someone I know, who is a pit games dealer, not in Vegas, but at a different casino, but it can apply to Vegas too. This person was complaining that they dealt an $82,000 jackpot hand at some pit game. I don't know which one, it's not important. But it's one of those games where you're not risking a lot of money and you've got to very small chance to win some big jackpot, something like that. It's not like blackjack where you've got to bet big to win big. So some pit game where which had some kind of bonus bet where you it occasionally hits, and this person hit and won $82,000, and this dealer was tipped $500. Now, Trader Risky, if you were a dealer and you dealt an 82k jackpot hand and for that single hand, you were tipped $500. How do you think you would feel? I mean, 500 bucks. I, I think, you know, I don't think that would be too out, out of line. I, I'd be happy if I was a dealer. Honestly, I, I don't know. I've never been a dealer, so maybe, maybe I wouldn't be happy. But I, I think I would be because I see it a different way than a lot of people do, than a lot of dealers do. But... The way I see it is that the dealer is not actually doing anything to give people big wins. The dealer, they're just dealing cards, and whatever way the cards fall is how the players will do. And it has nothing to do with the dealer himself. It has to do with dumb luck. So just as I don't ever blame the dealer if I lose, and this includes poker too, I I see these Asians at commerce, these superstitious Asians at commerce go fucking dealer and throwing cards at the dealer and really cursing them out. And I feel so bad for the dealers because it's not their fault that these people got dealt bad beats. It's not their fault that the person's on a bad run. It's just the, the way the cards came out. But, but a lot of poker players, superstitious poker players, actually blame the dealer when they get bad cards. And on the flip side, they, they like the dealer when the dealer's dealing them good cards. But it's, it's all just luck. The dealer has no control over that either way. So I never get mad at a dealer if they're dealing me terrible cards, and I never think positively of them if they deal me good cards. Now, I'll notice sometimes, like that guy, uh, Shoeshine Box, who called into the show and told us about uh, the cancer he had and the operation and all that. He's someone that whenever he deals to me, I win. 
and it's just the way it's fallen. It, it maybe the next time he deals to me, I'll run horrible, but it just it's just kind of funny that when people deal to me who I know or listen to the show, I happen to do well. But I know this is just the way it's fallen. It's just random luck. Uh, so let's let's go back to the tipping situation. I have a call coming in, but I, I want to. I don't want to take the call right now. I'm going We don't have time because I want to get through this topic into the Lee Jones one. But what I feel about dealers is that. Yes, they, they are working for largely for tips. They're paid a fairly low base salary, often minimum wage. And they didn't take the job because it's a minimum wage. They're, you know, they might as well be working at McDonald's. Now, to be fair, a dealer is not an educated position. It's not one where you have to go through years of training or years of school, take student loans, uh, it, or have some amazing skill. It's something that is uh, kind of like a semi-skilled job that not everybody can do it, and it does require some training. But it's something that a lot of people can learn and doesn't take that long to learn and doesn't take that much skill to do. Some are better than others. There are some very skilled dealers who deal like really fast, and it's pretty impressive. But to the average dealer, it, it, it only takes a moderate amount of skill, a little bit, and, and uh, kind of you know some training, but not that much. That's the truth about the job. So I understand, though, that they take the job not to make minimum wage. They take it with the expectation that the tips are going to take them a good deal above minimum wage to where it's worth doing. And if you don't tip them, or if nobody tipped them, then they would only be making minimum wage. So I understand the reasoning for tipping dealers. There's some people who are on the side of you just never tip dealers. You know, the casino should pay the dealers better. The players shouldn't have to tip them. I agree with that, but the casinos don't pay them better. So if if you go play, it's it's expected that you tip the dealer, and that's fine. That's fine. But at the same time, there needs to be some realism in the whole thing, and that comes from the amount being tipped. So let's think about this here. What I think makes a lot more sense is to tip some sort of standard amount uh, on these pit games where you, you, know, you, you tip them every so often, every X number of hands, some flat amount. Maybe you put out a bet for them. Maybe you just give a tip when you win a hand, whatever. But, but some flat amount that isn't related to what you're winning. I can understand not tipping when you're losing just because it's kind of like adding insult to injury of your losses. It just feels weird to tip when you're losing. But people will temporarily win enough to where the dealers will get well-tipped if they're getting regularly tipped some kind of small amount as players play and win hands. Where my problem comes in is when dealers have the expectation that they're going to get a very, very large tip because the player happened to win a lot of money on that hand. It shouldn't be a percentage of what they win. Now, if the player wants to, that's great. If the player's feeling generous and wants to give a very large tip, go ahead. I'm not going to say don't do it. I'm gonna, it's your money. You want to tip large? Tip large. Great. Some people get caught up in the moment and get excited and want to share the wealth with a dealer who gave them the hand and they feel good about it. Uh, don't think, oh, no, Dan Druff said you shouldn't do it. Oh, if, if you feel good doing it, do it. But I'm talking about what should be expected, what should be 
what the dealer should expect and what you as the player should be would feel obligated to do if you're kind of figuring out what should be customary, what should be right. And where I have the problem is tipping on large wins, that it's expected to be some percentage. Now, you may say, whoa, 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 hang on here. What about poker tournaments? What about poker tournaments? You're expected to leave like 3%, unless it's already taken out from an auto tip, but you're expected to leave like 3% of, of what you win in the tournament, or what you cash, I say, not even what you win, to the dealers as a tip. So what about that? Well, that's different. How is it different? Because when you tip the dealers at the end of a poker tournament, provided, again, that it wasn't already taken out, let's say there's no tips taken out, and then they ask you want to tip the dealers, you should say yes and tip the dealers and tip them what the going rate is, which last I heard was 3%. And I have. When, when, when there's been tournaments I've played where the auto tip's not taken out, I think, okay, what's 3%? Okay, I'm leaving this much, and I leave it. But when you do that, you are doing it to tip all the dealers who dealt to you through the length of the tournament. Because if you cashed, you got through at least 90% of the field in most cases, or 85 at the World Series, whatever, got through most of the field. So you were there for most of the time the tournament was running. If you won the tournament, you were there the entire time. And throughout the tournament, the dealers are not making tips. You're not tipping on day one to the dealers as, you know, when nobody's cashed yet. You're not tipping them anything. So they're not making anything until the very end when people start cashing. So those that cash are tipping them for their entire body of work. All the dealers who've dealt to them, they're basically tipping at once. So that's where giving a percentage makes more sense. Because you're adding up all the hands together you were dealt during the, the tournament, and this is the tip for all of them. That's a different story. But we're talking about one hand here. We're talking about one hand where a fluke jackpot happens to show up. Should the dealer have a right to take to expect that you're going to give them uh, thousands of dollars from it? Now you may think, well, yes, because you just won eighty-two thousand. Of course, you can afford to give them two k or something, right? You still have eighty. What if they didn't deal it to you? You wouldn't have any of that money. So why can't you give them a little? They're, they're you know, they're, this is what they're working for. Well, the problem is most of the people who place those type of bets that will hit those bonuses are very negative expectation gamblers. Those bonus bets are a terrible value. Professional players typically don't make those bonus bets. In fact, even aware basic strategy type players, ones who like that particular game but will stay away from the worst odds bets, a lot of players who aren't advantage players understand that those bonus bets often have really, really terrible odds and will often have house advantages of 20% or more. So they just don't place them. I never place them. So the ones who are winning those jackpots, do you think this is their first day gambling? you think this is their first time in a casino and they just happen to strike gold for 82K? No. These are probably people who've gambled for years and placed a lot of really bad bets at very bad odds because they enjoy the thrill and the gamble and they've lost a lot of money in these casinos over the years. This 82K, the guy who won the 82K, he may very well be down Far more than that, not only lifetime, but even in the past year. So what this 82K is really doing is just bringing back some of the money the gambler lost at the casino. Why should the dealer care about that? Because this is what's even keeping them employed. 
The people keeping the dealers employed are not the advantage players like this guy Jay I just talked about. He's not the one keeping them employed. People like me are not keeping them employed. The ones that are keeping them employed are the recreational gamblers that are willing to take the bad end of it, the really bad end of it in some cases, for the occasional thrill of winning. And these guys are always going to lose. They may temporarily win, but they're always going to lose because they're taking the bad end of it so often and at high enough stakes to where they end up losing a lot of money. So when you see a person like that 182K, don't be jealous of them because they're way down. They're very unlikely to be up lifetime gambling even after that 82K. Now, if they win a massive jackpot like millions, then they're probably not down. But 82K, they probably are down lifetime. And if they're not yet, they will be. Let's say the 82K put the person up uh, 25K now lifetime. Well, that 25K is going to be gone after not too long. They'll be back down again, and they won't be hitting another jackpot for a long time, if ever. So you have to look at these people that way. Not, oh, wow, you just got 82K, but, oh, this 82K just softened some of the losses you've been taking that that are probably more than 82K that have kept my casino's lights on and able to hire me so I can make a decent living here dealing cards. Now, does that mean that you should get $5 from that? No. I, but 500 I thought, when, when this person mentioned it, I asked, I said, wait a minute, uh, I'm trying to understand, are you happy about this tip or unhappy? I was serious. I didn't. I thought maybe they were just happy they got 500 bucks that day. No, they were unhappy. They were pissed. They were very resentful towards the person who had only tipped them 500 And I thought, oh, this poor guy who won the 82K, he thought he was being generous. He thought he was being nice, giving 500 of it to the dealer. And then the dealer goes home and talks shit about him. He should have given a big zero. Honestly, if I'm going to tip someone anything and they resent me for the tip, I will have wished that I tipped them zero point zero. Like, seriously, if you're not going to be gracious about the tip I give, if you, if you don't like the tip I give, you hate me for the tip I gave, then I wish I tipped zero. A lot of times there's no way to know that until afterwards. Sometimes you'll never know, but they're just quietly resenting you. But imagine giving $500 to a dealer for one hand dealt to you at a very negative expectation casino game, and you're a recreational gambler who loses regularly. You give them 500 bucks, and they talk shit about you afterwards. Imagine how you'd feel. So... I didn't ask this person specifically, I should have, but I didn't ask them what would have been good. I should have asked that question, but I didn't ask it. But I, they did mention something about the 500, like that's not even 1% or 2%. So that's probably what they were looking for is 1% to 2%. They probably wanted probably 1000 minimum out of 82,000. 82, probably hoping closer to 2000 I posted this question on the Poker Fraud Alert forum and we got various answers. The funny thing is a lot of people came up with 500 without even having been told the story because I didn't I only told part of the story. I didn't tell them what was given yet and some said 500 is what they would have left. So they would have gotten the same treatment. Some did say they'd give like 
And I asked, wait, 3%? So you, re- you really would have given like 2500 bucks? And that person said, yes, when I go out to gamble, it's just a, just having a good time. I would have been excited and I would have wanted to share my good fortune. I, I didn't right, really- right, but they're saying that as if that's like the only session the person played. That person could have been there all weekend. He's down 60000 yeah, or more. Plus, he's getting ten ninety nine on it. That's right. You got to pay taxes on it, right? And then the, the, the right. other, and then, then there's the other thing I was going to say that, that you, what you were bringing up here. What what if he's actually down? What if he, what if he's actually? I mean, this is this is a person playing the bonus games. But let's let's put that aside. Let's say let's say someone is down a hundred thousand dollars that weekend, and then they win eighty two thousand. Uh, you don't know. Maybe they are. You 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 don't know their situation. They may actually just be down in the last few days that amount, that amount. So to you, it looks like they just hit a big score. In reality, they're just they're not even even yet. But but uh, it all goes along the same lines. That I don't feel the dealer has a right to have an expectation of one percent or anything like that on a jackpot hit. Now, if if they get it, great, great for them. If, if someone wants to give it, someone wants to be generous to the dealer, go ahead. I'm not discouraging that. I'm saying it's a difference between what you get and what you're expecting. I'll give you a good example. Uh, the free roll for Poker Fraud Alert. Do you, you know how much I expect all of you give? You know how much uh, I demand there must be given before, so I don't resent you guys? Zero point zero. Yeah, I don't, I don't expect that anyone donate anything here. All I would like is that you listen. If you also want to donate to the free roll, that is extremely appreciated. And I, I'm very happy when you do it. But I don't expect it, and I don't resent anyone for not doing it. When someone wins the free roll and says, hey, can you send my full prize to this uh, email address or Bitcoin address or whatever, and, and I send it, I don't say, what an asshole, he didn't roll some of it back. No. You want it, it's your right to take it, every penny of it. And I don't, I don't ever think that about anyone. So, as a dealer, I know it's different because you're, this is your living, and that it's known that casino workers work for minimum wage or very close to it, and expect tips to be able to make what they went into the job for in the first place. It's like a restaurant server; they're not there to make minimum wage, and so you can't just, if everything goes okay with a meal, you shouldn't leave a zero tip, or if, unless you're a jerk. So I understand all that. It would be nice if I, – I wish there was no tipping culture. I wish just everybody was just paid a base salary that was proper for what they're doing. I wish that restaurant service were paid more than minimum wage, uh, whatever would be the right rate to pay them, and same with casino workers. I wish everybody just made the right amount of money, and I was not expected to tip anybody, and we wouldn't have to have this discussion. It's, 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 and you know what? A lot of countries are like this. In Europe, they don't have tipping in most places. In fact, sometimes people from other countries will come to the U.S. and say, what the hell is this? <laughs> they think it's out of control. They think it's crazy. Uh, I, I wish that went away for reasons like this. Imagine giving $500. And it really them. should because you're basically subsidizing the restaurant's payroll. Right. And, and, and if the restaurant says, well, we can't survive paying them, that, well, then raise the prices. That's fine. You want to raise the prices to cover the higher weight? Do it. Do it, and then I don't have to tip, and it'll break out the, the same way. I don't need to see artificially low prices, and then I've got to tip uh, on top of that and, and, and raise the prices back. Just, just 
raise the prices the same amount that you're paying the employees extra to cover the tips they're not getting, great. Uh, then people may say, well, then how do you ensure you get good service? Well, if I don't, then I'll complain to the manager. The person will get fired or disciplined. That's the way I get good service. Uh, so, so you don't need tips to make good service happen. Uh, so, I mean, how do you, how do you ensure good service at any job? The same thing. If someone doesn't do a good job and creates a problem for you as a customer, you have the right to complain to their boss. It should be the same thing in a, what, what's now the tipping positions. And think about other countries where there's no tipping. You think you think service is terrible in England or other places they don't have uh, tipping traditionally? No, I, I bet it's the same. It's, it's just a different system, and, and their system's better. So I wish that was the case, but I know it's not the case here. And I, I since I can't change that, I can't force that change, I, will, I have to go along with it. I don't have to, but I, it's... it's yeah, you should if you don't want to screw these workers who are working for that expected wage. But at the same time, there has to be some sense to the whole thing. And if you're complaining about one single hand you dealt, that's the way to look at it. If you're a dealer and you're, you're not agreeing with me here, think of it this way. This is one hand you're dealing and you're getting a gigantic bonus over what you normally would be if you get 500 bucks. If the guy didn't hit the jackpot, he was going to tip you 500 bucks. He'd probably tip you, you know, if he won a normal hand there for some moderate amount of money he's betting he yeah i don't want to take this call here no calls right now i don't know how to stop skype from doing the stupid thing when i don't take calls the sound effects are so terrible on skype i wish there's a way you could just stop them Is this going to stop? And I think, and I think, if they have a relevant story to the topic, maybe they can text you before calling. Yeah, maybe yeah. Somebody could have some good stories. I just don't. I, one yeah. step clowning. Yeah, no, it's not one step. I think I know who it was there. But and and it's someone who's going to is not trolling here. But I just don't. We're about to move on to the Lee Jones topic because I want to get that done before we get Joseph on the phone. But I, I just think that this is something you have to look realistically. This is one hand you're dealt, and. One, one hand, you're dealing. You're getting a big bonus on it already. Way big. You know, you, almost that whole 500 you wouldn't have gotten if you didn't make that. If you didn't happen to deal a jackpot hand, you had no hand in dealing that. It just happened to fall that way. The you don't tip the players when they get clobbered. If someone loses a fortune at your table, you're not tipping them. So when you deal them bad cards, you're not compensating them for your bad dealing. Your bad card dealing, you're not doing bad dealing. The bad card dealing, you're not compensating them. So they shouldn't be compensating you for dealing them good cards. There, there should be some just basic level of tipping that's expected. And in addition, you're getting tipped on all the other hands too. This isn't like the poker tournament where at the end of the whole tournament, you're getting a tip that pays for the entire last few days of work. You've been tipped all the way up through this hand. And now you get this extra 500 on top of it. You should be thrilled. You shouldn't be saying, oh, like I got 82K. Why can't he give me 2K of that 500? What an asshole. You shouldn't do that. That's, that's being an ingrate. That's, that's acting entitled. And you don't know this person's situation. You don't know how much they've lost gambling. You don't know how much they've been down in the last few weeks or few months or last year. You don't know. But what you do know is they're playing a very negative expectation game that's keeping the lights on in your casino. And paying your, your salary. Allowing you to make those tips. So you got to keep that in mind and, and not have blinders on by the amount of money somebody is winning. You're not entitled to that because you happen to be the one dealing it. Yeah, and even during like that person's shift, 
how much, like, what is the positive that came out for the player? Well, right? so th- that even part- with the 82K, they probably still crush many players, and maybe the players were plus 10K, maybe? Yeah, that's, that's a good point that all the players collectively were, were yeah, probably lost a lot of that back. I don't know how high limit the game was that they were dealing, and I know the AGUK was like a jackpot hand, so if they probably, for, probably for quite some time at that particular table, uh, the players were collectively up thanks to that 182K, but I, I understand your point that, that, that the, the players are all collectively losing, usually there. And, and that, uh, the bottom line, it's just not, it's not your money to expect. And I think any, even a few hundred dollars you should be thrilled with. You should, you should look at it like, wow, I just got a few hundred dollars for one hand dealt, for one hand dealing of work, rather than look how much they got, they owe me more. It would be like saying the business you're working for is doing well, so now they owe you many times your salary for that. No, they don't. So if you happen to get lucky and deal a jackpot hand and you get temporarily a higher tip because of that, good. Take what they give you and be happy with it. Don't don't resent them. And some people have said, well, this is getting shared among all the dealers. Well, at this casino, it actually wasn't. But I don't think it really matters either way for this discussion. In this case, the dealer the dealers did keep their own tips at this particular casino. I know most of them don't do it that way. But even if it is shared, who cares? It's, it's the same point remains. In fact, if the tips are shared, I think it's even stronger point not to expect a huge tip because you're not going to see much of it anyway. You'll see very little anyway because all the other tables in the place aren't dealing these jackpot hands. So it's not really hurting you that much, and you shouldn't worry about it. But either way, it's, it's the same concept. That the, the bottom line is the player doesn't owe it to you. If the player wants to leave it, that is fine. So I want to talk about uh, Lee Jones now before we do the Michael Josem call. We've got about 23 minutes to that call, and these are two related topics. Lee Jones goes pretty far back in poker. He goes back to the 1990s. I'm not sure how old he is. I know he's older than me, but he's not a really old guy. Lee Jones goes back to the 1990s. He was playing poker in uh, Northern California. He was one of the posters on Rec Gambling Poker, that news group that was kind of the... It predated 2 Plus 2 as the main place that people discussed poker online. This was... Rec Gambling Poker existed even before the web existed. I don't know exactly when Lee Jones started playing poker. I do know that uh, cigarette smoke was bothering him, and he quit, the, he quit the game for some years. Not that many, but for at least a few years until they passed a law that made it illegal to have smoking in California poker rooms. And that brought him back to the game. In, I think during his downtime when he wasn't playing because of the smoking, he that's when he wrote the book Winning Low Limit Hold'em, which was actually about Limit Hold'em, and it was an introductory text. It's nothing you would read as an experienced Limit Hold'em player. Even, a, even an experienced recreational player, you wouldn't read it. But as a beginner 
To Limit Hold'em. I felt that was a good book to read, and it was actually recommended to me by somebody else who had learned from it. And I was told, you know, if you want to learn how to play Limit Hold'em, this is the this is a good book to read. So I bought the book. This was I, I bought the book in the year two thousand. I remember I finished reading it in, uh, I think, December of 2000. I think I bought it in October, kind of read it slowly. And I decided to finally play in January 2001. That was the first time I ever played Texas Hold'em was in January 2001. I played $3, $6 at The Hustler in Gardena, California, and I broke exactly even to the penny. That was my very first poker game. And that was with only with knowledge that I had obtained from reading Lee Jones' book. I had not played any poker in any form. I had played a little stud occasionally, like fifty cent one dollar stud, uh, in years prior to that, but like very very little. But I had never played hold'em in any way, shape, or form, even for free money, until I went to the Hustler that day in two thousand one. And that was really my start. Four and a half years later, I won a bracelet in Limit Hold'em at the World Series of Poker. And I also finished third that same year in Limit Hold'em at the World Series of Poker. I was a winning player by a wide margin starting in 2003 in Limit Hold'em. In 01 and 02, I think in 01 I... uh, I lost a little bit in 02, I broke even, something like that. It took until 03 where I really became a winning player. But Lee Jones was the one who got that all started. He, he didn't know it, he didn't know me. I read his book. Uh, the book wasn't perfect, but uh, I thought it was a, a very good introductory text to Limit Hold'em. And it taught you concepts like dominated hands and... Stuff like that. So I had the very basics, and then it had things a little bit past the basics, like, again, why playing King 3 offsuit is not a good idea. Uh, Most of the stuff that's in his book, which advocates a tight, aggressive play style, would still work in $3, $6 limit hold'em games today. The advice in that book would not work at the middle and upper stakes, but at, at the lower stakes where there's like tons of limping each hand and like limp, 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 limp around the, see the, the flop, then yeah, that's, the advice still applies all these years later. So I was surprised when playing Poker Stars in 2003, I showed up there in April of 2003, and I immediately started winning there. In Limit Hold'em. But I was surprised to see shortly after that that Lee Jones was the card room manager. Uh, originally, they were just carrying his book as part of their store where you could use your frequent player points to... You could only use it to buy prizes back then. You couldn't use it to trade in for bonuses. So one of the things that they made available was Lee Jones' book, which I didn't buy. I, I already had it, nor did I need it at that point. But so they were carrying his book, and I presume that was how they got to know him. But soon enough, he became the Poker Stars card room manager. 
so he was basically the decision maker for the operational card room there. What games are running, uh, what stakes are running, uh, what, what, what they'll do to cheaters, what, uh, the basic site policies are, uh, things like that. The tournament policies, just, uh, he, he was the, the manager of all the poker games. Lee Jones used to call you if you wanted to play the 100-200 limit game on PokerStars when they introduced that, which I think it was in 04, which was then the highest game on the site. And there was a concern that people would join it without the proper bankroll. So what Lee would do was call you up and have a discussion with you. Why do you want to play the game? Uh, what is your bankroll? You know, you know, are you aware of how much you can lose in these online games? Are you aware of how good the players are? Do you know you're going to be playing against the best in the world there? He'd almost try to talk you out of it. How did the call go with me when he called me up to talk about this? Well, it didn't because I am one of the very few who got into the 100-200 game on PokerStars when it first came out without receiving a phone call. They didn't tell me why. I mean, almost everybody got the call. They just granted me permission to play. My assumption was that I was probably the biggest winner on their 3060 game at the time. If I wasn't the biggest, I was probably like top three. I think I was the biggest, though. When they invented, when they brought out the 100-200... And that's why people knew me when I came to Neverwin Poker when it came up when it started in May of 2004. Is people watched Poker Stars and they saw just Dan Drelf was dominating the 3060 all the time. So that's uh, that's what if you've been watching Poker Stars, that's how you may have known me in those days. Nobody knew who Dan Drelf was. They just knew a player named Dan Druff was dominating the 3060 game. So I assumed that they just looked at my results on there and said, okay, well, obviously Dan Druff doesn't need to be asked all these questions. You know, he belongs in the game, so they gave me access. That's my assumption. Lee never called me. I was almost hurt, though. I kind of wanted to talk to Lee. Uh... But it, that was actually something interesting that PokerStars did. That was a kind of a responsible gaming sort of thing. And looking back on it, that was nice of them to do. And I don't know if this is Isai Scheinberg's idea, you know, the owner, or if it was Lee's idea. But Lee was the one who made the calls. And he became a very visible figure on PokerStars for years. And then he finally left there to go to Cake Poker, of all things. And you might wonder, why would he go to a fail site like Cake Poker if Poker Stars was so much bigger? Why would you ever leave the biggest site and have such a, a good position at the biggest site? He left there in, uh, in May 2009 to go to Cake Poker. 
Uh, or actually, I'm sorry. This is, I, I missed something a little bit. He was the poker stars. He was the poker room manager until April 2007. But then he began to work on the European Poker Tour, the EPT, which was run by poker stars. So it was just a different job in the same company. In April 2008, a year later, he left the EPT to work for Card Runners, which was a training site. And then a year later, he left Card Runners for reasons I don't know, and was the manager of Cake Poker. And people wondered why would he do this? Why would why would he leave Poker Stars in 08 to first go to Card Runners and then then leave Card Runners to go to the fail site like Cake? Which had some potential in 07, but by 09 it was already circling the drain. The thoughts were that, let's look at the timing here. In April 2007, that was only three months after Net Teller got busted and only six months after the UIGEA was passed in October 2006. So I think that Lee Jones was afraid he was going to get arrested. And I don't blame him. Like they, they were starting to come down pretty hard on anyone who was really on the operational side of these online poker rooms. So he was probably very scared he was going to get arrested, so he probably left that, went to go work on the European Poker Tour, which is the same company, but was legal, and then, for whatever reason, didn't want to do that anymore, moved over to uh, Card Runners, then, for whatever reason, didn't like that, and then probably noticed after two and a half years had passed since the UIGEA and they weren't busting any poker executives, even if they were in the U.S., then he probably said, okay, I guess it's safe to join these sites. So he joined Cake Poker. And he left Cake Poker in December 2010 saying that they had strategic decisions which, with which I'm not comfortable. Which and I'm pretty sure what he meant is that they weren't paying people. They were, they were already having cash-out problems at that point. A lot of problems with Cake by December 2010. That's probably why he left. He came back to Poker Stars in 2012 and that's where he stayed until sometime recently when he quit Poker Stars. It's not clear why or exactly when he left, but it was sometime not too long ago. I heard somewhere that it was about six months ago when he left. Maybe maybe Joseph can tell us when we ask him doesn't really matter that much. But Lee Jones was a pretty beloved figure in poker prior to joining Poker Stars in the Amaya ownership days. But once once Amaya took over and did a lot of unpopular things and unethical things, including like the Supernova Elite scandal, and they had some Scandals like on the European Poker Tour with the Barcelona Arts Hotel where rooms were broken into and Poker Stars was not very cooperative with helping investigate. Seemed to be wanting to cover it up. And and various other things Poker Stars did that were unethical, unfair, pro-unfriendly. And people would complain about it on 2 Plus 2 and Lee Jones would show up there and make excuses. And and he would do it in kind of a an aggressive like this is the way it is deal with it sort of fashion. And he he wasn't very transparent. He was always kind of evasive. 
he he would post in a tone where it would seem like he's answering everything, but then he's really not. And then when you'd bring up what he's either not being accurate about or not addressing, then he either wouldn't answer you or would give you kind of a, a snide response. So this rubbed some people the wrong way. And this started to change the public opinion of Lee Jones. He went from someone who was loved by most in poker to vilified by some. He was seen as, as part of the evil empire that poker stars was seen to have become. And soon it became anyone who was an apologist for poker stars and its behavior in recent years was uh, seen in a bad light by some people. That's part of the reason for a lot of the trolling Negranu has received in the last few years. Exact same reason. Uh, Doug Polk has probably had a hand in a lot of that happening, even though Polk didn't really attack Lee Jones from what I've seen. Polk kind of made it more fashionable to attack those who were apologists for the Amaya-run poker stars for their various antics. So a lot of people who post on poker forums or follow poker social media, a lot, I wouldn't say a majority, I don't know how many, I haven't taken this poll, but there's a lot who don't think very highly of Lee Jones anymore. So the question is, at this point, now that he's left, well, let me read you, I'll read you uh, his statement. He actually made a statement on 2 plus 2. And then once I read that, then we can talk about, briefly before we get uh, Josem on here, and then we can finish that discussion when Josem's on the phone. It won't be the first topic we talk about, but uh, we'll get to it for sure. Uh, This was discovered... Pretty recently, on Lee Jones' website that he had quit, it was leejones.com slash about, all lowercase, leejones.com slash about. It says, my name is Lee, and I've been playing poker for 35 years. I wrote a book called Winning Lulam and Hold'em back in the 90s. After many wonderful years at PokerStars, I'm happy to report that I'm no longer working for the man. No surprise, my love affair with poker is raging. I'm playing, writing, and coaching every chance I get. I'm excited to see what comes next in this adventure. So obviously that's saying he quit Poker Stars. Quit or got fired, I'm guessing he quit. Doesn't explain why, but just he's gone. So that got the attention. That's why the discussion has started on 2 Plus 2. So this is the statement that Lee Jones made. Apparently he was invited to the 2 Plus 2 thread initially and didn't want to come. And then he decided to show up anyway and make a statement. He said, Hi folks. Yes, I left Poker Stars at the end of 2018. Okay, somehow I missed that. I guess we know when he left. It was an amicable parting after an absurdly long and joyous run. I'm still working on poker projects. You'll be hearing more about those in the near future. Regarding the Supernova Elite mess in 2015, I can say this now. I had zero input into the decision. It was made well above my pay grade by a handful of senior executives. After the decision was announced internally, I was one of many people within the company who thought it was a bad idea, but that ship had sailed and we weren't going to change the outcome. By the way, just in case you don't know, this was where they greatly reduced the benefits of being Supernova Elite for the second year. It's like a two-year thing if you earned it. The second-year benefits were greatly reduced and people who had spent a lot of time and money earning it were furious, and rightfully so. It was a bait and switch. 
As a spokesman for the company, I had two choices. Deliver the company message as I was told or quit. As others in this thread have pointed out, this is the bargain you strike when you accept a paycheck from a company, particularly as a spokesman for the company. You cannot have a public personal opinion on matters which the company has a public opinion. Your public opinion and the company's opinion are identical. Quitting Poker Stars seemed counterproductive. I believe then and continue to believe that Poker Stars is good for poker. It has been the single-handed leader in the effort to combat Sheldon Adelson and return regulated online poker to the U.S. Okay, let, let's stop here for a second. So I have a little bit of a problem with this statement. Prior to Amaya taking over, I agree Poker Stars was very good for poker. They did a lot of great things for poker. Weren't perfect. They made, they made some mistakes. They did some shady things they didn't like, like the way they compensated you for your FPPs after Black Friday. Very unethical. But for the most part, they did a lot of great things for poker, and I won't deny that. Since Amaya took over, it's clear Amaya doesn't care about poker at all. Amaya is using poker for to, to get maximum profit, and they don't care what they do to the game. That's very clear to everybody. And this part where he says it's been the single-handed leader in the effort to combat Sheldon Adelson and return regulated poker to the U.S., no, that's not true. They haven't been the single-handed leader in that. And even if they had been, it would be out of greed just to make more money, not to help poker. Uh, really, the driving force to bring the few states on board for online poker that currently exist has come mainly from the brick-and-mortar casinos, not from poker stars. Poker stars just lack the influence. They just really don't have the power at this point to really influence U.S. legislation. So that's not even true. But if it were, that's just they're doing it for their own gains, not for anything for poker. So that's kind of a useless statement he's making there. He goes on to write, I think most would agree that PokerStars has the best software, game selection, security, and financial stability, e.g. Black Friday, referring to how they paid everyone on Black Friday. In my mind, the mistake of the Supernova Elite decision did not outweigh the good the company was doing and, of course, the value to me of continued employment. I think that's the most important part here. That's what you've really got to focus on, that, that one sentence. In my mind, the mistake of the Supernova Elite decision did not outweigh the good the company was doing and, of course, the value to me of continued employment. Really, what he's saying there is he had a good job, it paid him well, and he didn't think this was major enough to quit. It was something he disagreed with, he didn't like, but it was not major enough for him to get up and quit. And I can understand that, I can appreciate that, I can even kind of agree with that. If I were in his position, I would have had a hard time quitting over that, though I would have been upset to see that happening. I don't think I would have agreed to go out there and basically fight with people on 2 plus 2 and defend it as if this decision was fine. I know these were not his ideas. I know this was nothing he was happy about. Privately, he probably agreed with the players, and that's basically what he's trying to say here. But still, it was his name he put on the whole thing. And that's what has pissed some people off. But, you know, you can sit on your high horse and say, oh, I would have quit if this happened. But you can't really say that until you're actually in that position where you have a long-time job with a company that's paying you well and they do something you don't agree with, but it's not to the level of outright scamming or cheating people, just kind of unethical and unfair. And you have to say, okay, well, is this worth leaving? I'm going to be throwing away a lot on principle, and it's it's not so easy to do. If you if you have a ton of money already, yeah, sure, it's easy to do. 
but not if you're working for a living, as Lee Jones was. I'm not. To, I'm not saying that you should stay under all circumstances. I've criticized many people for staying with UB with Lock Poker and for putting out false messages on their behalf because they wanted a paycheck. And I thought that was horrible because they were basically promoting scams. They were promoting thieves. But poker stars, they're not scammers or thieves. They just screwed over some customers and did some unfair things. So it's very different. And I understand where he's coming from there. Though I don't think I don't think it has to do with the good the company was doing. By by the time that decision came up, it was a different company. It was a Maya. It was a completely different regime than the Scheinbergs, and they behaved differently. He then wrote, I was proud to work for Poker Stars and honored to share the journey with amazing colleagues. I am blessed to have a long association with the company and its people. As to my own actions over those 15 years, I, can, I certainly made some missteps and uttered the occasional nonsense. Cesc Lavie. However, for as long as I've been around the poker world, over 30 years now, I've done my best to make the game better and more fun for the people who play it. I felt the 2015 Supernova Elite decision was a poor one at the time, and still do. My then-manager and now director of and now director of poker marketing at PokerStars, Eric Holreiser, subsequently referred to it as, quote, a series of massive fuck-ups. But every company, every human makes mistakes. Any of us who ended our relationship with every company or person who made a mistake would be a lonely hermit. So I'm comfortable with the decision I made to stick around. Thank you to everybody who's made this ride amazing so far. I can't wait to see where it goes next. Regards, Lee. Well, this is more than just saying, oh, we're sticking with someone who makes a mistake or with a company that makes a mistake. I understand that. The bigger problem people have is not that he didn't quit. It's that he was defending this, that he was basically coming out and telling people they were wrong or minimizing their objections to this whole thing. And I know it was his job to do so. And I know he can't say, well, privately, I agree with you, but publicly, no, you're wrong. Like He has to just take one position. It has to be the company's position. But if you're going to take that job, you've got to understand there's going to be some hits to your reputation. And I think that's what Lee and some of his supporters are missing. But at the same time, it doesn't make him a bad person. It just kind of creates a conflict when your company does something bad and you're the one put out there to discuss it with people on forums and defend it, that puts you in a very awkward and tough position. And it can make good people sound bad. And that's what I think happened with Lee. He's not a bad person. And he's looking at it from the standpoint. He has to rationalize this to himself. And you see the way he's rationalizing it. Poker stars did a lot of good things over the years. And it's my continued employment. It's not trivial to just get up and leave. And the, the part about poker stars doing good things, that's how he looks himself in the mirror. That's how he says, I'm not just staying for the money. I'm also staying because overall they've done a lot of great things. So, hey, they made a mistake. It's like saying, um, you know, you don't leave your girlfriend or your wife just because she has some flaws or because she isn't nice to you on a particular day. Uh, something like that. You know, people make mistakes. But this isn't really people make mistakes. This is that he, it's now owned by a different company that, treats the poker community a lot differently than the previous regime did. And then they sent him out there to make excuses for them. So you, you can't do that. You can't take that paycheck and say, oh, man, why do you guys hate me? Well, that's that's why. But at the same time, you've got to be smart enough to look past this and say, look, this is the reality of life that some spokesmen for companies say things they don't personally believe. 
And as long as they're not promoting a scam, you have to look past it and not really hold it against them. So that's, that's the way I see it. And I don't have any problem with Lee Jones. If I were in his shoes, I would not have gone as far with the stuff he posted. I may have actually asked the company to get me out of that particular position of having to say that and maybe put someone else there to do it. I'd say, hey, can you transfer me to something else within the company? Because I don't want to be the one to have to say these things. I don't really believe in them. I don't agree with them. And I'm, I'd like to still work here, but I just don't want to put out that message under my name. I probably would have said something like that. But I can understand why Lee didn't. He just saw it as two separate things. Uh, he's the spokesman. He's got to say what they tell him to say. And as long as it's not something horrible, he has to say it as part of the job. That's the reality of life. So I don't really hold it against him. And there's people I, I know and respect a lot who think very highly of Lee Jones, say he's a great person. So I don't know him that well, but I'll take their word for it. I've got no issue with Lee Jones, and I wish him luck with whatever he chooses to do. And the truth is, maybe if Lee Jones did not write that book back in 2001, that I would never have gotten all that into poker. I can't say his book was the only reason I got into poker. I was actually told to read it by one of my friends who was very into poker at the time. And if there was no book from Lee Jones, it probably a different book would have been recommended. But I have to admit, I, I enjoyed the Lee Jones book at the time. I learned from it, and it made me excited to want to go out and play Texas Hold'em. And the rest is history. Okay, well, perfect timing here. We're going to call it Michael Josem. And among other things, I will ask him about Lee Jones. That'll be later in the conversation. So we're not going to jump right into that because that's not the most important thing by any stretch of the imagination of what I'm going to ask him. I'm going to be asking him a lot of questions about PokerStar security and what he did there and uh, various security issues that came up. And I hope by the end of the conversation with Michael Josem, you will have a, a better view of both his work there and the way PokerStars handled security matters. And I've been wanting to have a conversation like this with a PokerStars employee for a long time. So I'm actually excited about the call, and I'm very happy that Michael Josem wanted to come on this show. So let's see if we can reach him. <laughs> Michael Josem, hello. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. Good to be with you. I'm, I'm glad we connected finally, and uh, it's been a long time, and at the outset, I wanted to thank you for your steadfast commitment to doing what's right for players for right. however many years it's been since we first met. Um, I just want to say that uh, I really respect your commitment to doing what's good for, for poker players right across the world. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. It means a lot coming from you. I've always uh, had a lot of respect for you as well uh, since we met 11 years ago, and uh, you know, so, and I've you know, we've communicated over the years on uh, on social media, and and you mentioned you wanted to come on. I said, "Wow, that sounds like a great idea." And uh, it's funny, so I, I I don't ask many people to come on this show. Usually, when people come on, it's because they ask me. Usually, I ask someone only if like some incident has occurred. Like last week, we had someone on who who was falsely suspected of being the Bellagio robber and went through a lot because of that. Hmm. So so that was like a, a timely thing to get that hmm. guy on. But you like just someone where nothing's no event is happening with them. Someone like you, I, I just don't ever think of like asking them. And, and then I, I was 
concerned people are going to say no and I'm going to feel like I'm rejected. So I was like, you know what, I'm just going <laughs> to – if you don't ask anyone to the dance, you don't get rejected. So anyway, I'm glad to have you on here. And uh, so regarding the time, um, is it it's is it 720 where you are right now? It is. It is 7.20 in the morning, so it's a, it's a delightful morning here in the Isle of Man uh, where the sun is just beginning to come up and uh, it's a bit of a bit of a grey and overcast day. But, yes, uh, here we are. So far, Thursday is good. So, so why don't you explain to people first where is the Isle of Man and what is the Isle of Man? Sure. So, so geographically, the Isle of Man is essentially halfway between England and Ireland. Uh, so, so from the front of my house, you can see England and a little bit of Scotland almost uh, in the distance, um, because uh, you know basically on the eastern side of the island, um, and then to the west is Ireland, the, the Republic of Ireland, and um, and uh, and so we're right there in the middle of uh, of these isles, and uh, the Isle of Man is legally it's called a Crown dependency, so um, so that is it's not. Not part of the United Kingdom, and so and so you may be aware that the United Kingdom right now is going through a process of leaving the European Union, and so the Isle of Man is is technically not part of that, but very closely associated with it. So the analogy that I would make to an American is that the Isle of Man is more independent than Puerto Rico, um, but less independent than some of those Pacific island nations. Um, yeah, like, whereby... like, like American Samoa and ones like that. Yeah, exactly. And so that means that if you're born in the Isle of Man, then you would normally be a, be a British citizen as well, legally, but not part of the UK. And so in the same way that Puerto Rico citizens are uh, citizens of the, U, the USA, but not necessarily uh, – but then obviously Puerto Rico is not, as of today, a state um, – the Isle of Man is not part of the United Kingdom, um, and so therefore it has its own uh, own parliament, its own government, uh, which is which is you know not perhaps uh, fully independent in the way that uh, that we consider nation states elsewhere in the 21st century, um, but rather its constitutional heritage goes back to about a thousand years or so, um, when it used to be. Um, when uh, I, I guess nation states in, in Europe were a lot more amorphous and a lot more complicated, and so it was part of the the Norwegian um, hegemony, uh, and then for a while it owed some allegiance to Scotland. Uh, it was the subject of various battles between the Scottish and the English, and then since about the year thirteen hundred, since the thirteen hundreds or so, it has you know I, I would describe facing towards the United Kingdom and England. I see. So, and and uh, where were you from originally? So, I was born in Australia, um, and so grew up there for for a bunch of years. Um, worked for Poker Stars for my last three years there. Um, around the first time um, that we first met, and that was in the aftermath of the Absolute Poker and Ultimate Bet cheating scandal. Um, worked for there for three and a bit years, and then had the opportunity to move to the Isle of Man with Poker Stars eight years ago. Um, worked for Pokestars for a further six years, and then for the last two and a two and a bit years now, um, been uh, doing my own thing outside of the whole whole Pokestars world. And so, prior to to that, uh, were you a professional poker player? What were you doing before going to work at Pokestars? I played poker a whole lot in my spare time. In that, I was working for various members of the Australian Parliament uh, in the Australian House of Representatives, uh, and so. The members of parliament that I worked for were mostly rural 
members of parliament representing, you know, country parts and so uh, of, of the country. And so as a result, I was, you know, just playing a whole lot in my spare time. I never really had the, the self-discipline to become a professional poker player. Um, and one of the things that I really admire about professional poker players is that that discipline to get up every morning and to sit in front of a computer screen and to make decision, 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 all, all day. Um, and that was a, a degree of self-discipline that I never had. Um, and so hence uh, I was just playing in my spare time and uh, became somewhat interested in that. I think it was you and some other mem- some friends of mine who I'd known through two plus two and, and online forums and online communities had been uh, suspected of some misbe- uh, had suspected that there was some misbehaviour in uh, at Absolute Poker and Ultimate Bet and subsequently Ultimate Bet, um, and so I just happened to do a whole lot of data mining back in those days, and so I had a pretty pretty decent little record of the play of different players, and so used that to to prove that there was genuinely misbehaviour taking place at Absolute Poker. Now, were, were you uh, playing there at all? Did you get cheated yourself, or did you were just doing the, the data man, mining to uh, prove that this was going on? I only did the did the data analysis to prove that it was going on. In that, uh, ironically, I had had a, a, an account at Absolute Poker, uh, but but when I was at university, for some reason, the university firewall had blocked old, uh, Absolute Poker from working on my on our connection, and so they quite generously refunded my deposit, and uh, we weren't able to play there. Um, so, so I, I often wonder what would have happened if I had been a player of absolute poker. You know, yeah, I might have lost a couple hundred pound dollars, or you know, a yeah, few years earlier, and would have maybe given up playing poker entirely. But uh, as it turns out, um, we uh, just simply couldn't connect to the absolute poker server, and yeah, so that sort of saved me from the fraud. Yeah, maybe your uh, your university knew something you didn't. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe. So, so anyway, uh, so you you joined, uh, you started working poker stores what around oh eight oh nine something like that. Yeah, so it was the beginning of 2008. So, so the absolute poker issues took place in 2007. And then I started working for PokerStars in their game security team at the beginning of 2008. Moved okay. to Sydney. The big, the big smoke, as it were. Okay, so the, by the time you appeared on that 60 Minutes special, which was taped in the summer of 08, yes. uh, you were already working for PokerStars at that point. Yes, that's oh, right. So I, yes. so I didn't know that. Okay, so anyway. Um, uh, what what got you hired at PokerStars? Was it uh, it obviously wasn't any publicity from the sixty minutes thing because you were already working there. Uh, what what got you there? Did did you have any connections through the two plus two forums? How did you get that job? Sure. So I guess I became somewhat prominent in the online poker world in two plus two and elsewhere in two thousand and seven when that whole issue blew up around uh, absolute poker, and uh, and so. So I remember getting a message out of the blue from one of the senior leaders at PokerStars saying, hey, do you want to come to work at PokerStars? Have you ever thought about working on my poker? I replied, I, I should actually track down what that what, what, what the actual message exchange was, but I, I vaguely remember saying something to the effect of, no, never really thought about it. And then three months later, I moved to Sydney and started working for them. And so so in that intervening period, I had a, had a little bit of a chat with uh, Mark Scheinberg, who was... Um, I'm not sure what his job title at the time was, but obviously the um, the, the you know, involved in the founding of, of PokerStars, um, and uh, and so I think at that time, in fact I know at that time a lot of the early staff at at uh, PokerStars came from within that broader two plus two community, um, and also you know various other online poker communities, and so it was really staffed at that time by a whole lot of people who are deeply passionate 
for the game of poker. And so um, it was wonderful meeting various other people who were, you know, had I'd previously recognised from their activities in online poker. Uh, of You know, you might know of people like Terence Chan and uh, maybe even a guy by the name of Jeff Woods who were both very early active participants. I, I don't know any Jeff Woods. I, I, I knew Terence. Uh, I actually knew... Mm. My interactions with Terrence early was when I, he was one of the customer service reps I would go back and forth with when I was a player on early poker stars. And then, like there was a customer service rep Terrence and then just, and then I remember I even met him in person for the first time at a, at some poker stars event at the World Series early on when he was just an employee there. And then later on, then he started, you know, this guy unassigned appeared at the, uh, at the high stakes games on Poker Stars, and I found out it was the same guy. I said, "Wow, he he, he rose up from being a customer service rep to being a, a winning uh, limit holdem player. It's pretty good." So, uh, yes, the the I don't I don't know if this is the joke behind his user ID is that uh, unassigned was the name of uh, of the incoming queue of emails. And so that was, you know, whenever you uh, received the email, oh, really? it went into unassigned. <laughs> I never was... knew. I knew it had to be something like that. Yeah. I, I had a feeling yeah. it was some joke about him being an employee there or something. Like how they maybe just like, yeah. like he's playing on an unassigned account name. Or I, I thought it would be something like that. I didn't think it would be that about uh, the email. Now I know, though. Uh, so, yeah. So, you, in, in, so in 2008, you took the job. there. What was your title? What was your position? What were you doing then in, in the early days? Sure. So I think I think my on the on the piece of paper it was very I was employed as senior game security specialist or something, and then was very quickly promoted to uh, game security manager and senior game security manager um, over the subsequent twelve or eighteen months or something, and uh, and that was really about a focus on stopping players from getting cheated, and uh, and in that time, um, PokerStars had a very strong and active department that was. Oh, excuse me, which was focused on stopping players from defrauding the company, which was, you know, things like credit card fraud and, and so on. Um, and I worked in the team that was focused on stopping players from getting defrauded by each other. And yeah. so that meant, that meant stopping, uh, prohibited software. It meant stopping, uh, account sharing and multi accounting. Uh, and it stopped also, uh, collusion. Yeah. So-, so those, those three areas were the key. Focus. What what percentage of of actions that you took were based upon player reports to you versus ones you discover on your own? Uh, you you wouldn't have the exact number, but just roughly. Sure. So and so in fact, PokerStars actually released some data around this a few years ago, um, and they talked about and so and so I you know obviously I have a you know ongoing confidentiality of the company, so I can't release any you know private internal stats, but also we're talking about stuff that's 10 years ago now. Um, and so when I when I joined, PokerStars was very open about the fact that the vast majority of, uh, of, of collusion investigations were, were sparked by player reports. Um, and then by the time, you know, after about five years, so PokerStars had made, we'd made a very big investment in stopping that cheat or reducing that cheating. And so then, you know, five years later, it was the vast majority were proactive investigations. Um, whereas in the case of prohibited software usage, um, the vast majority was always in the case of of proactive det- detection. And so there was um, a distinction there that 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 players were much better, especially in those early days, 10, 12 years ago, were much better at reporting collusion than or identifying suspected collusion than than you know the operator was, um, and then. As we made us, as PokerStars made a significant investment 
in detecting proactively collusion um, that uh, flipped around. Um, but I still think that to these days, both player-reported collusion and operator proactively detected collusion both complement each other very well in that uh, I think that they work very well together in that I think it's very unlikely for any security system to have a have a um, a system that is a complete silver bullet and yeah, yeah, so I, I think therefore in that world you need a variety of different techniques to complement each other with these reports you would get uh there would obviously be gray areas where you'd have to f- figure out, you know, there's ones where there's a super obvious collusion and cheating, other ones which are just BS reports from people who are just losing and, and sore about it. Uh, then you have in the middle where it's it's kind of hard to tell. What was PokerStars, at least when you were there, what was your general uh, philosophy with that, with the gray area ones, uh, what would be done? If it, if it seemed like it kind of might be happening, but... Uh, it's not it's not certain what what was the approach then so i think that the num that the incidences of of cases where it might or might not be done might, where it was unclear if there was misbehavior were typically very very rare in that the vast first of all the vast majority of player reported cases were just weird stuff happening at sites and so so maybe this would not happen at high stakes play, but you know, at a, at a one dollar sit and go, some guy would see something weird happen, so and then instantly fire off an email to PokerStars saying there was collusion. When in the vast majority of cases, um, that simply was not the case. Um, there was you know no relationship between the players to the first tournament they'd ever played together. They, you know, you know, some guy had, you know failed to call it what what would be to you or me an obvious all in shove, for example. Um, and so it would just be players doing dumb things. So the vast majority of cases were that. Of those incidents where there was misbehaviour, um, there were also a a bunch of of cases whereby the the offenders were 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 not necessarily malicious. Um, and this again often would happen at very low stakes, whereby. You know, two friends would be playing together. They wouldn't necessarily be, have any evidence that they would be revealing their cards to each other. But you could imagine a situation where, you know, two friends, one is on the small, happens to be on the small blind, the other is on the big blind. The, the guy with the small blind, you know, goes all in for his last few chips and then his associated mate just folds out of the big blind. Um, a lot of players, so especially those who are new to poker and especially those who are playing at low stakes would or might fold to their their friend and therefore keep their friend in it. And so because they didn't realise that failing to eliminate their their mate actually caused harm to the other participants in the in the in the um, in the poker tournament. And so in those cases, which I think is somewhat similar to your you know grey area colluders, um, we found that the vast majority of them were non malicious, and so we just simply stopped them from playing together again in the future. Um, and that is, I think, a really important part of any justice system, whether it be in the online poker world or whether it be, you know, in the real life world, is to figure out if the offender, if the misbehaviour, once you figure it, once you realise that there's a breach of the rules, you need to, it's really important to figure out whether they are malicious, that is, they are evil, or whether they are non-malicious, they are just idiots doing dumb things. And so that differentiation, I think, was really important to having an effective justice system there. 
Um, one that came to mind, I don't know how much you can talk about it, one that came to mind where I, I didn't agree with the ultimate uh, decision by PokerStars, it was, was the stocks trader scandal, mm. where he and, and another guy named Rob Papp, who uh, th- they were accused of colluding with one another. I actually met them both. I'm, I'm one of the few to in poker to have met them both in person. It happened to be at uh, St. Kitts at a tournament that we all got uh, buy-ins into. And I had played with them a lot on a different site. But uh, but in, in 2010, I believe, there was a scandal which eventually kind of ran Stock Trader out of poker that he, that he was accused of, of um, not only multi-accounting, which seemed very clear that he did, and, and colluding. And the colluding was the part with that guy, Rob Papp. Uh, what, what ended up happening to my memory was that uh, they got to keep their money but were asked to leave the site. And I had thought but, – but I had seen like a lot of – Evidence poker to posted to two plus two, which seemed fairly strong that they had actually soft played one another. Uh, yes. and, and so, yeah, so, so look, I, I remember that case and, yeah. and PokerStars, and you know, I think I wrote a lot of that public that material that was published at the time, and I was very involved in that. And so, there were, and so that might be one of the you know, I, I don't want to quote a number, but one of a very small number of cases over the years where whereby there was a um, uh, one of these gray area ones of, of maliciousness. A gray area cases of maliciousness. And so there were two separate issues. Um, there. One was the multi-accounting. And as PokerStars said at the time, um, and I, again, this is only going from memory, I only remember what was written, you know, now, now seven, eight years ago, is that, yes, there was multi-accounting and appropriate action was taken there. Uh, I forget the punishment, but I, assu- I assume that it would have been, you know, some sort of restitution or some sort of disqualification of the um, offenders. Um, and then in the case of the collusion allegations, um, I think it was our, uh, Noah Stevens-Davitz, and I don't, I don't know if yeah. you know him personally. Yeah, but, it, it, uh, it was um, him, yeah. Yeah, a really high-integrity man, um, did a huge volume of statistical analysis that that was, was certainly very persuasive. Um and uh, and so I guess there are two issues there. First of all, if a site operator is going to confiscate money from and, and to apply a harsh penalty to its um, to a customer of his, they need to be very confident and very certain in the rightness of their their actions. In that, while you or I as Honest and you know well-behaving customers have an expectation that that pun- that offenders be be disciplined appropriately or deterred appropriately or punished appropriately. Um, in all of these cases, it's really important to uh, allow and to respect um, that the alleged offenders also have rights as well. And so, just as in uh, you know in real life, as I, as I put it in inverted commas, you know the the offenders have a have a right of presumed innocence. If an operator is going to confiscate money from an offender, um, it needs to be similarly confident, you know, and 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 I forget the standard of proof exactly, but something along the lines of uh, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt that there was misbehaviour. And so that's where that was the case. There were very few of them over over my time where, you know, we poker stars publicly acknowledged that, uh, you know, there was a potential for collusion, but in, in PokerStar's view at the time, there was insufficient evidence to prove that. And though, you know, there needs to be, you know, the, the standard of proof that they sought at the time was something higher than, you know, a higher or lower 
you know, three bet bet percentage um, when you're playing with your mate at the table um, or whatever the other statistical anomalies were in that we wanted to, you know, Pokestar's expectation to that time, and, and I assume is still the case, is it really needed to be some sort of smoking gun evidence, some sort of, you know, and you know, not necessarily smoking gun, but at least evidence beyond a reasonable doubt before you're going to confiscate a um, money from a customer. So, so and I think that, so, that sort of protection is really important for players to that they they not be wrongly accused. Well, yeah, and, and so so the so the middle ground then is to just uh, boot them off, but but not take their money. Let them just uh, cash yes, out, but not come right. back. Yeah. Uh, yeah. so, and, and so there wasn't that common that that solution was applied where they were, they were told you can have your money but just leave. That was very unusual, yeah. Okay, uh, it's it, it's interesting. So over other sites, which I know you can't speak so much about, as you didn't work for them, but uh, I noticed Full Tilt was more aggressive with the confiscations, and uh, and I know and I was even once almost a victim of a BS confiscation in two thousand seven by Kate yeah. Poker. Who mm-hmm. uh, um, one guy was? I, I've told the story before here, but I, I don't know if you've known it. There was there was a, a guy who had won seventy five thousand dollars in a, a a promotion there, uh, just a recreational player who wasn't very good, and and he took that seventy five thousand and he went to go play fifty one hundred limit hold'em, and so he he was playing against me and one other guy three handed. Um, that, that does not sound like very good game selection, yeah. by the way. <laughs> and so so me and the so me and the other guy are playing three handed. And this guy was getting killed. Both he was both running bad and playing bad, so it was a bad combo for him. I was running great, and and the third guy who was a pro there, he just he wasn't running that well. He was kind of breaking even just because the other guy sucked so much. But but anyway, what what happened was the other this 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 fish in the game. He also was uh, very anti-Semitic, so he didn't know who he was playing here. We didn't have familiar names. You could change your name all the time on Cake, but he. He just he was talking. He was making all these anti-Semitic comments about the Jews are stealing his money, the Jews this, the Jews that. So just to antagonize him, and I'm also Jewish, so I thought this is especially yeah. appropriate. So I started antagonizing him, typing things like Israeli power and stuff like that whenever I'd win hands, and and this would uh, get him further enraged. <laughs> and, and then you know yeah. I'd talk about how this is going to the you know, the money I just won is going to the uh, the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, and I'd, I'd say things just to tilt him further. Well, the problem. The problem was, and then the other guy started saying this too. The problem was, he really came. The guy lost a fortune. That was one of the best, <laughs> as far as big bets won. I, I won sixty-two thousand dollars at a 5100 5, limit hold'em game. I've, I've, I've never had anything like that in in, in bets won in a single session. I, I never will again. That, that's it was the combination. The guy was awful, and I ran super well. So anyway, he couldn't believe he lost everything there. Or lost almost everything. I think he lost them before there, but that, that was it. He busted all the money. So he wrote a complaint to Cake Poker, and said that two Jews were colluding to take his money. <laughs> and and the problem was they went and reviewed it and saw these Israeli power comments and stuff, and they thought that maybe maybe this was true. So the pro- and then uh, it was only one guy doing security there who wasn't very smart. And I, and I kept telling him, look at the hands. I even offered him to go post them all to two plus twos. Uh, uh, high stakes limit hold'em for him and let the players decide and, and I'll abide by their decision. I said, you won't be able to find a single hand where there's any kind of collusion going on. Uh, the only thing that will be seen is that you know me and the other regular uh, knew he was a fish and, uh, and, and so we would uh, play him that way, but we weren't staying out of the way of each other and we were playing each other very hard and we weren't sharing whole cards and you won't find anything that shows that. And so 
I had $46,000 confiscated by the time this came. It was like a week happened, so like there was a week in between, so I had cashed some out. But there's $46,000 left. They, they confiscated and told me there's no way I'm getting that back. And I was just about to raise a huge issue about this online when that I, I got an email saying we've decided to release the funds. And, and I got it back, and which is fortunate because about a week after that, the absolute poker scandal happened. The, 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 a week later is when there was the first suspicion about the gray cat thing on there. So nobody would have cared about my situation with cake poker with all that going on. There's, that would have been drowned out. And that's uh, so. But anyway, I I can relate to I can relate to what you said there because I was almost a victim. And it felt helpless because I knew I had done nothing yeah. wrong. I played an honest poker game. I wasn't colluding with the other guy whatsoever. Uh, but but I. I I played an honest poker game and I was about to have $46,000 confiscated and I was going to have no recourse other than trying to uh, shame them online for it. So, so I can understand that. And I also knew someone who I think got money confiscated from full tilt that, uh, that probably wasn't correct. Uh, so I, I can, I can, yeah. I can appreciate that. I, I will say, I'll still say yeah. in my opinion from the, uh, the thing with, uh, with stock trader, if I, if I was there, I probably would have made a different decision and confiscated it. But, uh, but I can, I can understand and respect the, uh, the, the approach of as far as confiscating money that we, we need a pretty high standard of proof to actually do that because otherwise it's, uh, it's really horrible. It's worse to confiscate money from someone who's innocent than to not confiscate money from someone uh, who's guilty. Exactly right. And I think there's a very different philosophy there in the PokerStars operations at that time, 10 years ago, as it was to, you know, Full Tilt or or, uh, even Cake Poker, in that that while people joke about the Isle of Man, which is now the place that I call call my home, um, the Isle of Man is fundamentally, it's a legitimate jurisdiction. It's fundamentally, it's a legitimate operation. Uh, You know, it has an independent democratic, you know, government has an independent judges it has you know a legitimate law law um rule of law uh, whereas realistically the places that apps that that cake poker and absolute poker but also full tilt poker were operating from were not so rigorous in their customer protections um and so i think the isle of man as a as a jurisdiction is really the standout global online gaming jurisdiction um, and it's a world ahead of, you know, these shonky operators, whether it be in Malta or Alderney or or elsewhere. Well, I've, um, I've got a question and, related to that then. Yeah. Um, has, yeah, sure. has someone made has, – have, have there been cases where people have made a complaint to the regulators of the Isle of Man about something PokerStars did where the Isle of Man actually ruled for the player and against PokerStars? Yes, absolutely there is. And uh, and it's funny you should mention that because late last year and this is here's some actually here's some breaking news for, for oh, poker wow. fraud pokerfraudalert.com. That's the right word phrasing, right? Um is that I submitted a, a freedom of information request to the Gambling Supervision Commission uh in the Isle of Man on exactly that issue. Um uh, looking to obtain information on on how many initiated were uh, how many disputes were initiated by customers against operators and so and so as of um late last year i i uh, obtained a response to my freedom of information request and and so they had um three different categories um of 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 complaints that they handled and so and so this this data which has never been published uh, before anywhere in the world 
found that this is for the last full calendar year. So from April 2017 to March 2018, they received 125 um, complaints from players around excluding crime. Uh, it's a broad and generic title, but around excluding crime, they received 125 complaints and and they resolved all those complaints. And of those 100, 125 complaints, the 13, so just over 10%, were found in favour of the complainant and about 70, uh, what's it, 60%, so 72, uh, were found in favour of the operator. And so, you know, there's a, that shows that, that a chunk of the time they were finding in favour, um, of, of the complainant. Interesting. Around issues of, uh, fairness in gaming, they had 134 complaints that year. Um, and this, they balance, it balance, and this is quite surprising to me, almost evenly between, uh, finding in favour of the complainant and finding in favour of the operator. And they found 16 times in favour of the complainant and 19 times in favour of the operator. So what that shows is that when a, uh, a customer was complaining to the Gambling Commission around fairness issues, 16 out of the 35 times where they found in either direction, uh, it was in favour of of the complainant, which is almost half. And given that, you know, fundamentally most of the businesses are, you know, fundamentally upstanding and, and fundamentally honest, um, I think that's a remarkable vindication for their efforts on behalf of customers. You know, I never, I really never thought this was possible. I just always believed that any of these uh, small governments regulating these online poker sites, that there was really no use complaining. I, I so I, I actually would have submitted a complaint, not about the gameplay, but about the way they compensated the uh, the frequent player points back in 2011. I know that wasn't your area, but that was, that was one area where I personally uh, took a hit and I, I didn't feel it was fair and I, I actually would have submitted a complaint had I known that that was even possible. I had no idea that Isle of Man really does take these complaints and, and decides uh, decides these matters. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, look, it is just a legitimate operator. You know, I've met a bunch of the regulators over, over my my years. You know, both through work endeavours, but also socially. You know, and the fact that the Isle Man is not the world's biggest place. It's about eighty five thousand people who live there, um, and so meeting them through various local community events, um, as well as through work endeavours, and uh, you know, they take their job seriously. Um, and and you know, I I respect a lot of the work that they do, which is very much focused on on the idea around what's fair rather than some of the technical rules breaches that I, you know, I see some of the silliness happening in the US whereby, you know, operators, but also customers, you know, uh, are being treated to relatively, I don't know what the right word is, but bureaucratic decisions about, you know, technicalities rather than simply what's, what's fair here, what's fair for the customer, what's fair, fair for the, um, for the operator. Yeah, yeah, that, that's good. Yeah. I, I've got a question regarding the uh, catching software that uh, prohibited software that I don't know if you can answer. I know you're, you have the confidentiality agreement, and I don't know if you can answer, but this is something I've wondered for many years regarding Poker Stars, and you can answer what you can and whatever you can't. I understand. Uh, I I had always wondered how do they catch this without taking a look at processes running on the computer. And that it becomes a slippery slope because it's easier to catch prohibitive software if you, if if PokerStars does take a look at what else is running at the same time and be able to harvest that and then 
catch whatever shouldn't be going. The uh, the, the downside is is a privacy violation if uh, things are running in the background. People don't like the idea, especially those who play running porn in the in the background. Uh, they they don't like the idea of the poker site spying on them. So I had always suspected that uh, poker stars did have some kind of visibility into the processes running on the computer outside of the PokerStars client, and that's how I was catching some of the prohibited software. Uh, do, do you know or can you say anything about whether this was going on? Sure. So so PokerStars, when I was working for them, um, put together a, um, a wonder, uh, quite a decent video series on, and I assume it's still on YouTube, called Inside PokerStars, where they talk about this, this sort of issue um, in quite significant depth. Um, and so their broad strategy was about, first of all, figuring out um, whether they had a broad strategy. Was first of all, figuring out, again, like before, figuring out whether offenders were malicious or whether um, effectors, um, uh, offenders are non-malicious. And so, and so they say very openly on their website today, uh, is that they look to see if any prohibited tools or services are running on a player's computer. And so, and so I have not worked in the PokerStars game security team now for uh, six, six or seven years now. So I, I cannot speak, and so I'm completely ignorant of, of what their, their specific detection methods are today. Um, but... Certainly on their website, they are quite openly say that they look to see if any prohibited tools or services are running on a player's computer. And so you can, you know, I think you can accept Pokestar's description there at face value that they are looking to see if prohibited software is running. I see. Um, and, That's and funny. So, I, I never saw that before. I, of course, I haven't been able to play there for uh, for eight years now. Sure. But, but, okay. Yeah, uh, so they, they say openly, they look to see if any prohibited tools or services are running on a player's computer. And so that that's the, I guess, the first step. And so players will experience that today if they, you know, run, uh, for example, an, an outdated and prohibited version of Poker Tracker, for example, in that, uh, you know, players report every every few, every from time to time that uh, if they um, are using an old version of Poker Tracker that doesn't conform with PokerStars' current rules, that they will receive a, you know, a pop-up notice saying, hey, you're running Poker Tracker, this is prohibited, knock it off, fix, you know, update it. And so that's a good case of a of a non-malicious sort of uh, behaviour by a customer. Um, and then there's also more um, extensive um, efforts whereby customers will take affirmative efforts to to evade detection. And so again, when determining whether an offender is malicious or non-malicious. Um, you got to really figure out whether the customer a knows that they're doing something wrong, and b actually causes harm to other people. So, for example, again to take a hypothetical made-up example, if some random guy playing a one-dollar sit-and-go for his first, you know, maybe a month month into playing poker, downloads some software that's called Poker Pushbot or Poker Easy Folder or whatever, um, that. Actually, Poker Pushbot is not a good example because that's actually permitted, uh, permitted software. But if someone just runs, you know, some, you know, some pre-flop auto folder, for example, without any effort to hide it, um, that could very well be an indication that the player, although they're breaking the rules, they're doing so without realizing what the rules are. And so that's a good example of someone who, 
who should be educated rather than punished, um, as opposed to someone who's running a, a complicated setup to try and hide um, their bots from detention. So I'll bring my next question here. Um, I know there were bot rings over the years that have uh, that have been busted on poker stars and that their money's been confiscated. But there's there's been a, a long concern about bots on these online poker sites, and and I know Poker Stars has been trying to combat them. Uh, how big of a problem was it on Poker Stars with, with bots? And uh, do you think there's ones that are good enough to avoid detection? That uh, I know there's various ways to detect them by their their patterns, their their mouse moving patterns, their their betting patterns, their their statistics with 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 how they play, but uh, if one is designed well, first of all, how how big of a problem was botting in general? Second, if they're designed well enough, do you think that uh, they could evade any detection? So one of the challenges in answering your question is that it is somewhat uh, somewhat truistic for what I'm about to say. So forgive me for that. In that, obviously, PokerStars does not know about the bots. It does not know about. Right. So, yes. so in that world, you know, the, they only know about the bots that they, you know, the, the bots that they know, the bots that they take action against. And, and so one of the things that I think that is limiting there is that it's, it's difficult to know what crime, what, you know, what offenders are getting away. And, you know, to make a real world, real life example, it's difficult to know what offenders are getting away if you, if you cannot have any evidence of the underlying crime. And so there is always going to be a degree of, of limitation in what we can talk intelligently about this issue of how many, how many innocent people there are. Um, because in distinct from most real-life crimes, it's in, 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 in most real-life in, instances of, of outside the online poker world, if there is a crime that takes place, if you know that if someone gets killed, even if you do not know who the offender is, at least you know someone got killed, right? Um, and so in that world... Uh, in the online poker world, in a bunch of these cases, there is no evidence of an underlying crime because if there was, you could clearly identify that there was cheating and therefore take action. And so with, with that limitation, one of the things that that uh, I was always impressed by the t- people that I worked with and the, and the staff that I manage is, a, is in an ongoing improvement. And so imagine a system whereby you catch zero bots on day one and you catch two bots on day two and then you catch two more bots on day three and then on day seven you catch four more bots Um, that to me implies that that system is detecting and improving um, its detection of, of offenders in that the fact that you didn't catch all the bots on day one you know, is unfortunate, of course, but the fact that you're going to keep on, um, you know, playing essentially what is essentially a game of whack-a-mole, um, whereby new offenders are always going to pop up, um, and so if the on if the poker site, and this applies to any poker site, whether poker stars or elsewhere, is catching zero zero offenders, then yes, that would be evidence that you know, or at least be strongly suggestive that there is. You know, there could be uh, offenders getting away. It could also mean that there simply just aren't any bot users there. And so an important part of a lot of this poker security stuff, especially when it comes to detecting the the malicious, the evil, the bad guys, 
is not that you need to have the perfect security system, um, but the metaphor is you don't need to be the fastest zebra in the herd as long as you're not the slowest. And uh, and by that I mean, you know, think of it from the view of a prospective uh, online poker bot operator. You know, there's no point. You just have to. You, you, there's no point challenging yourself against the toughest security system. Um, it's much more in their interest to play against the weaker security systems. And so, in that sense, um, I think there's an ongoing challenge for online poker sites to keep on working and to keep on learning and to keep on investing and keep on growing their services. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, from their point of view as individual operators, all they've got to do is to be good enough to deter. Most of the poke, most of the bot operators to go somewhere else. Yeah, and I understand that. What, what I was more referring to is, I guess, more of a theoretical question that, you know, from what the operator would see uh, from the bots they're catching. So there's there's obvious ways of catching bots. You know, for example, a, a stupid person running a bot would just have it uh, always play the identical way uh, to, to where it, it doesn't deviate at all, and you. Uh, and always has the identical timing in how it acts, and the, you, you put all that together, it's a very, very obvious bot and, and easy to catch. But, uh, as, of course, as those get caught and they, and they learn, the operators of bots learn how to avoid detection, and they start throwing in different characteristics of these bots that make them more human-like and make them more variable in the way they're behaving. Uh, at some point, it can start to be so hard to detect that aside from maybe detecting it at the process level on the computer that's executing, that short of that, they might be able to play and move the mouse and everything else in an identical fashion to what a human would do, or at least identical to where uh, it would be too hard to detect for poker stars. Now, I know what you're saying, that if they don't catch them, then maybe it's just not happening. But I, I would think that maybe as they see them evolving that they go, wow, this is getting really tough to catch. This is getting, you know, yes, we found this small idiosyncrasy here that's pretty much impossible for a human to act this way. So if it wasn't for this, though, we wouldn't have been able to catch them. So, wow, if they can just kind of get past this thing uh, and, and make it more human-like, now we're never going to catch them. Has there been that type of discussion there? Like, wow, this is getting pretty advanced. This is getting pretty hard to find. And I understand your point that even if that is true, that maybe they're going to say, wow, poker stars, they always seem to be catching us, so screw it, we're going to go hit some other site. But uh, but putting that aside, uh, is is it ha- have they advanced to the point where it does seem like it's getting very difficult to detect them? So I agree with the premise of your question that that online poker bot operators will get better over time, and that they have more time to learn and develop and so on. But that also is equally applicable to online poker operators, and and in that sense. The, there is a constant evolution. There's a constant cat and mouse game. There is a constant battle. There's a constant challenge between both sides to improve their efforts to avoid detection. And so I'm very confident that it's a lot harder today to detect a, a high-end, sophisticated player bot today than it would be in 2009, and that, in, that would have been harder than to detect it in 2004. But in addition to the online 
poker bot operators getting better over time the online poker operators are also getting better over the time in that they have you know they, they also learn from each of those cases they look to see hey could we have detected this bot earlier what are the other telltale signs that we might be able to identify um, and they make an ongoing investment in the um, in the security of their systems and so you're 100% right that it's harder but but in the same sense it's you know if you think of the natural world there is a an, you know, a, a lion in, as of today, is I'm sure a far f- more efficient predator than than a lion of 100 million years ago or a predator of 500 million years ago. In that, yes, their fl- their their prey is certainly getting faster and smarter, but so is the predator. Uh, and so, in that sense, there's a constant cat and mouse game, uh, which has the effect that organizations which is you know like are, are able to to learn i think a lot better and over a long lot longer time frame than individuals than any individual bot operator is essentially starting not necessarily from scratch and that they can look at what previous bot operators have done but there's a lot more you know by its very nature institutional memory in an institution than there is in any one individual and so and so you're right that that it's hard to detect bots, and it's, I'm sure it's harder to detect a bot in 2009 than it was in 2005. But at the same time, the tools available to online poker operators are also growing. It's a constant battle, um, and that's why I, you know, I hope that, you know, now that I've left PokerStars a few years ago, I hope that they are continuing to invest in those um, technologies, especially in the world of, of increased mobile devices and increased. Um, uh, what do you call it, HTML clients and all that sort of stuff. With the the bots that existed that you were involved in, in catching, uh, what what, comp- what countries were the ones most responsible for those bots? Well, I don't know if that's a really meaningful question because it was always relative to the size of the player base in that if you had 30% of your customers from from the USA, then, you know, roughly that's a, a similar order of magnitude would be, you know, bot operators. I don't necessarily agree, you know, except at the very small scale. Um, so, for example, if you had a very small number of legitimate customers from, I'm going to randomly pick a country, but let us say the hypothetical country of Timbuktu, um, you know, some of the uh, bot operators might be amongst the early adopters, um, and so, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, when there were very few, you know, cu- legitimate customers from China, where it required a degree of unusual technical knowledge to play poker at all from China, um, I'm sure that in those times, they, they had a higher proportion of of um, bot users to compared to more mainstream countries such as the USA, for example, at that time. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily agree or believe that, you know, players from one country are more likely to cheat than players from another country. There's, there are there's, other there's, other macro factors that were more meaningful than than the country of origin. Because there's an impression, and I don't know from I'm not, I'm not the one seeing who's being caught, but there's an impression that Russia is uh, greatly responsible for a lot of the botting. Well, I'm I'm very skeptical of that. Uh, in that, in that, you know, perhaps because there are fewer. Legitimate players. Um, the it is possible that uh, that uh, 
bot users from Russia, hypothetically speaking, make up a higher percentage because they are, you know, the more technical savvy and therefore might be amongst early adopters. But, you know, it's, it's sort of like asking what color hair is most common on, on the case of armed robbers in that it might make for an interesting statistical chart, but that's not really, I, I, I certainly don't think that, that, that that's a meaningful um, attribute for detecting bot users, especially because bot users by their very nature and bot cheaters by their very nature are going to be very technically adept and therefore can, you know, can uh, appear to an operator, but also to other customers to be from a nation that they're not actually from. Yeah. Okay. And, and uh, in, let's talk about complaints that you receive from people who are just convinced that the site's being rigged or something or something like that is happening to cheat them when they're just simply either running bad or playing bad and that there's nothing going on there that uh, is actually unfair. Um, how do you deal with those type of players there when they, they write those complaints? Obviously you write them back saying you've looked into it and that they're, uh, that they're not correct and that uh, it's just, it's just been the luck of the draw. But uh, I'm sure some people, I've seen some people very passionate about it to the point where they, you know, especially people who've lost their bottom dollar, some people who really believe that they got cheated. Uh, have, have you guys received threats about uh, from people like that? Have you, uh, um, how do you finally make these people go away or, or, or to leave you alone if they're convinced that uh, poker stars cheated them out of, uh, out of a lot of money for, through unfair dealing? So I'd, I'd prefer not to answer this in the context of poker stars, well, but rather a, a hypothetical future poker site that I yeah. was to okay. run. I have no plans to, but, but um, you know, so, so poker stars has a given strategy and what they're doing today in 2019 is, is their own business. Um, it's not one that I'm involved in anymore and haven't been for some time now. Um, but I'm a firm believer that, that someone who has taken the effort to download your software, make a deposit and become a customer of yours who reaches out to you. I'm a firm believer that a core part of providing excellent customer service is to speak with them. And so if they have concerns, to have a chat with them, uh, you know, whether it be about email, telephone, whatever, and to, and to, and to give them the peace of mind that they've been treated fairly. Um, and so, and so I want to make that point because PokerStars has a commercial motivation that is separate from what Michael Joseph thinks should or should not be the case in that, in that, and any online poker operator does. Um, but, you know, I have a general philosophy and this was something that I, I really learned from the founders of PokerStars was a, a real genuine passion for customer service and to do what is right. Um, and so, you know, speaking to customers and to explain them and to, and to, and to speak openly was, was, I think the, um, very, persuasive because a lot of customers they might take um you know little snippets that they hear from different bits and then demand um and to demand refunds or whatnot and so for example it's sort of funny in that in the aftermath of uh, the 60 minutes episode that you and i appeared on <laughs> back in 2008 um as i'm sure you can imagine um and uh, you know online poker site operators were uh, Bombarded right across the industry with various complaints from customers said, Oh, I saw on, on uh, 60 minutes that the uh, online poker was cheating. 
And so when I received a, these emails from customers, uh, it was uh, <laughs> very easy for me to say, yeah, hi, uh, I'm Michael. I was on that episode. <laughs> I was the guy who detected the cheating, right? And so it was, uh, you know, it would be very easy. It was a very easy, right, case where, you know, speaking openly and honestly to customers, it was, um, you know, I think the best way to put their minds at, minds at ease. Um, and in doing so, um, you know, give them confidence that uh, online poker is safe, you know, for them in that case. Yeah, and uh, with 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 so you get, you get these. Uh, what was I lost my train of thought for a second. Um, I, was, I was thinking about your answer. Let me, I, I guess it's getting later. I'm losing my train of thought. But let, let me go on to something else here. And if, if it comes back to me, it comes back to me. Let's go to the thing about the. After Black Friday time, and you you worked in the security what till like 2013? Yeah, so I, I worked in the game security team right through till the beginning of 2012, and then for a year um, worked in the location detection team, which was you know work dealing directly with the consequences of uh, of that Black Friday interim settlement with the U.S. Department of Justice, and then as of the beginning of 2013, I worked in the public relations teams for okay, so, four and a bit years. So I want to talk about the location uh, team you worked on and, and the work you did there. That's that's interesting to me too. Uh, I know a lot of people wanted to continue playing Poker Stars after Black Friday and they knew they either had to leave the country or make it look like they, leave the, they left the country. And, and Poker Stars had to, according to the agreement with the Department of Justice, try hard to police this. So uh, when you would... Uh, I don't know if, how much you can say about this, but uh, what type of tactics did you use to catch people who were using VPNs or other techniques to pretend to be outside the United States when they really weren't? Um, yeah, so I can't. I don't want to talk about the specifics of the of the PokerStar system because I don't think that's particularly helpful um, to talk about. You know, whatever specific technical details, but instead. Um, when after I left PokerStars, um, I actually became and continue to become very good friends with a um, a number of the investigators who were appointed by the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate um, this whole that whole uh, PokerStars compliance and to monitor PokerStars compliance with that interim settlement. You know, to the point that I was actually the MC at the wedding of one of the lead investigators uh, after well after I left PokerStars. Well, in fact, it was the week after I left PokerStars. Um, I was the MC at the wedding. Uh, of one of those lead investigators, and uh, and uh, and so after having left PokerStars, one of the uh, good metaphors that I heard for this sort of situation is that is that stopping people from doing bad things, and this applies to essentially every security system, should be about filtering. Should be about think of it less of a giant wall and more as a series of nets that let through um, good um, people and keep out bad people. And so and so that is to have a multi-layered security system and to have a series of different mechanisms that, that stop um, the bad thing of happening. And this is a philosophy that applies not just to some sort of location security system, but essentially every other security system in life. Um, you know, in the same way that you're 
house can have a variety of different security systems. Um, an important part of that is to is to not just keep out the bad guys, but to let the good guys in. You know, having having a a ten foot wall around your house is no good unless there's also a door to get in and out. And so, in that sense, I think it's very important to look at the, look at these sort of security systems as a filter system. And so, you know, so in the case of lo- location um, detection systems, the first and most obvious case is to ask a customer where they're from. And the vast majority of customers will honestly say, hey, I'm in the US or I'm in the UK or I'm in India or wherever. And so that's the very first and obvious detection system. But then there are also a number of other detection systems in a location um, filtering system that you could use, such as, for example, looking at where the payment system of a customer is from. Um, you can you, know, you can figure out if a credit card is located in the U.S. You can simply prohibit U.S. credit cards from uh, being used in your site. And so those first two things alone cut out vast majority of, of um, people who might otherwise try and play on your site. And then you have issues such as... Um, IP detection and other geographic location techniques. And, uh, and so in that sense, um, I think it would be very prudent in 2019 because technology also developed over time, but in 2019, but also uh, in, you know, in, in the coming decades to stop thinking of IP addresses as a meaningful indication of someone's location. It might be convenient. It might be easy and, you know, for, 98% of the time, it will probably be right. Um, but you know, fundamentally, IP addresses were not meant to be a, a geographic location device. And that in 2019 and beyond, especially on our mobile devices, um, there are a whole bunch of different technologies that, that can be used to properly identify where someone is located. And uh, were, were there a lot of cases of, of people who were caught doing this or, or, or relatively few? So it's difficult to answer that question in a meaningful way. I don't, I don't know what you mean by a lot or a few or something, but there's certainly some people who would um, mistakenly play from within the US and there were – and so in that sense, you know. Well, how, how could they mistakenly bunch, play? Yeah. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't it block them from doing this or it would miss this from IP address and it would, it would somehow – like someone near the border or something that it would uh, – did, did, did it pick up? Like how would it, like I couldn't just go play on Poker Stars now, even even if I tried. I I, I could yeah. I could try to get around it, but if I just opened up the client normally and tried to run it, it would say you're in the U.S. You can't. So, were you yeah, saying? Yeah, but those those detection systems, there's there are very few, if any, detection systems that are 100 percent perfect. Yeah, I know that. And yeah. so yeah, and so especially in the early days, uh, where Poker Stars was coming to grips with what the rules are, what they should be, um, you know, it uh, they improved the detection methods over time. And, uh, and so in that sense, um, you know, in the same way like we were talking about bots, you know, months earlier, um, there is a ongoing effort to learn and improve and to, and to get better over time. And so in that sense, if you're improving, then that obviously implies that at the beginning of the improvement, you're not so good. And so there's an ongoing effort to improve that sort of stuff, especially around, um, you know, location detection systems. But and so, I guess when I was so, asking, so, yeah, so so one of the things that that you know I remember speaking with the monitor, you know, well after the case, the the, the monitor appointed by the Department of Justice, um, is that he made the point is that that monitor ship did not continue forever, and so and so at some stage there was going to 
get you know go we were going to get to a a um to flesh out what was what what could be reasonably expected of of an operator here so for example you could you know to to take a very extreme example you could demand that every to ensure that every customer is visibly cited by a PokerStars employee or an operate site operator because I don't want to talk about PokerStars a site operator employee um you know it is possible to have you know the, or the, it's you know it's theoretically um you know to have a have an employee visit every little every legitimate operator to have you know custom inspections to ensure that they're legitimately playing in southern italy or that they're playing in you know in western sahara or that they're playing in you know new zealand or wherever but you know sending people investigators in person to every single alleged uh, attempted login is of course ridiculous and so it becomes a an issue of figuring out what's reasonable and those are balancing tests between the um the alleged or the possible offense and the possible harm but also what can be reasonably done with technology in in 2019 but also what was reasonable possible in 2012 and 2007 and and so on yeah i i had always figured there was something like that they had to be making a a reasonable effort to to really uh find this and an active invest an active effort to find this but that it wasn't expected to be perfect where if a few people got through that they wouldn't be considered uh out of compliance that that was my assumption yeah, so i'm a firm believer that there is literally no security and system in the world that is perfect and so you know in the same way that that bad stuff happens and and you know unauthorized access happens in other parts of the world um you know i'm absolutely confident that that uh that there is bad stuff that happens in online poker as well. And so that's why it's important to, you know, to, to recognize it's at a continuing battle. No security system is perfect and it will require ongoing effort to, to combat people who try and break the rules, which is why I guess, you know, coming back to what I, uh, at the very start of this interview, I was really impressed by your continued very long-term advocacy for what's interest in the bat, what's in the interest of players, because, you know, it's a continuing battle. It's a continuing struggle. There will never be a day when all cheating in the world is stopped and prevented. Um, and so, therefore, it's an ongoing struggle for the operators need to take seriously. Did you have uh, many issues or situations where people playing outside the U.S. that you discovered it because they were reported by people who knew about it and wanted to get them in trouble? Um not not really like there may have been a few here and there but there were you know certainly there were a few cases that became public and that you know we we were able to take action on um although what's interesting about this whole case is that they become a whole especially at the edge cases a whole bunch of interesting questions uh, about how to properly define uh, the borders of the US and so on and so you know there was various inter entertaining cases of people on cruise ships who were you know whether or not you're within the USA or not you know, oh, which, that's funny. You know, right. yeah, or whether we're now in, in 2019, if you're in an aircraft with Wi-Fi, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of interesting use cases and edge cases around whether or not you're actually in the U.S. Um, and so I am, um, it's, uh, you know, those those are the cases that, that would get flagged up from time to time and were much more interesting. Um, but, yeah, certainly, you know, there'd be, you know, some people, you can probably find them on Google today, who, who broke the rules and, uh, you know, would be would uh, receive the uh, appropriate uh, um, resolution. I know what I was going to ask before. I just remembered it. it. It has to do with the distribution of 
the cheating of whether it being at high stakes, higher stakes, medium stakes, low stakes. Uh, I know some. I know some of the bot rings would just. They just have a ton of bots playing low stakes, uh, both because of more availability of games, and also, uh, I guess they were hoping there'd be less detection because of uh, they're winning each bot's winning less money. But uh, I was always of the belief, and I and th- this kind of was confirmed at least at the time by the UB and AP scandals that uh, those looking to cheat will usually target the bigger money. Because it's just not worth targeting the lower games unless you have a massive volume of, of a lot of bots playing together or something. But other than that, uh, a lot I know when I've I'll talk to people about online poker. It's like I'll just be talking to someone randomly and they say, "Oh, do you play poker live a lot?" I go, "No, no, I actually play mostly online." They go, "Oh, you, you play online? Aren't you worried about cheating?" And I go, "Well, yeah, there might be, but I just have to deal with it. And I'm pretty good at seeing myself if something weird is going on." And then. But they say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I, I play. I used to play, and I was getting cheated all the time. And I thought, really, where, where was this? And they'll say, oh, I was playing 50 cent a dollar on the, the site, and I was sure there was this guy who could see all my cards. And, and this wasn't like on, on UB. It, it was someone who was convinced that there were big, there's big-time cheating in these small-stakes games. And what I would tell them is the, the smaller you play, the less likely it is you're being cheated, at least in that way. I said, there are bots that do this. There are bots that are playing there where it's tough because you're playing against the machine. They're, the bots are technically playing a, a fair poker game. They just have unfair advantages in being a bot. But but as far as uh, the type of cheating you're talking about, uh, this wouldn't be likely to occur at the limits you were playing. And that was that's usually what I've told these people. Uh, so So from what you've seen, aside from those bot rings, uh, excluding those, um, have you seen most of the cheating seems to occur at the middle and high stakes? So, so there's also a factor here from the point of view of an operator that there's a huge, the vast majority of their their play takes place at small stakes, and you know I, I don't know what the stats are today, but something in the order of eighty or eighty five percent of of games on on uh, most of the poker operators. You know, are at fifty cent or a dollar and below, and so if eighty-five percent of your your play is at fifty cent or a dollar or below, then you know something in the order of eighty-five percent of your cheating will be taking place at those small stakes games too. Um, I don't I don't think that small stakes or large or high stakes games are any more or less likely to have cheating, and they are no more or less deserving of an operator to ensure that they're fair, there's fairness taking place um, and that offenders are punished because it's also different sorts of cheating. So for example, um, you know, we were speaking before, you know, if two, if two mates are at a, at a poker table together um, and, you know, one does not properly bust his mate when, when they should, that sort of non-malicious, I don't know if accidental is the right word, but that sort of non-malicious ignorant cheating is obviously much more common at low stakes than it is at high stakes where everyone who's playing in a $1,000 sit-and-go will be very familiar with the rules and the, and, the, and the deeper, broader strategy of online poker. And so in that sense, there might be different differing forms of cheating at different stakes, but you know, I think that it would be a very, it'd be a very silly operator to make meaningfully different um, um, uh, apply different levels of scrutiny to different um, stakes in that someone who deliberately maliciously cheats at low stakes is 
equally bad as someone who deliberately maliciously cheats at high stakes. Wait, I wasn't really saying about the scrutiny. Yeah. I'm just talking about from what's been seen. Like, did you notice that the more more cheating was occurring at the at the medium and higher stakes? Just what was happening rather than what's what's uh, and I mean proportionately. Now I know I know there's a lot yeah. more games running at lower stakes, but I mean proportionately. Uh, did, did did it seem like there was a lot more middle and higher just because there's more money in in, in doing it? Well. The the off the offsetting factor though is that at the high stakes every 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 player knows each other. There's a much smaller player pool, therefore each individual player receives a greater deal of scrutiny. Each of the players, each of the legitimate honest players at a, at high stakes, for example, will scrutinise their opponent a lot more closely than in a very large low stakes player pool. So there's a bunch of offsetting factors, and I am very sceptical that cheating happens more or less at high stakes or low stakes. I don't have any access to any data um, to hand, but I assume it's probably very close to being in proportion to how many how many honest players there are. Okay. Well, I, yeah, in, I... you know, in that in that if you think of it from the point of view of a of a of a, um, of a cheater, first of all, it's easier to cheat at low stakes because your players are not so your opponents are not so good. Um, there's a bigger player pool that you can hide within. Um, there's a whole bunch of different factors and different forms of collusion can happen at different things at different levels. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm very skeptical that there'd be a, you know, a meaningfully difference, maybe a few percentage points here and there, but I don't know if it's going to be a materially different. Um, okay. Well, let's, let's jump, let's jump to a completely different subject. Nothing about poker security. I want, <laughs> I want, I want to talk about Lee Jones and sure. I, I, I was talking about him on the show before. In fact, a, uh, that I was talking about that right before you came on here, and I I gave an opinion on on uh, the two plus two thread that, that's that's been going on about this. He, I see he left Poker Stars in late 2018, and I know there's mixed opinions of him now because uh, um, anyone who spoke in defense of Poker Stars and some of their actions in the Amaya days. Uh, they have had their reputations tainted with certain individuals to some degree because uh, some people are unhappy with some of the things that PokerStars has done under Amaya, ha- under that ownership, such as the Supernova Elite scandal 2015. So Lee has taken some flack for that, and especially because when people would complain, he would often be one to argue back with them back when he was working for them. Uh, so I saw you were posting in that thread and taking a lot of people to task for uh, saying bad things about Lee, and it seems like you uh, obviously you knew him personally, and obviously you seem to like him. So I, I know what your position is on him, but uh, what would you say to someone that is critical of Lee that when these things were going on, such as the Supernova Elite scandal, that not only was he staying with Poker Stars and uh, and explaining what they were doing, but what it was actually defending them and, and was telling the players why they weren't right with their assessments. Sure. So I think that player concerns about the, I don't know what the right word is, but player grievances around the issue were not at all related to the communication of that decision, but rather the underlying decision itself. And so, therefore, I think that 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 complaints about the communication were a little bit beside the point. In that, you know, if you 
if you're getting, you know, I don't want to make this a metaphor for folks itself, but rather more broadly, if you're getting sold a shit sandwich, it doesn't matter how it's packaged. If it's still a shit sandwich, it still tastes bad. And so, so in that sense, you know, I don't, I don't think that player grievances were, were about Lee Jones as an individual, but rather about, you know, the decision that Pokestars made. And, you know, I have had the pleasure of knowing Lee for many years and, you know, I worked alongside him and I, I think that the players and the customers had had no greater ally and no greater advocate on their side than Lee Jones. He's a man who, in my experience, always conducted himself with integrity. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, I think that that we should all be held accountable for the decisions that we make. And Lee Jones should be accountable for the decisions that Lee Jones makes and that Pokestars should be accountable for the decisions that Pokestars makes and that Michael Joseph should be accountable for the decisions that Michael Joseph makes. And we all will be. And uh, and so in that sense, I don't think that that the grievance underlying here is with the, the words that Lee Jones used or the tone that Lee Jones used or the or the phrases that Lee Jones used or the attitude that Lee Jones had. I think the grievance that you had that you described earlier was with the underlying decision. And so therefore I think it is, you know, if you're aggrieved by that decision and you and you have every right to be, then when you know I'm not I'm not what I'm when I say every right to be, I mean you are your view is your view and, and you have a you know human right to hold that view i just think that the view that view should be that the attitude should be directed towards the people who make the decisions and that is in this case and in, in 2019 when a corporation makes a decision and it's, it's fundamentally the the corporation is and should be held accountable for that decision yeah and, and that applies not just to poker stars but applies to everything in life if you get if you go to a, a local you know restaurant and you get a, a shitty um you know a, a crappy you know you know, burger, for example, then it's the restaurant that is responsible, not the waiter that you happen to see in front of you. Yeah, and I understand all of that, and, and I know some people in the thread uh, on 2 Plus 2 were not understanding that very well, and because it was Lee, Lee was one of the people they were arguing with at the time that they kind of blame him for it when he wasn't the one who was making that decision or even had any power to overrule it in any way. And And I understand all that. I even said... Uh, shortly before he came on, that uh, if Lee was never born, these things would have all happened. These negative things that they were complaining about would have occurred just yeah, exactly. the same because exactly. he, he wasn't. Yeah, spot on there. Yeah. So, so that's and that's something people have to keep in mind. Uh, where, where I where I do see their point is when an individual who is known takes a position on something, uh, even if it's working for a company, when they come out and as themselves rather than just like – like let's say they were just on a poke, on a account called PokerStar Support posting there, and it's it's not said who it is. That's a little different story because it's actually like PokerStar speaking, even though it's a – PokerStar isn't a person and can't type, but but uh, someone posting from an account called PokerStar Support uh, anonymously, uh, th- that's – then that can just be totally attributed to being a mouthpiece directly for the company. But where people see an individual that they've known of in poker for so long who's saying – who's disagreeing with them or, or dismissing their concerns or even if they're told to – even if privately this person, in this case being Lee Jones, d- agrees with them but can't admit it because he's he's working for the company and can't publicly disagree with the company – uh, that's I see why this sits poorly with people. Is that what they see is a human being uh, who, who they know and recognize uh, 
disagreeing with them or telling them they're wrong or telling them their concerns aren't as valid as they think they are. And that's where people start to personally get angry and dislike the person. And it's hard, it's hard for them to separate it, especially if they are, if it's something that's actually affecting them, like the supernova elite thing, I was never supernova elite. So it didn't, this never affected me personally. I thought it was wrong. I didn't like the way it was handled. There was a lot of issues I had. Um, I did, I, I actually, on the other side, I wasn't one of these extreme people though. There were some people in that supernova elite, uh, thing that I felt were, were being too harsh on poker stars about it. Some people who just thought that poker stars owed them great rewards in, in perpetuity, that, that they, that poker stars didn't have a right to ever change that. And poker stars always had to reward the grinders uh, with, 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 with all kinds of bonuses. And I said, no, they don't, they, they don't owe you anything. But, but I, I did feel that they owed them of what was expected when they earned it. And that's where I felt that they really dropped the ball and felt they did the wrong thing. And, and uh, so but but at the same time, when there's someone who, you know, when you re- and I talked about this before, when you're representing a company and then the company does something you disagree with, but isn't as bad as something like outright cheating people, but more just uh, something that's wrong or maybe somewhat unethical, and then you have to be the one to publicly defend it or announce it, or it becomes very hard to do. It would be very hard for me to do, but then at the same time, there there does have to be some allowance that the person on the you know the person who's making this decision of what to do this is their livelihood this is what their career has been and it's not, it's not just a trivial thing to say okay I'm quitting now I don't like this it's it's it, this is a very major step that people have to take to to leave a company over philosophical differences that aren't super major in the grand scheme of things so so um, I was thinking. And I, when, when these type of questions come up, I like to think, what would I do in this situation? What would, if, if I was there and I had that spot, what would I do? And uh, I don't know if, if, if I would have, I, I may have also stayed, but I probably personally would have had a difficult time going out and posting and defending this. I think I may have said, if I had that job, you know, I, I don't want this particular job. You could trans, you know, transfer me something else, somewhere else, have me do something else. I just, I don't want to be the one to come out and say, type this stuff because, uh, um, you know, I, I don't agree with it. I don't believe it. And I don't want my name really synonymous with this. And that's, that's where I feel that I, I don't want to say so much that Lee made a mistake, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it, this is his decision, but th- this is what kind of led to an impression of him which I think actually probably is not representative of, of the person he is and the uh, the human being he is and, and, and his moral standards. I think there's a, a lot of these people think much worse of him than uh, of, of the person than, than he really is. I think a lot of them are really selling him short. And and uh, that's and, but I think it, it's I, I see how it happened. I see how it occurred and I see how for some people it is a little difficult to, to separate that even though. I can separate it, and I don't have any ill feelings toward Lee for any of this, uh, even if I would have done some things differently myself if I were in the spot. Yeah, look, I, I hear where you're coming from, and I appreciate that point of view. Um, and I guess I'd just make a very simple point, and that is, you know, fundamentally, morality is expensive. It is it is difficult, and it is hard to sacrifice your job and your employment. And, you know, I don't... I don't know much about, I don't want to make this about Lee Jones, but the broader point is that, is that, is that it is that these sort of moral questions have real world implications. And so, and so if you were, 
a vegetarian and the only available job is as a chicken burner, then it is very difficult to say, hey, I'm not going to work as a chicken burner and therefore potentially be unemployed because I'm a vegetarian. And so there is a a um, a great challenge in a lot of the moral questions that we all face in life about how to balance that with the real world incentives of wanting to continue you know, leading happy, healthy lives in other parts of our endeavors. And so, and so I, you know, I don't, I don't really want to talk too much about the details of, of this particular issue of posters that they made four or five years ago, how long it was. Um, but, you know, I consistently uh, am impressed with Lee's advocacy for customers. Um, and, and, you know, I think that when he, when he meets the, the big guy at the end of his life, um, I think that he will be very, he can be very confident that he will be judged fairly on what he did and that he can hold his head up high um, in the final judgment that we all face in life. Hmm. Okay. And let's, let's talk a bit about your life in the Isle of Man. So that's, that's a pretty isolated place to live. <laughs> you know, it's uh, you, you went from, from Australia uh, to the Isle of Man, which has to be a very big change. It's also very far from, from Australia. But uh, even even putting the the distance away, you're you're living on an island. With, what do you say? How many people? Eighty thousand or something? You're... Yeah, eighty five thousand people. Yeah. So, and, so, uh, and so you're like you're you're. A, I, I I would encourage you, or in fact any of your listeners, if you ever, you know, through the British Isles, feel free to stop into the Isle of Man. And so let's, you know, I th- I think that they would be deeply surprised to find that it's a real place with normal people, and you know, we all speak English. It's all pretty pretty mainstream. And so and so. You know, for example, it's a it's a sixty pound. What is that? Like a hundred dollar return flight to go to London for the weekend. Uh, it is it is not it is we're not we're not like in the in the wilds, the remote uh, you know depths of far northern Canada or somewhere. Um, there is a you know I can literally see England from the the front of my house that I live in. Um, it is um, it is it is you know certainly small. Compared to, you know, the city of New York or LA, sure it's a small, smaller place um, in terms of the population. But you know, there's 85,000 people here, which is it's, it, you know, we're not we're not talking about the outback remote, you know. And so before I worked for PokerStars uh, in Sydney, uh, I lived in a little town called Wangaratta uh, with uh, I think it had 15 or 20,000 people at the time. Um, it was normal for me on a Friday afternoon to drive for three and a half hours to Melbourne, where I go out with my mates for beers or whatever on a Friday night after work. Um, whereas, you know, the Isle of Man, it's a relatively urban, you know, concentrated place in that there's a lot of agriculture nearby, but, um, you know, it's a normal place with normal pubs and normal bars. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I suspect that, that, uh, one of the things that, that any poker player were to come and visit, they would be uh, bemused at how ordinarily suburban it was. Um, although a lot of visitors do come for the, for the scenic views and you know a bit of the rural access that you might not get somewhere else. Yeah, it's just I, I think the the thing that would be a little tough there is just that there is it is an island. There is this body of water in between, even if the actual distance from London isn't that far, and that the, there is some production to leave there. It's a little different than just living in a town where if you drive thirty miles, you you, you get somewhere else and you drive another 30 you get to somewhere much bigger here you, it, there is some effort to leave and but, but that that hasn't bothered you, you just you just do you, do you leave the island much or you're just mostly just yeah. there no look i i do and you know i, I dated 
dated a couple of girls in London over the last couple of years, which was a, always a very good incentive to go down there and visit and so on. And, uh, and so in that sense, um, you know, it's a, when I, when I would drive to the airport, I would leave my home an hour before the flight departed. Um, these days I get the bus because it's cheaper and easier. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a 20 minute flight, a 20 minute bus ride to the airport. And then it's a, you know, 30 minute flight to Liverpool. It's a half hour flight to, to London. And so that hurdle is slightly higher. Um, but, um, it is far more accessible than, um, I think you'd imagine. And so here's a standing invitation both to you, Todd, but also to any of your listeners. If you're, if you're ever passing by, um, I have a spare room. You're welcome to stay really, right? um, and visit and to, and to see. I, see, I understand. See I, I understand me with his listeners. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about all these people here, but well, okay, then... anyone who has a good sense of listening to your, uh, <laughs> your radio station. Um, I've, I've hosted a whole bunch of people on Airbnb over the last, uh, nine months or so. Oh, really? Um, and so, so in that sense, it's, you know, you can, I, uh, will uh, have to update that listing. So, so you can. Live with, uh, stay with Joseph on Airbnb or something. You know, like you that, know so. I, 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 I would <laughs> like to see it sometime. I, I've, I had some problems you've probably seen on Twitter. I've had these, uh, uh, anxiety issues that came up last year that for the first time in my life that came as a result of a physical problem. And I'm just, I'm just starting to try to get myself to fly again. I haven't flown since, since July and I'm taking a very short, very soon. I'm taking, a test flight from LA to Las Vegas to see can I handle being on a plane now? Where before it was no problem, never a problem before. Uh, and then hopefully I can work my way up to eventually traveling long distances on planes and and going to Europe because I it's too bad because I was I was planning to take some trips pretty far away and I had to put all that on hold. And then I would like to come to Europe. I haven't I actually have not been to Europe since 1991. And so I really want to come back there. It's been so long, and I was so much younger when I was there last. So I, I really would like to see it uh, nowadays. And uh, but if I if I am in the area, I, I I I would like to see the Isle of Man. That would, it would be interesting to see, and just to know that's where Poker Stars is. And and uh, I, I mean, I'll de- I definitely will get a hold of you if I if I come there. I definitely will get a hold of you. You're the only one I know there. So <laughs> <laughs> so I suspect that you would find it deeply underwhelming and very ordinary and very boring but uh well, now you make uh, me not want to know you but uh, uh but certainly you know there's a lot of a lot of you know i think you'll find that it's just a very normal place that is very underwhelming uh, in its normality how, how many miles is it or kilometers do you want to say how how far is it from from the from england uh so at its closest point it's 26 miles from scotland um from from england proper it's I'm not too sure it's about – it's a two-and-a-half-hour boat ride. So I think the boat goes for about you know, a route that's about 40 miles, maybe 50 miles long, okay. um, something of that order of magnitude. And so so you can – you know, I can see the lights of various English t- towns um, from my living so room. It's kind of similar. So, there's, there's an island off Los Angeles called Catalina, and that's 26 miles out in the ocean, and that's that's what I was thinking of when you were describing the Isle of Man. Cat- Catalina Island is actually part of California; it's part of Los Angeles County, and uh, but it is an island, and it's 26 miles, and it's a, I think an hour and a half uh, boat ride on these express boats they have. But when I visit there, and I've been there a number of times in my life, when I, when I visit there, I do think about it. It does have an isolation now; it doesn't have 85,000 people, so I will say that it's uh, it's smaller; it's a lot smaller than 
the Isle of Man is. So it, it probably does have more of a isolated feeling just because of its uh, smaller population. But uh, but I, I kind of picture that in some ways of being similar. And uh, that's that's kind of what I think of, and that's when I was thinking about how it would kind of be a pain. Like yeah, anyone in Catalina who wants to come to Los Angeles, they just got to get on a boat, on one of those express boats that takes an hour and a half each way, so you can do it. But uh, I, I don't know how often they do. But uh, you're going to stay there for the foreseeable future? Uh, yeah, certainly. So, um, um, you know, just to compare it to Catalina, um, the Isle of Man is about three times bigger, um, and it has 85,000 people, you know, whereas, what you know, Catalina has, what, 4,000, right? So it's yeah. so it's got about 20 times more people, and it's three times bigger geographically. Um, and so in that sense, you know, it might be a similar distance off the coast, but the, you know, uh, I certainly expect to answer your, your follow-up question there. I certainly expect to to make the rest of my life in the Isle of Man. Um, I'm about to go through the process of becoming a Manx or British citizen, which is going to cost me £1,300, which is like $2,000 to apply for that, which uh, is going to be a chunk of money. But, uh, yes, um, you know, this is my home now. And so, um, you know, I've one of the things that I really like about the Isle of Man is the great sense of community. Um, and so a wise man uh, I was once listening to made the point that people's lives and happiness are substantially driven by the connection to faith, family, friends, and uh, and work. And so one of the things that I quite like about the Isle of Man, it is an incredibly rich place for my friends. Uh, it's an incredibly rich place for my work. Um, and it's an incredibly rich place, you know, though I don't necessarily have a, have a relig- deep, you know, uh, Christian or religious faith, uh, you know, I do have a desire to make the world a better place. And so I find it very wholesome and in that sense, and so, and so, that sense of community that I think is so, so um, valuable in 2019. You know, when there are so many divisions in the US or whether in the UK and so on. Um, one of the things that I like about the Isle of Man is a um, a great sense of community, which I think is substantially in, uh, exaggerated by the fact that we all live on the island, and that therefore that people are very well integrated and closely integrated with each other. And so I think one of the great challenges that United States of America has as a has a as a you know a broader macro challenge is the assortment of its people, and that is that all the people who think one way live in one part of the town, city, country, and then all the people who think a different part of the way, a different way, live in a different part of the country. Whereas in the Isle of Man, um, there is a great integration, and and there is none of this sort of assortment that is happening um, in that people. You know, from all walks of life, you can go to and meet on a night out. Um, a simple example would be if you think of the last bar you went to, I'm sure, or very confident rather, that, you know, the people in that last bar that you went to were demographically all very similar to each other and people, you know, there's a bar for goths, there's a bar for, you know, for all-day truckers, there's a bar for, you know, for the rich people, there's a bar for poor people in many other big cities. Whereas in the Isle of Man, uh, one of the things I love about the Isle of Man is a sense of community that is very deeply integrated. And so I particularly remember on one uh, one night, I was um, went out for drinks with a guy who was a very senior leader at PokerStars, um, you know, and uh, a very wealthy man, to put it mildly. And uh, I remember him buying a round of drinks or whatever, and, you know, I stood out the front and, you know, a local guy in the, in the pub and the bar had uh, had uh, recognised my accent, and he uh, he told me, 
uh, he asked me, are you, are you from Australia? I said, yes, I am. And he said, oh, I've always wanted to go, uh, but I'm not allowed, which was a bit of a weird phrase. And I asked, oh, how come? And he said, oh, because I've got a manslaughter conviction. Yeah. And, and and so I can, you know, that it is normal in the Isle of Man to have, you know, people who have literally been in prison for manslaughter to be drinking, you know, literally at the, at the table next to you know, very wealthy senior business leaders. Whereas I think that would be very unlikely in that in that context, um, you know, in London or LA or New York, where people sort themselves out into their demographic groups. Um, and so that sense of community um, of where people are integrated with each other, I think is deeply valuable um, and something that is all too, too rare in 2019. Yeah. Okay, well, I, one more thing I want to ask you, then we'll let you go here. And uh, it, it's almost uh, it's almost nine o'clock, right? Aren't you starting work? You got to go to work. Soon, yeah, right? I got to go to work soon. So, yeah, uh, and I'm going to shut this show down. You because this is this is strictly pleasure, not not work. With yeah, you. <laughs> you 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 did me a favor here, though. Usually, I've just got to talk like five hours nonstop, and by the end, it's just uh, it, it's really tough on my voice <laughs> these days because of the, some of the problems I developed last year, and and so now since you, you've given long answers here, now I, I get my, my voice feels. Uh, fresh here, but uh, I've got w- one last question for you here. Uh, we we've interacted a lot over the last uh, several years on Twitter, and I've noticed you know there's people I notice on Twitter who uh, I'm always disagreeing with and arguing with. There's some kind of in the middle. There's 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 some that I agree more with. I notice on Twitter just uh, the, just in general the subjects that are being discussed, uh, in, including political ones, that uh, we tend to be in agreement a lot. That there's not not all the time, but but most of the time, I've noticed that uh, that, that there's agreement, and uh, what, what something I've seen we I've, both of us have kind of battled with. There's some people, in, especially in the poker community, a lot of the the social justice warrior types on uh, on Twitter, and a lot of the poker players who just seem uh, very uh, fanatical in their in their in their beliefs, especially on the uh, extreme left and then sometimes it becomes very difficult to deal with them and i know you've had your discussions with them and i have too on there and uh, uh with with poker players I've, I've just noticed this seems it seems more common with poker players to be this way compared to the average population and there's there's poker players on the other side i don't want to generalize too much i'm one on the other side but but there's there, there's a lot of them who are this way, and I, I believe that this is similar to why a lot of uh, actors are on the extreme left, and it's because of uh, they've become successful doing something that didn't really produce anything or or, or anything tangible. Even if they did produce something, it's just they they feel like they came into a lot of money that kind of deep down they they think maybe they didn't deserve. Uh, and they got success they didn't really deserve or didn't work as hard for as other people who, who have less than they do. And, and this is kind of their natural reaction is to go go to that uh, political side and be very outspoken and fanatical about it. What's what's your feeling? Why, why have you seen – have you noticed there's a lot of poker players who seem to be on the extreme left? And, and why do you think that is? So I think that there's a – I think that poker players are broadly – representative of the rest of society and their, and their views. But there certainly are a chunk of people who are very successful in very narrow endeavours. So that is very successful 
you know, due to good fortune or good, you know, combination of good luck, good, you know, looks, good brains, good whatever, whether it be in acting or whether it be in poker or, or various other endeavours, that gives them a huge degree of confidence and a huge degree of um, sincere belief in their own smartness. And so one of the things that, you know, I think is guiding of my political philosophy is one of humility, and that is that there are very few people in the world who are perfect. Um, and, you know, let me give you the hot tip. I certainly am not one. And uh, and so there are a bunch of people who think that they are expert in living their life, and therefore they should be treated as an expert in governing other people's lives. Whereas, you know, I have a, have a very different philosophy, and I think I have a philosophy that we should trust people to lead their lives. You know, the then, I'm not sure if he was governor at the time, but Reagan in, in his famous time for choosing speech said, if we are not fit enough to govern ourselves, then how can, how can someone govern other people? Um, and, and so, you know, in the utopian dream where, where these people, uh, you know, uh, you know, what you describe as social justice warriors, but I just, would think of, you know, excessively arrogant, uh, excessively self-confident uh, know-it-alls, where they they are comparing their completely flawless hypothetical dream with the flawed reality of life. And, you know, the word utopia literally means no place, if you look in the, into the etymology of it. And, and, you know, I simply do not think that there is a utop one universal utopian vision. And so that's why... I'm a big supporter in empowering local people to make their decisions for their local communities. And that's why I'm very sceptical of people who come around with their harebrained schemes to control other people's lives. And I think that it would be behoove our, our leaders of our community, whether it be political leaders, whether it be artistic leaders, uh, whether it be, you know, whatever, whatever leader, you know, and even leaders in our own family is to have some humility about what they believe in and what they do and what they want to impose on other people. In that, uh, you know, some of these people who want to restrict and, and introduce, you know, various crazy ideas that are really quite outside the mainstream, um, you know, I think would do well to have some humility about what their their um what they can do in a very complex and dynamic um, reality of life. Yeah, and well, one thing that has I've been seeing a big increase of in, in recent times is that um, a lot of these people I've been describing, they, they believe their political opponents to actually be evil. They believe their opponents are... Yes, they, I they, agree, they, yes. That they, they, yes. they have their views only out of uh, bigotry, out of selfishness, out of hate, out of uh, greed, and, and not simply that it's people who disagree with them who, who believe that they're doing the right thing. And and I I've never been like that. I've always believed that the political other side, for the most part, of course, you've got individuals who can be evil on, on any side, but you, but for the most part, people are really their political beliefs come from what they think is right and what they think are the right policies and what are the right things to do and what is just. And and I can say, look, I think you're wrong with that. I don't. I don't think your solution is correct. I think your solution is going to make things worse. I think you're looking at it the wrong way. I think everything that you believe or most of what you believe is just, is not going to work, but, but I can at the same time say, but I know, I know you're coming at this from a place of sincerity that you really believe 
that uh, that this is going to do good, even if even if I think you're wrong about it. But but unfortunately, when even if I, I give them that credit, often they will think that my views are are because of me being evil or or, or bigoted, bigoted, insensitive, greedy, uh, whatever. And I and I think as long as people want to have that view that the other side is evil or has bad intentions, and that uh, and that anything that deviates from your political viewpoint is uh, you, you can equate to evil in some way that uh, that not only can't ever get anything solved and, and is unhealthy, but th- uh, that gives the unintended rise to fascism where uh, where you know, fascism usually rises because there's a suppression of, of speech from one side that's said to be dangerous. And that's uh, that's always how it's been. And then that um a lot of times those who are convinced to support that are believing, look, we've got to, we've got to silence this, this group of people because they're evil and they're dangerous. And for their, if they're heard, then it's going to, it's uh, it's going to make everything terrible. Or it's going to convert people into the, these evil ways. Uh, the, the way to not allow that is to say, the way to prevent that is to say, everybody should have a chance to state their point of view. And we should respect that the people who are, who feel this way are doing so because they really, believe it to be right not not because they're not necessarily because of uh evil motives and 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 then when there are evil motives then you you can recognize it but realize that that's in the vast minority uh of those that, that's that's how i feel and i think that it, with every passing year at least here in the u.s uh we're seeing less and less uh trust of that and uh and you know and, and i i don't hide that i'm on the right but but i will i will take people on the right to task for for saying making comments about those on the left people say that liberalism is a mental illness and and i go no no it's it's not these are people who actually think they're doing the right thing i don't agree with them and and uh but i but you gotta their motives are not what you think they are and but but i see it more unfortunately from the left though that that they really think people on the right are just evil and, and nasty and terrible that's why you see all these people who got defriended on facebook because they voted for Trump, and I go, I would never defriend anyone for who they voted for. That's insane. And I, I have, I really do have friends from all different uh, political viewpoints, and, and some people can, some of the ones who oppose mine, we can have, or we can have civil discussions. Other ones, they get worked up, but as long so we just don't talk about it. But that's fine too. But uh, I, I just, I can't imagine not wanting to be friends with someone because of their their political beliefs. But it's, it's amazing seeing this happen more and more these days and so i think that goes back to that idea of uh, of assortment that we were talking about uh, a couple of minutes ago in that you know there are some boundaries and i think it's healthy for people to have clear boundaries of what is acceptable discourse amongst their social group so for example you know if and you know actually to take a personal example i had a, a couple of friends over the last couple of weeks who were on Facebook, you know, people who I was not particularly close to, but they were, you know, we, I'd, either they had sent me a Facebook friend request once upon a time and I'd accept it or vice versa. And they were advocating in favour of, you know, violence in the context of egging politicians who they thought they were, who thought they thought were evil. And I, I cut them out of my Facebook circle because, you know, at the end of the day, I have a strong commitment to, to non-violence. And so, and so in that sense, 
you know, I think that it's healthy to have boundaries of who you associate with and who your friends are based upon shared values and shared, you know, ground rules in that. But that those boundaries should, and I think it is very healthy for those boundaries to be much wider and broader than total agreement on every political issue. So, for example, you know, advocating violence is a deal breaker for me, but advocating for higher taxes, well, uh, you know, I can I can deal with that one. Uh, and so in that sense, um, you know, I think it's healthy to have ground rules and expectations for the people that you're friendly with. Um, but certainly, um, you know, the um, there is, I think, a lot of, well, and I, you know, I, I, I sort of laugh now in the, in 2019 because the the Donald Trump's second term is going to be absolutely hilarious. <laughs> in, that, in that, I am I am not American, but seeing this extraordinarily, I don't know, extremism from from various political leaders is just it just such a complete lack. Of, of self-reflection in that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't know. You know. I'm very fortunate I'm not an American citizen, so I never had a vote in the Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump versus all the other candidates there. Um, you know, maybe a third-party candidate could have been the way to go for me. But uh, certainly, um, you know, I think that it would behoove a, a lot of our, our uh, mutual poker acquaintances who have you know, various extremist views is to moderate them and to recognise how incredibly wildly out of step they are with mainstream Americans, mainstream people in the Isle of Man, mainstream people in Australia. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, a great chunk of people who are pretty normal and pretty mainstream, but, you know, also think that, you know, that, that, that there should be um, some issues that are not controlled centrally by government and so that, you know, there is, should be a space for civil society to have, you know, views on how life should live. Not everything is a political decision and not every political, not every issue in our society needs to be decided by our politics. Yeah, you know, I, I've seen that too. I've seen where, where there's so many, there's issues where I'll bring up that have nothing to do with politics and someone will find a way to, to make it a uh, political issue. I said, no, get that out of here. This is not about politics. And that's why usually on this show, for the most part, uh, I, I try to keep that away. Sometimes at the end, I'll make uh, editorials or things like that, that that cover political stuff. But but I try for the most part to just keep politics uh, out out of the show for the most for most of it, because that's that really doesn't have a place in most of what I discuss. The things in the poker community and and and, and scandals in poker or news about gambling. These occasionally there's a, there's a political element to it, but usually there isn't. And even when there is, I try not to editorialize. I try to just keep it to uh, discussing the facts of what's going on. And but but there's some people they just want to make everything political out of everything. And I just uh, that's that's crazy too. It's it's amazing how much has changed even just in the last uh, ten years this way, even the last five years. So, mm. so yeah. I, I hope I hope some of it changes back. Some of the, a lot of this I'm seeing is definitely not uh, positive progress. And uh, yeah, I know things over time. Some things get better, and sometimes other things get worse. There are some things you can look back in the past and you go, "I wish it was still like that." But uh, this this is definitely one of them that I I hope we we can kind of return to the past and people can look the way they used to. Uh, communicate and and dis- and discuss political matters and and handle differences in opinion. Anyway, thank you for coming on uh, the show. We've had a nice discussion here for two hours or so, and uh, 
I enjoyed having you on here. Indeed, Todd. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I look forward. I wish you all the best. Uh, and keep on fighting the good fight in the interest of uh, the players and the customers. I think your advocacy over that sustained period is really impressive. Yes, thank you. And if anybody wants to follow Michael Josem, it's very easy. It's, it's at Michael Josem, J-O-S-E-M. And you can follow him there on Twitter. And uh, he, he makes lots of posts about the Isle of Man, too. Some things I don't understand. He posts some things about, like, local Isle of Man stuff. Actually, more on Facebook. I, I see, actually see more on Facebook from you that's, that's more about uh, Isle of Man stuff. But there's, there's some things you write. I, go, I have no idea what he's talking about here. It's Isle of Man stuff. But uh, <laughs> other than, uh, other than that, uh, I, I do enjoy your tweets, and, and I usually agree with them, actually. So, uh, Very kind. Thanks. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Todd. Good night. Well, because it ended up being a two-hour interview, we are not going to do another topic. It's uh, 2.10 in the morning. If you're listening to the archives, which is probably the case because we lost most of our listeners from the technical problem. And you may say, what technical problem? We had a technical problem, which I had to go back and edit some things so it all fits nicely together. There was actually a point in this show where I was talking to myself, well, myself and Trader Ruski, for about 15 minutes, and I had no idea that it wasn't broadcasting. Because for some reason, on Wednesdays at 11.55 p.m., this radio server seems to go down. And I've got to figure out what's magical about that time and that day of the week. But I'll, I'll, probably, I'll probably get it. Just got to put some time into it. Yeah, sometimes things go wrong, and then I got to go to post production, and I hate doing post production. You don't, you guys don't know. I, when I'm done with a show, I've talked for five hours. I'm just kind of worn out, and the last thing I feel like doing is post production because I, it's all on me. There's no producers here. There's no editors. There's, there's nothing. It's just me. I get co-hosts helping me, but that's it. So the last thing I feel like doing here at two eleven in the morning is doing post-production, but I have to do post-production. And by the time you hear this, by the time you get to this segment in the archives, you will not be able to tell that anything went wrong, except for this little segment at the end. And often I cover it up, often because most, almost all of you hear this in the archives. The live listenership is a small percentage of our overall listenership. Very small percentage. And many times I just say nothing. Many times I just fix what went wrong, and put it together, and it all sounds great. And I even years later, I could listen myself and forget that I move things around and fix things. And that's my goal. But I'm going to be honest tonight. There were some problems. Well, one one period wasn't some problems. It was there was a stretch of problems from uh, happening around 11:55, right before Michael Josem came on. Fortunately, none of it happened after he got on because uh, we got it all situated. Anyway, if you stuck around during the fail in the live broadcast, I thank you for that. If you didn't, you're catching the archives. I don't blame you because we were gone for about 15 minutes. Um, Jake Stats said, played Baccarat through the interview. Thanks for the background while practicing. I guess he's, uh, I guess he's doing like a card counting with Baccarat. I know Jay Stat, he's a, uh, He's not someone who just gives away his money to the casinos. Um, disposition said entire segment will be scratched. Tier eight production. No, we're not. We're not scratching the whole segment. We're just scratching. Uh, not scratching. We're 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 actually more adding than subtracting. 
That's uh, I'll t- I'll give you guys a, sh- a quick description of the post production that can happen, which I usually don't do. Usually, what I do, I just slap up the episode as is, exactly as it played live. But in the cases I do post production, I will sometimes delete things that I don't want there anymore. Usually because it just sounds bad. There's fail or something like that, and I don't want to burden the archive listener hearing me futz with Skype for 12 minutes or something like that. That's not good radio, so I'll remove things like that. Every once in a while, I'll regret something I put out there, like I put out something I wasn't supposed to say, or I regret revealing to the public or something like that. There's Sometimes I'll I'll just spout off something and go, oh, crap, I wish I hadn't said that. And I'll go, well, most of the people won't hear it if I delete it. doesn't happen often. Once in a while, I will remove something that I regret having said. Usually, if I delete something, it's just because it makes bad radio. And then, more often, I will add something where, for example, we're off the air for some time, and I don't realize it. So, I'll just continue with the show. And then, at the end, I'll actually go back and re-record the part that didn't make it. And then insert it into the middle where it's supposed to be. And then it'll sound like it never happened. Things like that. As I said, usually none of this is done. It's a pain in the ass. And I'm a believer of presenting the show pretty much the way it was done in the first place. That's some of the charm of this show. There was someone who once told me that they the fail is their favorite part. <laughs> they like hearing when there's there's fail here. They find it entertaining. I'm glad about. It. I'm glad that there isn't like a super high standard for you know, production values since it's a live show. But at the same time, there's got to be some minimum standard. So I I don't want the listeners to hear like there was once this awful, I forgot what even happened, but there was something like a 25 minute difficulty getting someone on the phone. And and then, then there was uh, I think it was when we had Johnny Ferrari on something like that. We were having phone issues and they were having phone issues. And I just went back and listened. I go, Oh my God, this is awful. This is like 25 minutes of awfulness. I just wiped the whole part out and it just sounded like we reached him immediately. So I'll do things like that. The weirdest thing I'll be honest here. The weirdest thing is where I have conversations hours after the conversation really occurred. So like there's something Trader says and I've got to bridge it together so it doesn't sound weird. So I've got to say something to him like hours after he's hung up and then plug it back in there, which makes it sound like that we had the conversation live. And I have to take, you know, I have to take what I have recorded of him to do it. I can't, wake him up at three in the morning and say, Hey, can you, can we redo this conversation? So I've got to insert myself in there. <laughs> it's, it's really weird sometimes to have to do that. And then to hear the results and go, wow, this really sounds like we were talking live, but we weren't, you know, I, I, I said something at 3 AM and he responded five hours earlier, 9 PM. Occasionally we will have that. Occasionally we will have that, but I try not to do too much of it, but I just want to be honest with everybody. You know, I, I could, most of you who listen live don't also listen in the archives, at least not for the same episode. So most people will not have heard both versions. So that's one reason it's easy to get away with that. But I want to be honest, it happens sometimes, but not very often. 
And I think there's some value to knowing you're hearing a show as it was recorded live. So you kind of feel like you're listening live because I've, I listen to shows sometimes that are live shows and I kind of get bothered when I feel like there's been things cut out or things edited and I, I'm not really hearing the same live experience that other live listeners had. So when I do it, other than when I want to cut the, I cut something out that I regret saying, um, when I do it, it's really just for the radio experience to be better. Well, next week, we will probably be on Thursday night or Friday early daytime. And I mean like pretty early daytime if it's Friday. I'm not sure which one yet. It'll either be like a Friday at 1 p.m. sort of thing or a Thursday at 11 p.m. sort of thing. And I haven't decided which one yet. You can check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert, though I think there's a pretty good chance we're not going to be on Wednesday, which means I get to avoid this stupid 1155 cutoff for one more week while I figure this out. It's really weird. But there's something about 1155 on Thursday. On Wednesday, not Thursday. Thursday doesn't happen. All righty. I'm going to be done to... I'm going to be glad to have this day be done because there's just a lot of annoyances like everything I tried had some kind of fail to it everything kind of just didn't quite go right except the interview that was pretty good Um, I'm thinking about the upcoming schedule. We are going to go back to to Wednesday again after whatever we do next week, presumably. I I really do want to keep the show on Wednesday. In fact, as strange as it sounds, it is more convenient for me. As as often as we keep switching to Thursday, it is more convenient for me. Because I, I actually have something that goes on on most Thursdays to where squeezing in radio is a pain in the ass. But I really do want it to be Wednesday and now that I'm thinking of it, though, we're, we're getting close to the World Series already. Because the, the World Series is starting on, uh, on May 20, or May 30th for me. So, well, two, mile, two months away. It's not that far anymore. Speaking of that, I have pieces to sell you. I still have pieces to sell of both the 10K events I'm playing and the 1K through 3K events I'm playing. There are still pieces left, but they are going fast. Every day, I, money keeps just showing up from people who want to buy pieces. And it will be gone. It will be gone. So, if you want your piece of me in the World Series of Poker 2019, then please get to this soon. Because once it's gone, it's gone. And sometimes, towards the end, it goes really fast. And once in a while, I'll realize I didn't count the pieces right, and I'll go, uh-oh, it's not as much left as I thought there was. Sorry, guys. So don't don't let it go to the end. I'm definitely not going to sell more than 40% of myself. There's, there's, I just don't want to do it. I want to play for at least 60% of myself. That's just the way I feel about the World Series. Otherwise, I kind of feel like it's pointless to play. So if you want a piece, get one. If you don't, then don't get one. It's that easy. And I'm going to play no matter what. I don't care what the hell I sell. 
I am playing every event that I mentioned there unless something external interferes with it, such as health. But I think it's going to be fine. I think it'll be good. It'll be fine. I think it's going to be a good year. Talk to you later. Next week. Shalom.